Leto felt suddenly that he was in this place because he had refused to be confined in the system which his ancestors bequeathed him. He thought of how people looked at him, that universal mistake in every glance except Ganima's. Except for that ragged mob of other memories, this child was never a child. I must accept responsibility for the decisions we made, he thought. Once more he scanned the length of rock. By all the descriptions, this had to be Fondak, and no other place could be Jakurutu. He felt a strange resonant relationship with the taboo of this place. In the Bene Gesserit way, he opened his mind to Jakurutu, seeking to know nothing about it. Knowing was a barrier which prevented learning. For a few moments, he allowed himself merely to resonate, making no demands, asking no questions. The problem lay within the lack of animal life, but it was a particular thing which alerted him. He perceived it then. There were no scavenger birds, no eagles, no vultures, no hawks. Even when other life hid, these remained. Every watering place in this desert held its chain of life. At the end of the chain were the omnipresent scavengers. Nothing had come to investigate his presence. How well he knew the watchdogs of the Siege, that line of crouched birds on the cliff's edge at Tabor, primitive undertakers waiting for flesh, as the Fremen said, our competitors. But they said it with no sense of jealousy, because questing birds often told when strangers approached. What if this Fondak has been abandoned even by the smugglers? Leto paused to drink from one of his catch tubes. What if there's truly no water here? He reviewed his position. He'd run two worms into the sand getting here, riding them with his flail through the night, leaving them half dead. This was the inner desert where the smuggler's haven was to be found. If life existed here, if it could exist, it would have to be in the presence of water. What if there's no water? What if this isn't Fondak, Jakarutu? Once more he aimed his binoculars at the wind trap. Its outer edges were sand-etched, in need of maintenance, but enough of it remained. There should be water. But what if there isn't? An abandoned siege might lose its water to the air, to any number of catastrophes. Why were there no scavenger birds, killed for their water? By whom? How could all of them be eliminated? Poison? Poisoned water. The legend of Jakarutu contained no story of the cistern poisoned, but it might have been. If the original flocks were slain, would they not have been renewed by this time? The Idwali were wiped out generations ago, and the stories never mentioned poison. Again he examined the rock with his binoculars. How could an entire siege have been wiped out? Certainly some must have escaped. All of the inhabitants of a siege were seldom at home. Parties roamed the desert, trekked to the towns. With a sigh of resignation, Leto put away his binoculars. He slipped down the hidden face of the dune, took extra care to dig in his still tent and conceal all sign of his intrusion as he prepared to spend the hot hours. The sluggish currents of fatigue stole along his limbs as he sealed himself in the darkness. Within the tent's sweaty confines, he spent much of the day drowsing, imagining mistakes he could have made. His dreams were defensive. But there could be no self-defense in this trial he and Ganima had chosen. Failure would scald their souls. 
He ate spice biscuits and slept, awakened to eat once more, to drink, and return to sleep. It had been a long journey to this place, a severe test for the muscles of a child. Toward evening he awoke refreshed, listened for signs of life. He crept out of his sandy shroud. There was dust high up in the sky blowing one way, but he could feel sand stinging his cheek from another direction, sure sign there would be a weather change. He sensed a storm coming. Cautiously he crept to the crest of his dune, peered once more at those enigmatic rocks. The intervening air was yellow. The signs spoke of a Coriolis storm approaching, the wind that carried death in its belly. There'd be a great winding sheet of wind-driven sand that might stretch across four degrees of latitude. The desolate emptiness of the gypsum pan was a yellow surface now reflecting the dust clouds. The false peace of evening enfolded him. Then the day collapsed, and it was night, the quick night of the inner desert. The rocks were transformed into angular peaks frosted by the light of first moon. He felt sand thorns stinging his skin. A peal of dry thunder sounded like an echo from distant drums, and in the space between moonlight and darkness he saw sudden movement. Bats. He could hear the stirring of their wings, their tiny squeaks. Bats. By design or accident, this place conveyed a sense of abandoned desolation. It was where the half-legendary smuggler stronghold should be, Fondak. But what if it were not Fondak? What if the taboo still ruled and this were only the shell of ghostly Jakarutu? Leto crouched in the lee of his dune and waited for the night to settle into its own rhythms. Patience and caution. Caution and patience. For a time he amused himself by reviewing Chaucer's route from London to Canterbury, listing the places from Southwark, two miles to the watering place of St. Thomas, five miles to Deptford, six miles to Greenwich, thirty miles to Rochester, forty miles to Sittingbourne, fifty-five miles to Boughton-under-Bleen, fifty-eight miles to Harbledown, and sixty miles to Canterbury. It gave him a sense of timeless buoyancy to know that few in his universe would recall Chaucer, or know any London except the village on Ganserede. St. Thomas was preserved in the Orange Catholic Bible and the Ajar book, but Canterbury was gone from the memories of men, as was the planet which had known it. There lay the burden of his memories, of all those lives which threatened to engulf him. He had made that trip to Canterbury once. His present trip was longer, though, and more dangerous. Presently he crept over the dune's crest and made his way toward the moonlit rocks. He blended with shadows, slid across the crests, made no sounds that might signal his presence. The dust had gone as it often did just before a storm, and the night was brilliant. The day had revealed no movement, but he heard small creatures hustling in the darkness as he neared the rocks. In a valley between two dunes he came upon a family of Jeboa, which scampered away at his approach. He eased over the next crest, his emotions beset by salty anxieties. That cleft he had seen, did it lead up to an entrance? And there were other concerns. The old-time Sietch had always been guarded by traps, poisoned barbs in pits, poisoned spines on plants. He felt himself caught up in the Fremen agrifer. 
the ear-minded knight, and he listened for the slightest sound. The grey rocks towered above him now, made giant by his nearness. As he listened, he heard birds invisible in that cliff, the soft calling of winged prey. They were the sounds of day birds, but abroad by night. What had turned their world around? Human predation? Abruptly, Leto froze against the sand. There was fire on the cliff, a ballet of glittering and mysterious gems against the night's black gauze, the sort of signal a siege might send to wanderers across the bled. Who were these occupants of this place? He crept forward into the deepest shadows at the cliff's base, felt along the rock with a hand, sliding his body behind the hand as he sought the fissure he'd seen by daylight. He located it on his eighth step, slipped the sand snorkel from his kit and probed the darkness. As he moved, something tight and binding dropped over his shoulders and arms, immobilizing them. Trap vine! He resisted the urge to struggle. That only made the vine pull tighter. He dropped the snorkel, flexed the fingers of his right hand, trying for the knife at his waist. He felt like a bare innocent for not throwing something into that fissure from a distance, testing the darkness for its dangers. His mind had been too occupied by the fire on the cliff. Each movement tightened the trap vine, but his fingers at last touched the knife hilt. Stealthily he closed his hand around the hilt, began to slip it free. Flaring light enveloped him, arresting all movement. Ah, a fine catch in our net. It was a heavy, masculine voice from behind Leto, something vaguely familiar in the tone. Leto tried to turn his head, aware of the vine's dangerous propensity to crush a body which moved too freely. A hand took his knife before he could see his captor. The hand moved expertly over his body, extracting the small devices he and Ganima carried as a matter of survival. Nothing escaped the searcher, not even the shigowire garotte concealed in his hair. Leto still had not seen the man. Fingers did something with the trap vine, and he found he could breathe easier, but the man said, Do not struggle, Leto Atreides. I have your water in my cup. By supreme effort, Leto remained calm, said, You know my name? Of course. When one baits a trap, it's for a purpose. One aims for a specific quarry, not so. Leto remained silent, but his thoughts whirled. You feel betrayed, the heavy voice said. Hands turned him around gently, but with an obvious show of strength. An adult male was telling the child what the odds were. Leto stared up into the glare from twin floater flares, saw the black outline of a stillsuit-masked face, the hood. As his eyes adjusted, he made out a dark strip of skin, the utterly shadowed eyes of melange addiction. You wonder why we went to all this trouble, the man said. His voice issued from the shielded lower part of his face with a curious muffled quality, as though he tried to conceal an accent. I long ago ceased to wonder at the numbers of people who want the Atreides twins dead, Leto said. Their reasons are obvious. As he spoke, Leto's mind flung itself against the unknown as against a cage, questing wildly for answers. A baited trap? But who had known except Ganima? Impossible. Ganima wouldn't betray her own brother. Then did someone know him well enough to predict his actions? 
Who? His grandmother? How could she? You could not be permitted to go on as you were, the man said. Very bad. Before ascending the throne, you need to be educated. The whiteless eyes stared down at him. You wonder how one could presume to educate such a person as yourself? You with the knowledge of a multitude held there in your memories? That's just it, you see. You think yourself educated, but all you are is a repository of dead lives. You don't yet have a life of your own. You're just a walking surfeit of others, all with one goal, to seek death. Not good in a ruler, being a death seeker. You'd strew your surroundings with corpses. Your father, for example, never understood the... You dare speak of him that way? Many's the time I've dared it. He was only Paul Atreides, after all. Well, boy, welcome to your school. The man brought a hand from beneath his robe, touched Leto's cheek. Leto felt the jolt of a slap shot and found himself winding downward into a darkness where a green flag waved. It was the green banner of the Atreides with its day and night symbols, its dune staff which concealed a water tube. He heard the water gurgling as unconsciousness enfolded him. Or was it someone chuckling? We can still remember the golden days before Heisenberg, who showed humans the walls enclosing our predestined arguments. The lives within me find this amusing. Knowledge, you see, has no uses without purpose, but purpose is what builds enclosing walls. Leto Atreides II, his voice. Alia found herself speaking harshly to the guards she confronted in the temple foyer. There were nine of them in the dusty green uniforms of the suburban patrol, and they were still panting and sweating with their exertions. The light of late afternoon came in the door behind them. The area had been cleared of pilgrims. So my orders mean nothing to you? she demanded, and she wondered at her own anger, not trying to contain it, but letting it run. Her body trembled with unleashed tensions. Idaho gone, the Lady Jessica, no reports, only rumors that they were on Salusa. Why hadn't Idaho sent a message? What had he done? Had he learned finally about Javid? Alia wore the yellow of Arakeen mourning, the color of the burning sun from Fremen history. In a few minutes, she would be leading the second and final funeral procession to Old Gap, there to complete the stone marker for her lost nephew. The work would be completed in the night, fitting homage to one who had been destined to lead Fremen. The priestly guards appeared defiant in the face of her anger, not shamed at all. They stood in front of her, outlined by the waning light. The odor of their perspiration was easily detected through the light and inefficient stillsuits of city dwellers. Their leader, a tall, blonde Kaiser with the Borka symbols of the Kalem family, flung his stillsuit mask aside to speak more clearly. His voice was full of the prideful intonations to be expected from a scion of the family which once had ruled at Siech Abir. Certainly we tried to capture him. The man was obviously outraged at her attack. He speaks blasphemy. We know your orders, but we heard him with our own ears. And you failed to catch him, Alia said, her voice low and accusing. 
One of the other guards, a short young woman, tried to defend them. The crowds were thick there. I swear people interfered with us. We'll keep after him, the Cadelam said. We'll not always fail. Alia scowled. Why won't you understand and obey me? My lady, we- What will you do, scion of the Cade Lamb, if you capture him and find him to be, in truth, my brother? He obviously did not hear her special emphasis on his name, although he could not be a priestly guard without some education and the wit to go with it. Did he want to sacrifice himself? The guardsman swallowed, then, We must kill him ourselves, for he breeds disorder. The others stood aghast at this, but still defiant. They knew what they had heard. He calls upon the tribes to band against you, the Kalam said. Alia knew how to handle him now. She spoke in a quiet, matter-of-fact tone. I see. Then if you must sacrifice yourself this way, taking him openly for all to see who you are and what you do, then I guess you must. Sacrifice my... He broke off, glanced at his companions. As Kezar of this group, their appointed leader, he had the right to speak for them, but he showed signs that he wished he'd remained silent. The other guards stirred uncomfortably. In the heat of the chase, they defied Alia. One could only reflect now upon such defiance of the womb of heaven. With obvious discomfort, the guards opened a small space between themselves and their Kezar. For the good of the church, our official reaction would have to be severe. Alia said. You understand that, don't you? But he... I've heard him myself, she said. But this is a special case. He cannot be Muad'Dib, my lady. How little you know, she thought. She said, we cannot risk taking him in the open, harming him where others could see it. If another opportunity presents itself, of course. He is always surrounded by crowds these days. Then I fear you must be patient. Of course, if you insist on defying me... She left the consequences hanging in the air, unspoken but well understood. The Cadelam was ambitious, a shining career before him. We didn't mean defiance, my lady. The man had himself under control now. We acted hastily, I can see that, forgive us. But he... Nothing has happened, nothing to forgive, she said, using the common Fremen formula. It was one of the many ways a tribe kept peace in its ranks, and this Cadelam was still old Fremen enough to remember that. His family carried a long tradition of leadership. Guilt was the naive's whip, to be used sparingly. Fremen served best when free of guilt or resentment. He showed his realization of her judgment by bowing his head, saying, For the good of the tribe, I understand. Go refresh yourselves, she said. The procession begins in a few minutes. Yes, my lady. They bustled away, every movement revealing their relief at this escape. Within Alia's head, a bass rumbled. Ah, you handled that most adroitly. One or two of them still believe you desire the preacher dead. They'll find a way. Shut up, she hissed. Shut up! I should never have listened to you. Look what you've done. Set you on the road to immortality, the bass voice said. She felt it echoing in her skull like a distant ache, thought, where can I hide? There's no place to go. Ganima's knife is sharp, the baron said. Remember that. <laughs>
Aaliyah blinked. Yes, that was something to remember. Ghanima's knife was sharp. That knife might yet cut them out of their present predicament. If you believe certain words, you believe their hidden arguments. When you believe something is right or wrong, true or false, you believe the assumptions in the words which express the arguments. Such assumptions are often full of holes, but remain most precious to the convinced. The open-ended proof from The Panoplia Prophetica Leto's mind floated in a stew of fierce odors. He recognized the heavy cinnamon of melange, the confined sweat of working bodies, the acridity of an uncapped death still, dust of many sorts with flint dominant. The odors formed a trail through dream sand, created shapes of fog in a dead land. He knew these odors should tell him something, but part of him could not yet listen. Thoughts like wraiths floated through his mind. In this time I have no finished features. I am all of my ancestors. The sun setting into the sand is the sun setting into my soul. Once this multitude within me was great, but that's ended. I'm Fremen and I'll have a Fremen ending. The golden path is ended before it began. It's nothing but a wind-blown trail. We Fremen knew all the tricks to conceal ourselves. We left no feces, no water, no tracks. Now, look at my trail vanish. A masculine voice spoke close to his ear. I could kill you, Atreides. I could kill you, Atreides. It was repeated over and over until it lost meaning, became a wordless thing carried within Leto's dreaming, a litany of sorts. I could kill you, Atreides. Leto cleared his throat and felt the reality of this simple act shake his senses. His dry throat managed, Who? The voice beside him said, I'm an educated Fremen and I've killed my man. You took away our gods, Atreides. What do we care about your stinking Muad'Dib? Your god's dead. Was that a real Uraba voice, or another part of his dream? Leto opened his eyes, found himself unfettered on a hard couch. He looked upward at rock, dim glow-globes, an unmasked face staring down at him so close he could smell the breath with its familiar odors of a Siech diet. The face was Fremen, no mistaking the dark skin, those sharp features and water-wasted flesh. This was no fat city-dweller. Here was a desert Fremen. I am Namri, father of Javid, the Fremen said. Do you know me now, Atreides? I know Javid, Leto husked. Yes, your family knows my son well. I am proud of him. You Atreides may know him even better soon. What? I am one of your schoolmasters, Atreides. I have only one function. I am the one who could kill you. I do it gladly. In this school, to graduate is to live. To fail is to be given into my hands. Leto heard implacable sincerity in that voice. It chilled him. This was a human Gomjabar a high-handed enemy to test his right of entrance into the human concourse. Leto sensed his grandmother's hand in this, and behind her, the faceless masses of the Bene Gesserit. He writhed at this thought. 
Your education begins with me, Namri said. That is just. It is fitting. Because it could end with me. Listen to me carefully now. My every word carries your life in it. Everything about me holds your death in it. Leto shot his glance around the room. Rock walls, barren. Only this couch, the dim glow-globes, and a dark passage behind Namri. You will not get past me, Namri said, and Leto believed him. Why are you doing this? Leto asked. That's already been explained. Think what plans are in your head. You are here, and you cannot put a future into your present condition. The two don't go together, now and future. But if you really know your past, if you look backward and see where you've been, perhaps there'll be reason once more. If not, there will be your death. Leto noted that Namri's tone was not unkind, but it was firm, and no denying the death in it. Namri rocked back on his heels, stared at the rock ceiling. In olden times, Fremen faced east at dawn. Eos, you know, that's dawn in one of the old tongues. Bitter pride in his voice, Leto said, I speak that tongue. You have not listened to me then, Namri said, and there was a knife edge in his voice. Night was the time of chaos. Day was the time of order. That's how it was in the time of that tongue you say you speak. Darkness, disorder, light, order. We Fremen changed that. Eos was the light we distrusted. We preferred the light of a moon or the stars. Light was too much order, and that can be fatal. You see what you Eos, Atreides, have done? Man is a creature of only that light which protects him. The sun was our enemy on Dune. Namri brought his gaze down to Leto's level. What light do you prefer, Atreides? By Namri's poised attitude, Leto sensed that this question carried deep weight. Would the man kill him if he failed to answer correctly? He might. Leto saw Namri's hand resting quietly next to the polished hilt of a Chris knife. A ring in the form of a magic tortoise glittered on the Fremen's knife hand. Leto eased himself up onto his elbows, sent his mind questing into Fremen beliefs. They trusted the law and loved to hear its lessons expounded in analogy, these old Fremen. The light of the moon? I prefer the light of Lisanu Leto said, watching Namri for subtle revelation. The man seemed disappointed, but his hand moved away from his knife. It is the light of truth, the light of the perfect man in which the influence of Al-Mutakalim can clearly be seen, Leto continued. What other light would a human prefer? You speak as one who recites, not one who believes, Namri said. And Leto thought, I did recite but he began to sense the drift of Namri's thoughts, how his words were filtered through early training in the ancient riddle game. Thousands of these riddles went into Fremen training, and Leto had but to bend his attention upon this custom to find examples flooding his mind. Challenge. Silence. Answer. The friend of the hunted. Namri nodded to himself as though he shared this thought, said, there is a cave which is the cave of life for Fremen. It is an actual cave which the desert has hidden. 
Shaihulud, the great-grandfather of all Fremen, sealed up that cave. My uncle Zayamed told me about it, and he never lied to me. There is such a cave. Leto heard the challenging silence when Namri finished speaking. Cave of life? My uncle Stilgar also told me of that cave, Leto said. It was sealed to keep cowards from hiding there. The reflection of a glow globe glittered in Namri's shadowed eyes. He asked, Would you, Atreides, open that cave? You seek to control life through a ministry, your central ministry for information, Aukaf and Haj. The Morlana in charge is called Kausar. He has come a long way from his family's beginnings at the salt mines of Nyazi. Tell me, Atreides, what is wrong with your ministry? Leto sat up, aware now that he was fully into the riddle game with Namri and that the forfeit was death. The man gave every indication that he'd used that Chris knife at the first wrong answer. Namri, recognizing this awareness in Leto, said, Believe me, Atreides, I am the clod crusher. I am the iron hammer. Now Leto understood. Namri saw himself as Mirzaba, the iron hammer with which the dead are beaten who cannot reply satisfactorily to the questions they must answer before entry into paradise. What was wrong with the central ministry which Aaliyah and her priests had created? Leto thought of why he'd come into the desert, and a small hope returned to him that the golden path might yet appear in his universe. What this Namri implied by his question was no more than the motive which had driven Muad'Dib's own son into the desert. Gods it is to show the way, Leto said. Namri's chin jerked down and he stared sharply at Leto. Can it be true that you believe this? he demanded. It's why I'm here, Leto said. To find the way? To find it for myself. Leto put his feet over the edge of the cot. The rock floor was uncarpeted, cold. The priests created their ministry to hide the way. You speak like a true rebel, Namri said, and he rubbed the tortoise ring on his finger. We shall see. Listen carefully once more. You know the high shield wall at Jalaluddin? That wall bears my family's marks carved there in the first days. Javid, my son, has seen those marks. abed jalal my nephew, has seen them. Mujahid Shafkat of the other ones, he too has seen our marks. In the season of the storms near Sukkar, I came down with my friend Yakup Abad near that place. The winds were blistering hot like the whirlwinds from which we learned our dances. We did not take time to see the marks because a storm blocked the way, but when the storm passed we saw the vision of Thatta upon the blown sand. The face of Shakir Ali was there for a moment, looking down upon his city of tombs. The vision was gone in the instant, but we all saw it. Tell me, Atreides, where can I find that city of tombs? The whirlwinds from which we learned our dances, later thought, the vision of Thatta and Shakir Ali. These were the words of a Zen Sunni wanderer, those who considered themselves to be the only true men of the desert. And Fremen were forbidden to have tombs. The city of tombs is at the end of the path which all men follow, Leto said, and he dredged up the Zen Sunni beatifics. It is in a garden one thousand paces square. There is a fine entry corridor, 
233 paces long and 100 paces wide, all paved with marble from ancient Jaipur. Therein dwells Ar-Razak, he who provides food for all who ask, and on the day of reckoning all who stand up and seek the city of tombs shall not find it, for it is written, That which you know in one world you shall not find in another. Again, you recite without belief, Namri sneered. But I'll accept it for now, because I think you know why you're here. A cold smile touched his lips. I give you a provisional future, Atreides. Leto studied the man warily. Was this another question in disguise? Good, Namri said. Your awareness has been prepared. I've sunk home the barbs. One more thing, then. Have you heard that they use imitation still suits in the cities of Har Kadrish? As Namri waited, Leto quested in his mind for a hidden meaning. Imitation still suits? They were worn on many planets. He said, The foppish habits of Kadrish are an old story often repeated. The wise animal blends into its surroundings. Namri nodded slowly, then, The one who trapped you and brought you here will see you presently. Do not try to leave this place, it would be your death. Arising as he spoke, Namri went out into the dark passage. For a long time after he had gone, Leto stared into the passage. He could hear sounds out there, the quiet voices of men on guard duty. Namri's story of the mirage vision stayed with Leto. It brought up the long desert crossing to this place. It no longer mattered whether this were Jakarutu Fondak. Namri was not a smuggler. He was something much more potent. And the game Namri played smelled of the Lady Jessica. It stank of the Bene Gesserit. Leto sensed an enclosing peril in this realization. But that dark passage where Namri had gone was the only exit from this room. And outside lay a strange sietch. Beyond that, the desert. The harsh severity of that desert, its ordered chaos with mirages and endless dunes, came over Leto as part of the trap in which he was caught. He could recross that sand, but where would flight take him? The thought was like stagnant water. It would not quench his thirst. Because of the one-pointed time-awareness in which the conventional mind remains immersed, Humans tend to think of everything in a sequential, word-oriented framework. This mental trap produces very short-term concepts of effectiveness and consequences, a condition of constant, unplanned response to crises. Liet Kynes, The Arrakis Workbook Words and movements simultaneous. Jessica reminded herself, and she bent her thoughts to those necessary mental preparations for the coming encounter. The hour was shortly after breakfast. The golden son of Seleucus Secundus, just beginning to touch the far wall of the enclosed garden which she could see from her window. She had dressed herself carefully, the black hooded cloak of a reverend mother, but it carried the Atreides crest in gold worked into an embroidered ring around the hem and again at the cuff of each sleeve. Jessica arranged the drape of her garment carefully as she turned her back on the window, holding her left arm across her waist to present the hawk motif of the crest. Faridun noted the Atreides symbols, commenting on them as he entered, but he betrayed no anger or surprise. 
She detected subtle humor in his voice and wondered at it. She saw that he had clad himself in the gray leotard which she had suggested. He sat on the low green divan to which she directed him, relaxing with his right arm along the back. Why do I trust her? he wondered. This is a Bene Gesserit witch. Jessica, reading the thought in the contrast between his relaxed body and the expression on his face, smiled and said, You trust me because you know our bargain is a good one, and you want what I can teach you. She saw the pinch of a scowl touch his brow, waved her left hand to calm him. No, I don't read minds. I read the face, the body, the mannerisms, tone of voice, set of arms. Anyone can do this once they learn the Bene Gesserit way. And you will teach me? I'm sure you've studied the reports about us, she said. Is there anywhere a report that we fail to deliver on a direct promise? No reports, but we survive in part by the complete confidence which people can have in our truthfulness. That has not changed. I find this reasonable, he said. I'm anxious to begin. I'm surprised you've never asked the Bene Gesserit for a teacher, she said. They would have leaped at the opportunity to put you in their debt. My mother would never listen to me when I urged her to do this, he said. But now... He shrugged, an eloquent comment on Winsitia's banishment. Shall we start? It would have been better to begin this when you were much younger, Jessica said. It'll be harder for you now, and it'll take much longer. You'll have to begin by learning patience, extreme patience. I pray you'll not find it too high a price. Not for the reward you offer? She heard the sincerity, the pressure of expectations, and the touch of awe in his voice. These formed a place to begin. She said, The art of patience, then starting with some elementary pranabindu exercises for the legs and arms, for your breathing. We'll leave the hands and fingers for later. Are you ready? She seated herself on a stool facing him. Faradun nodded, holding an expectant expression on his face to conceal the sudden onset of fear. Tiakonik had warned him that there must be a trick in the Lady Jessica's offer, something brewed by the sisterhood. You cannot believe that she has abandoned them again or that they have abandoned her. Faridun had stopped the argument with an angry outburst for which he'd been immediately sorry. His emotional reaction had made him agree more quickly with Tiakonik's precautions. Faridun glanced at the corners of the room, the subtle gleam of gems in the coving. All that glittered was not gems. Everything in this room would be recorded, and good minds would review every nuance, every word, every movement. Jessica smiled, noting the direction of his gaze, but not revealing that she knew where his attention had wandered. She said, To learn patience in the Bene Gesserit way, you must begin by recognizing the essential, raw instability of our universe. We call nature meaning this totality in all of its manifestations, the ultimate non-absolute. To free your vision and permit you to recognize this conditional nature's changing ways, you will hold your two hands at arm's length in front of you. Stare at your extended hands, first the palms and then the backs. Examine the fingers, front and back. Do it. Faridun complied, but he felt foolish. These were his own hands. He knew them. Imagine your hands aging, Jessica said. They must grow very old in your eyes, very, very old. 
Notice how dry the skin... My hands don't change, he said. He already could feel the muscles of his upper arms trembling. Continue to stare at your hands. Make them old, as old as you can imagine. It may take time, but when you see them age, reverse the process. Make your hands young again, as young as you can make them. Strive to take them from infancy to great age, at will, back and forth, back and forth. They don't change, he protested. His shoulders ached. If you demand it of your senses, your hands will change, she said. Concentrate upon visualizing the flow of time which you desire, infancy to age, age to infancy. It may take you hours, days, months, but it can be achieved. Reversing that change flow will teach you to see every system as something spinning in relative stability, only relative. I thought I was learning patience. She heard anger in his voice, an edge of frustration. And relative stability, she said. This is the perspective which you create with your own belief, and beliefs can be manipulated by imagination. You've learned only a limited way of looking at the universe. Now you must make the universe your own creation. This will permit you to harness any relative stability to your own uses, to whatever uses you are capable of imagining. How long did you say it takes? Patience, she reminded him. A spontaneous grin touched his lips. His eyes wavered toward her. Look at your hands, she snapped. The grin vanished. His gaze jerked back to a fixated concentration upon his extended hands. What do I do when my arms get tired? he asked. Stop talking and concentrate, she said. If you become too tired, stop. Return to it after a few minutes of relaxation and exercise. You must persist in this until you succeed. At your present stage, this is more important than you could possibly realize. Learn this lesson, or the others will not come. Faridun inhaled a deep breath, chewed his lips, stared at his hands. He turned them slowly, front, back, front, back. His shoulders trembled with fatigue, front, back. Nothing changed. Jessica arose, crossed to the only door. He spoke without moving his attention from his hands. Where are you going? You'll work better on this if you're alone. I'll return in about an hour. Patience. I know. She studied him a moment, how intent he looked. He reminded her with a heart-tugging abruptness of her own lost son. She permitted herself a sigh, said, When I return, I'll give you the exercise lessons to relieve your muscles. Give it time. You'll be astonished at what you can make your body and your senses do. She let herself out. The omnipresent guards took up station three paces behind her as she strode down the hall. Their awe and fear were obvious. They were Sardukar, thrice warned of her prowess, raised on the stories of their defeat by the Fremen of Arrakis. This witch was a Fremen reverend mother, a Bene Gesserit, and an Atreides. Jessica, glancing back, saw their stern faces as a milepost in her design. She turned away as she came to the stairs, went down them, and through a short passage into the garden below her windows. Now if only Duncan and Gurney can do their parts, she thought, as she felt the gravel of a pathway beneath her feet, saw the golden light filtered by greenery.
you will learn the integrated communication methods as you complete the next step in your mental education. This is a Gestalton function which will overlay data paths in your awareness, resolving complexities and masses of input from the Mentat index catalog techniques which you already have mastered. Your initial problem will be the breaking tensions arising from the divergent assembly of minutiae data on specialized subjects. Be warned, without Mentat overlay integration, you can be immersed in the babble problem, which is the label we give to the omnipresent dangers of achieving wrong combinations from accurate information. The Mentat Handbook The sound of fabrics rubbing together sent sparks of awareness through Leto. He was surprised that he had tuned his sensitivity to the point where he automatically identified the fabrics from their sound. The combination came from a Fremen robe rubbing against the coarse hangings of a door curtain. He turned toward the sound. It came from the passage where Namri had gone minutes before. As Leto turned, he saw his captor enter. It was the same man who had taken him prisoner. The same dark strip of skin above the still-suit mask, the identical searing eyes. The man lifted a hand to his mask, slipped the catch-tube from his nostrils, lowered the mask, and in the same motion, flipped his hood back. Even before he focused on the scar of the ink-vine whip along the man's jaw, Leto recognized him. The recognition was a totality in his awareness, with the search for confirming details coming afterward. No mistake about it. This rolling lump of humanity, this warrior troubadour, was Gurney Halleck. Leto clenched his hands into fists, overcome momentarily by the shock of recognition. No Atreides retainer had ever been more loyal, none better at shield-fighting. He'd been Paul's trusted confidant and teacher. He was the Lady Jessica's servant. These recognitions and more surged through Leto's mind. Gurney was his captor. Gurney and Namri were in this conspiracy together, and Jessica's hand was in it with them. I understand you've met our Namri, Halleck said. Pray believe him, young sir. He has one function and one function only. He's the one capable of killing you should the need arise. Leto responded automatically with his father's tones. So you've joined my enemies, Gurney. I never thought the... Try none of your devil tricks on me, lad, Halleck said. I'm proof against them all. I follow your grandmother's orders. Your education has been planned to the last detail. It was she who approved my selection of Namri. What comes next, painful as it may seem, is at her command. And what does she command? Halleck lifted a hand from the folds of his robe, exposed a Fremen injector, primitive but efficient. Its transparent tube was charged with blue fluid. Leto squirmed backward on the cot, was stopped by the rock wall. As he moved, Namri entered, stood beside Halleck with hand on Chris's knife. Together they blocked the only exit. I see you've recognized the spice essence, Halleck said. You're to take the worm trip, lad. You must go through it. Otherwise what your father dared and you dare not would hang over you for the rest of your days. Leto shook his head wordlessly. This was the thing he and Ganima knew could overwhelm them. 
Gurney was an ignorant fool. How could Jessica... Leto felt the father presence in his memories. It surged into his mind, trying to strip away his defences. Leto wanted to shriek outrage, could not move his lips. But this was the wordless thing which his pre-born awareness most feared. This was prescient trance, the reading of immutable future with all of its fixity and its terrors. Surely Jessica could not have ordered such an ordeal for her own grandson. But her presence loomed in his mind, filling him with acceptance arguments. Even the litany of fear was pressed upon him with a repetitive droning. I must not fear. Fear is the mind-killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me, and when it has gone past... With an oath already ancient when Chaldea was young, Leto tried to move, tried to leap at the two men standing over him, but his muscles refused to obey. As though he already existed in the trance, Leto saw Halleck's hand move, the injector approach. The light of a glow globe sparkled within the blue fluid. The injector touched Leto's left arm. Pain lanced through him, shot upward to the muscles of his head. Abruptly, Leto saw a young woman sitting outside a crude hut in dawnlight. She sat right there in front of him, roasting coffee beans to a rose brown, adding carbamum and melange. The voice of a Rebeck echoed from somewhere behind him. The music echoed and echoed until it entered his head, still echoing. It suffused his body and he felt himself to be large, very large, not a child at all and his skin was not his own. He knew that sensation. His skin was not his own. Warmth spread through his body. As abruptly as his first vision, he found himself standing in darkness. It was night. Stars, like a rain of embers, fell in gusts from a brilliant cosmos. Part of him knew there was no escaping, but still he tried to fight it until the Father Presence intruded. I will protect you in the trance. The others within will not take you. Wind tumbled later, rolled him hissing, pouring dust and sand over him, cutting his arms, his face, abrading his clothes, whipping the loose torn ends of now useless fabric. But he felt no pain, and he saw the cuts heal as rapidly as they appeared. Still he rolled with the wind, and his skin was not his own. It will happen he thought. But the thought was distant, and came as though it were not his own, not really his own, no more than his skin. The vision absorbed him. It evolved into a stereologic memory which separated past and present, future and present, future and past. Each separation mingled into a trinocular focus which he sensed as the multidimensional relief map of his own future existence. He thought, time is a measure of space, just as a rangefinder is a measure of space, but measuring locks us into the place we measure. He sensed the trance deepening. It came as an amplification of internal consciousness which his self-identity soaked up and through which he felt himself changing. It was living time, and he could not arrest an instant of it. Memory fragments, future and past, deluged him, but they existed as montage in motion, 
their relationships underwent a constant dance. His memory was a lens, an illuminating searchlight which picked out fragments, isolating them, but forever failing to stop the ceaseless motion and modification which surged into his view. That which he and Ganima had planned came through the searchlight, dominating everything, but now it terrified him. Vision reality ached in him. The uncritical inevitability made his ego cringe. And his skin was not his own. Past and present tumbled through him, surging across the barriers of his terror. He could not separate them. One moment he felt himself setting forth on the Butlerian Jihad, eager to destroy any machine which simulated human awareness. That had to be the past, over and done with. Yet his senses hurtled through the experience, absorbing the most minute details. He heard a minister companion speaking from a pulpit. We must negate the machines that think. Humans must set their own guidelines. This is not something machines can do. Reasoning depends upon programming, not on hardware, and we are the ultimate program. He heard the voice clearly, knew his surroundings, a vast wooden hall with dark windows. Light came from sputtering flames, and his minister companion said, Our jihad is a dump program. We dump the things which destroy us as humans. And it was in Leto's mind that the speaker had been a servant of computers, one who knew them and serviced them. But the scene vanished, and Ganima stood in front of him, saying, Gurney knows. He told me. They're Duncan's words, and Duncan was speaking as a mentat. In doing good, avoid notoriety. In doing evil, avoid self-awareness. That had to be the future, far future. But he felt the reality. It was as intense as any past from his multitude of lives, and he whispered, Isn't that true, Father? But the Father Presence within spoke warningly. Don't invite disaster. You're learning stroboscopic awareness now. Without it, you could overrun yourself, lose your placemark in time. And the bas-relief imagery persisted. Intrusions hammered at him, past, present, now. There was no true separation. He knew he had to flow with this thing, but the flowing terrified him. How could he return to any recognizable place? Yet he felt himself being forced to cease every effort of resistance. He could not grasp his new universe in motionless, labelled bits. No bit would stand still. Things could not be forever ordered and formulated. He had to find the rhythm of change and see between the changes to the changing itself. Without knowing where it began, he found himself moving within a gigantic moment bienheureux, able to see the past in the future, present in past, the now in both past and future. It was the accumulation of centuries experienced between one heartbeat and the next. Later's awareness floated free, no objective psyche to compensate for consciousness, no barriers. Namri's provisional future remained lightly in his memory, but it shared awareness with many futures. And in this shattering awareness, all of his past, every inner life became his own. With the help of the greatest within him, he dominated. They were his. He thought, when you study an object from a distance, only its principle may be seen. 
He had achieved the distance, and he could see his own life now. The multi-past and its memories were his burden, his joy, and his necessity. But the worm trip had added another dimension, and his father no longer stood guard within him because the need no longer existed. Leto saw through the distances clearly, past and present, and the past presented him with an ultimate ancestor, one who was called Harum, and without whom the distant future would not be. These clear distances provided new principles, new dimensions of sharing. Whichever life he now chose, he'd live it out in an autonomous sphere of mass experience, a trail of lives so convoluted that no single lifetime could count the generations of it. Aroused, this mass experience held the power to subdue his selfdom. It could make itself felt upon an individual, a nation, a society, or an entire civilization. That, of course, was why Gurney had been taught to fear him, why Namri's knife waited. They could not be allowed to see this power within him. No one could ever see it in its fullness, not even Ganima. Presently, Leto sat up, saw that only Namri remained, watching. In an old voice, Leto said, There's no single set of limits for all men. Universal prescience is an empty myth. Only the most powerful local currents of time may be foretold. But in an infinite universe, a local can be so gigantic that your mind shrinks from it. Namri shook his head, not understanding. Where's Gurney? Leto asked. He left, lest he have to watch me slay you. Will you slay me, Namri? It was almost a plea to have the man do it. Namri took his hand from his knife. Since you ask me to do it, I will not. If you were indifferent, though. The malady of indifference is what destroys many things, Plato said. He nodded to himself. Yes, even civilizations die of it. It's as though that were the price demanded for achieving new levels of complexity or consciousness. He looked up at Namri. So they told you to look for indifference in me. And he saw Namri was more than a killer. Namri was devious. As a sign of unbridled power, Namri said. But it was a lie. Indifferent power, yes. Plato sat up, sighed deeply. There was no moral grandeur to my father's life, Namri, only a local trap which he built for himself. O Paul, thou Muad'Dib, Mahdi of all men, thy breath exhaled, sent forth the Hurisen. Songs of Muad'Dib Never, Ganima said, I'd kill him on our wedding night. She spoke with a barbed stubbornness which thus far had resisted all blandishments. Alia and her advisers had been at it half the night, keeping the royal quarters in a state of unrest, sending out for new advisers for food and drink. The entire temple and its adjoining keep seethed with the frustrations of unmade decisions. Ganima sat composedly on a green floater chair in her own quarters, a large room with rough tan walls to simulate Sietch rock. 
The ceiling, however, was imbar crystal, which flickered with blue light and the floor was black tile. The furnishings were sparse, a small writing table, five floater chairs and a narrow cot set into an alcove, Fremen fashion. Ganima wore a robe of yellow mourning. You are not a free person who can settle every aspect of her own life, Alia said, for perhaps the hundredth time. The little fool must come to realize this sooner or later. She must approve the betrothal to Faridun. She must. Let her kill him later, but the betrothal requires open acknowledgement by the Fremen affianced. He killed my brother, Ganima said, holding to the single note which sustained her. Everyone knows this. Fremen would spit at the mention of my name were I to consent to this betrothal. And that is one of the reasons why you must consent, Alia thought. She said, his mother did it. He has banished her for it. What more do you want of him? His blood, Ganima said. He's a Carino. He has denounced his own mother, Alia protested. And why should you worry about the Fremen rabble? They'll accept whatever we tell them to accept. Gani, the peace of the empire demands that... I will not consent, Ganima said. You cannot announce the betrothal without me. Irulan, entering the room as Ganima spoke, glanced inquiringly at Alia and the two female advisers who stood dejectedly beside her. Irulan saw Alia throw up her arms in disgust and drop into a chair facing Ganima. You speak to her, Irulan, Alia said. Irulan pulled a floater into place, sat down beside Alia. You're Carino, Irulan, Ganima said. Don't press your luck with me. Ganima got up, crossed to her cot and sat on it cross-legged, glaring back at the woman. Irulan, she saw, had dressed in a black armor to match Alia's, the hood thrown back to reveal her golden hair. It was morning hair under the yellow glow of the floating globes which illuminated the room. Irulan glanced at Alia, stood up, and crossed to stand facing Ganima. Gani, I'd kill him myself if that were the way to solve matters, and Faradun's my own blood, as you so kindly emphasized. But you have duties far higher than your commitment to Fremen. That doesn't sound any better coming from you than it does from my precious aunt, Ganima said. The blood of a brother cannot be washed off. That's more than some little Fremen aphorism. Irulan pressed her lips together. Then, Faridun holds your grandmother captive. He holds Duncan, and if we don't... I'm not satisfied with your stories of how all this happened, Ganima said, peering past Irulan at Alia. Once Duncan died rather than let enemies take my father. Perhaps this new Gola flesh is no longer the same as... Duncan was charged with protecting your grandmother's life, Alia said, whirling in her chair. I'm confident he chose the only way to do that. And she thought, Duncan, Duncan, you weren't supposed to do it this way. Ganima, reading the overtones of contrivance in Alia's voice, stared across at her aunt. You're lying, a womb of heaven. I've heard about your fight with my grandmother. What is it you fear to tell us about her and your precious Duncan? You've heard it all. Alia said, but she felt a stab of fear at this bald accusation and what it implied. Fatigue had made her careless, she realized. She arose, said, Everything I know, you know, turning to Irulan. You work on her. She must be made to, Ganima interrupted with a coarse Fremen expletive which came shockingly from the immature lips. 
Into the quick silence she said, You think me just a mere child, that you have years in which to work on me, that eventually I'll accept. Think again, O heavenly regent. You know better than anyone the years I have within me. I'll listen to them, not to you. Alia barely suppressed an angry retort, stared hard at Ganima. Abomination? Who was this child? A new fear of Ganima began to rise in Alia. Had she accepted her own compromise with the lives which came to her pre-born? Alia said, There's time yet for you to see reason. There may be time yet for me to see Faradun's blood spurt around my knife, Ganima said. Depend on it. If I'm ever left alone with him, one of us will surely die. You think you loved your brother more than I? Irulan demanded. You play a fool's game. I was mother to him as I was to you. I was... You never knew him, Ganima said. All of you, except at times my beloved aunt, persist in thinking us children. You're the fools. Aliyah knows. Look at her run away from... I run from nothing, Aliyah said. But she turned her back on Irulan and Ganima and stared at the two Amazons who were pretending not to hear this argument. They'd obviously given up on Ganima. Perhaps they sympathized with her. Angrily, Alia sent them from the room. Relief was obvious on their faces as they obeyed. You run, Ganima persisted. I've chosen a way of life which suits me, Alia said, turning back to stare at Ganima sitting cross-legged on the cot. Was it possible she'd made that terrible inner compromise? Alia tried to see the signs of it in Ganima, but was unable to read a single betrayal. Alia wondered then, has she seen it in me? But how could she? You feared to be the window for a multitude, Ganima accused. But we're the pre-born, and we know. You'll be their window, conscious or unconscious. You cannot deny them. And she thought, yes, I know you, abomination. And perhaps I'll go as you have gone. But for now I can only pity you and despise you. Silence hung between Ganima and Alia, an almost palpable thing which alerted the Bene Gesserit training in Irulan. She glanced from one to the other, then, Why are you so quiet, suddenly? I've just had a thought which requires considerable reflection, Alia said. Reflect at your leisure, dear aunt, Ganima sneered. Alia, putting down fatigue-inflamed anger, said, Enough for now. Leave her to think. Perhaps she'll come to her senses. Irulan arose, said, It's almost dawn anyway. Gani, before we go, would you care to hear the latest message from Faradun? He- I would not, Ganima said, and hereafter cease calling me by that ridiculous diminutive, Gani. It merely supports the mistaken assumption that I'm a child you can- Why'd you and Alia grow so suddenly quiet? Irulan asked, reverting to her previous question, but casting it now in a delicate mode of voice. Ganima threw her head back in laughter. Irulan, you try voice on me? What? Irulan was taken aback. You teach your grandmother to suck eggs, Ganima said. I'd what? The fact that I remember the expression, and you've never even heard it before, should give you pause, Ganima said. It was an old expression of scorn when you Bene Gesserit were young. 
But if that doesn't chasten you, ask yourself what your royal parents could have been thinking of when they named you Irulan. Or is it Ruinal? In spite of her training, Irulan flushed. You're trying to goad me, Ganima. And you tried to use voice on me. On me! I remember the first human efforts in that direction. I remember then, ruinous Irulan. Now get out of here, all of you! Baralia was intrigued now, caught by an inner suggestion which sloughed her fatigue aside. She said, Perhaps I've a suggestion which could change your mind, Gunny. Still Gunny! A brittle laugh escaped Ganima. Then, Reflect but a moment. If I desire to kill Faridun, I need but fall in with your plans. I presume you've thought of that? Beware of Gunny in a tractable mood. You see, I'm being utterly candid with you. That's what I hoped, Alia said. If you... The blood of a brother cannot be washed away, Ganima said. I'll not go before my Fremen loved ones a traitor to that. Never to forgive. Never to forget. Isn't that our catechism? I warn you here, and I'll say it publicly. You cannot betroth me to Faridun. Who, knowing me, would believe it? Faridun himself could not believe it. Fremen, hearing of such a betrothal, would laugh into their sleeves and say, See, she lures him into a trap. If you... I understand that, Alia said, moving to Irulan's side. Irulan, she noted, was standing in shocked silence, aware already of where this conversation was headed. And so I would be luring him into a trap, Ganima said. If that's what you want, I'll agree, but he may not fall. If you wish this false betrothal as the empty coin with which to buy back my grandmother and your precious Duncan, so be it. But it's on your head. Buy them back. Faridun, though, is mine. Him I'll kill. Irulan whirled to face Alia before she could speak. Alia, if we go back on our word. She let it hang there a moment, while Alia smilingly reflected on the potential wrath among the great houses in Falfreluce's assembled, the destructive consequences to believe in Atreides' honour, the loss of religious trust, all of the great and small building blocks which would tumble. It'd rule against us, Irulan protested. All belief in Paul's prophethood would be destroyed. It, the Empire... Who could dare question our right to decide what is wrong and what is right? Alia asked, voice mild. We mediate between good and evil. I need but proclaim. You can't do this, Irulan protested. Paul's memory is just another tool of church and state, Ganima said. Don't speak foolishness, Irulan. Ganima touched the Chris knife at her waist, looked up at Alia. I've misjudged my clever aunt, regent of all that's holy in Muad'Dib's empire. I have indeed misjudged you. Lure Faridun into our parlour, if you will. This is recklessness, Irulan pleaded. You agree to this betrothal, Ganima? Alia asked, ignoring Irulan. On my terms, Ganima said, hand still on her chris knife. I wash my hands of this. Irulan said, actually wringing her hands. I was willing to argue for a true betrothal. To heal? We'll give you a wound much more difficult to heal, Alia and I, Ganima said. Bring him quickly if he'll come, and perhaps he will. 
Would he suspect a child of my tender years? Let us plan the formal ceremony of betrothal to require his presence. Let there be an opportunity for me to be alone with him, just a minute or two. Irulan shuddered at this evidence that Ganima was, after all, Fremen entire, child no different from adult in this terrible bloodiness. After all, Fremen children were accustomed to slay the wounded on the battlefield, releasing women from this chore that they might collect the bodies and haul them away to the death stills. And Ganima, speaking with the voice of a Fremen child, piled horror upon horror by the studied maturity of her words, by the ancient sense of vendetta which hung like an aura around her. Done, Alia said, and she fought to keep voice and face from betraying her glee. We'll prepare the formal charter of the betrothal. We'll have the signatures witnessed by the proper assemblage from the great houses. Faridun cannot possibly doubt. He'll doubt, but he'll come, Ganima said, and he'll have guards. But will they think to guard him from me? For the love of all that Paul tried to do, Irulan protested, let us at least make Faridun's death appear an accident, or the result of malice by outside. I'll take joy in displaying my bloody knife to my brethren, Ganima said. Alia, I beg you, Irulan said. Abandon this rash insanity, declare calmly against Faridun anything to— We don't require formal declaration of vendetta against him, Ganima said. The whole empire knows how we must feel. She pointed to the sleeve of her robe. We wear the yellow of mourning when I exchange it for the black of a Fremen betrothed. Will that fool anyone? Pray that it fools Faridun, Alia said, and the delegates of the great houses we invite to witness the— Every one of those delegates will turn against you, Irulan said. You know that. Excellent point, Ganima said. Choose those delegates with care, Alia. They must be ones we won't mind eliminating later. Irulan threw up her arms in despair, turned, and fled. Have her put under close surveillance, lest she try to warn her nephew, Ganima said. Don't try to teach me how to conduct a plot. Alia said. She turned and followed Irulan, but at a slower pace. The guards outside and the waiting aides were sucked up in her wake like sand particles drawn into the vortex of a rising worm. Ganima shook her head sadly from side to side as the door closed, thought, It's as poor Leto and I thought. Gods below, I wish it had been me the tiger killed instead of him. Many forces sought control of the Atreides twins, and when the death of Leto was announced, this movement of plot and counterplot was amplified. Note the relative motivations. The sisterhood feared Alia, an adult abomination, but still wanted those genetic characteristics carried by the Atreides. The church hierarchy of Alkaf and Hajj saw only the power implicit in control of Muad'Dib's heir. Chom wanted a doorway to the wealth of Dune. Faradun and his Sadukar sought a return to glory for House Corino. The Spacing Guild feared the equation Arrakis equals Melange. Without the spice, they could not navigate. Jessica wished to repair what her disobedience to the Bene Gesserit had created. Few thought to ask the twins what their plans might be. 
until it was too late. The Book of Krios Shortly after the evening meal, Later saw a man walking past the arched doorway to his chamber, and his mind went with the man. The passage had been left open, and Leto had seen some activity out there, spice hampers being wheeled past, three women with the obvious off-world sophistication of dress which marked them as smugglers. This man who took Leto's mind walking might have been no different except that he moved like Stilgar, a much younger Stilgar. It was a peculiar walk his mind took, Time filled Leto's awareness like a stellar globe. He could see infinite time spaces, but he had to press into his own future before knowing in which moment his flesh lay. His multifaceted memory lives surged and receded, but they were his now. They were like waves on a beach, but if they rose too high, he could command them and they would retreat, leaving the royal harem behind. Now and again he would listen to those memory lives. One would rise like a prompter, poking its head up out of the stage and calling cues for his behavior. His father came during the mind walk and said, You are a child seeking to be a man. When you are a man you will seek in vain for the child you were. All the while he felt his body being plagued by the fleas and lice of an old siege poorly maintained. None of the attendants who brought his heavily spice-laced food appeared bothered by the creatures. Did these people have immunity from such things? Or was it only that they had lived with them so long they could ignore discomfort? Who were these people assembled around Gurney? How had they come to this place? Was this Jakorutu? His multi-memories produced answers he did not like. They were ugly people, and Gurney was the ugliest. Perfection floated here, though dormant and waiting beneath an ugly surface. Part of him knew he remained spice-bound, held in bondage by the heavy dosages of melange in every meal. His child's body wanted to rebel while her persona raved with the immediate presence of memories carried over from thousands of eons. His mind returned from its walk, and he wondered if his body had really stayed behind. Spice confused the senses. He felt the pressures of self-limitations piling up against him like the long barracan dunes of the bled, slowly building themselves a ramp against a desert cliff. One day a few trickles of sand would flow over the cliff, then more and more and more, and only the sand would remain exposed to the sky. But the cliff would still be there underneath. I'm still within the trance, he thought. He knew he would come soon to a branching of life and death. His captors kept sending him back into the spice thraldom, unsatisfied with his responses at every return. Always treacherous Namri waited there with his knife. Leto knew countless pasts and futures, but he had yet to learn what would satisfy Namri, or Gurney Halleck. They wanted something outside of the visions. The life and death branching lured Leto. His life, he knew, would have to possess some inner meaning which carried it above the vision circumstances. Thinking of this demand, he felt that his inner awareness was his true being, and his outer existence was the trance. This terrified him. He did not want to go back to the Sietch with its fleas, its Namri, its Gurney Halleck. I'm a coward, he thought. But a coward, even a coward, 
might die bravely with nothing but a gesture? Where was that gesture which could make him whole once more? How could he awaken from trance and vision into the universe which Gurney demanded? Without that turning, without an awakening from aimless visions, he knew he could die in a prison of his own choosing. In this he had at last come to cooperate with his captors. Somewhere he had to find wisdom, an inner balance which would reflect upon the universe and return to him an image of calm strength. Only then might he seek his golden path and survive the skin which was not his own. Someone was playing the baliset out there in the Sietch. Later felt that his body probably heard the music in the present. He sensed the cot beneath his back. He could hear music. It was Gurney at the baliset. No other fingers could quite compare with his mastery of that most difficult instrument. He played an old Fremen song, one called a hadith, because of its internal narrative and the voice which invoked those patterns required for survival on Arrakis. The song told the story of human occupations within a siege. Leto felt the music move him through a marvellous ancient cavern. He saw women trampling spice residue for fuel, curding the spice for fermentation, forming spice fabrics. Melange was everywhere in the siege. Those moments came when Leto could not distinguish between the music and the people of the cavern vision. The whine and slap of a power loom was the whine and slap of the baliset, but his inner eyes beheld fabrics of human hair, the long fur of mutated rats, threads of desert cotton, and strips curled from the skin of birds. He saw a siege school. The eco-language of Dune raged through his mind on its wings of music. He saw the sun-powered kitchen, the long chamber where still suits were made and maintained. He saw weather forecasters reading the sticks they'd brought in from the sand. Somewhere during this journey, someone brought him food and spooned it into his mouth, holding his head up with a strong arm. He knew this as a real-time sensation, but the marvellous play of motion continued within him. As though it came in the next instant after the spice-laden food, he saw the hurtling of a sandstorm. Moving images within the sand breath became the golden reflections of a moth's eyes, and his own life was reduced to the vicious trail of a crawling insect. Words from the Panoplia Prophetica raved through him. It is said that there is nothing firm, nothing balanced, nothing durable in all the universe, that nothing remains in its state, that each day, sometime each hour, brings change. The old Missionaria Protectiva knew what they were doing, he thought. They knew about terrible purposes. They knew how to manipulate people and religions. Even my father didn't escape them, not in the end. There lay the clue he'd been seeking. Leto studied it. He felt strength flowing back into his flesh. His entire multifaceted being turned over and looked out upon the universe. He sat up and found himself alone in the gloomy cell with only the light from the outer passage where the man had walked past and taken his mind an eon ago. Good fortune to us all, he called in the traditional Fremen way. Gurney Halleck appeared in the arched doorway, his head a black silhouette against the light from the outer passage. Bring light, Leto said. You wish to be tested further? Leto laughed. 
No, it's my turn to test you. We shall see. Halleck turned away, returning in a moment with a bright blue glow globe in the crook of his left elbow. He released it in the cell, allowing it to drift above their heads. Where's Namri? Plato asked. Just outside, where I can call him. Ah, old father eternity always waits patiently, Plato said. He felt curiously released, poised on the edge of discovery. You call Namri by the name reserved for Shai Hulud? Halleck asked. His knife's a worm's tooth, Leto said. Thus he's old father eternity. Halleck smiled grimly, but remained silent. You still wait to pass judgment on me, Leto said, and there's no way to exchange information, I'll admit, without making judgments. You can't ask the universe to be exact, though. A rustling sound behind Halleck alerted Leto to Namri's approach. He stopped half a pace to Halleck's left. Ah, the left hand of the damned, Leto said. It's not wise to joke about the infinite and the absolute, Namri growled. He glanced sideways at Halleck. Are you God, Namri, that you invoke absolutes? Leto asked. But he kept his attention on Halleck. Judgment would come from there. Both men merely stared at him without answering. Every judgment teeters on the brink of error, Leto explained. To claim absolute knowledge is to become monstrous. Knowledge is an unending adventure at the edge of uncertainty. What word game is this you play? Halleck demanded. Let him speak, Namri said. It's the game Namri initiated with me. Leto said, and saw the old Fremen's head nod agreement. He'd certainly recognized the riddle game. Our senses always have at least two levels, Leto said. Trivia and message, Namri said. Excellent, Leto said. You gave me trivia. I give you message. I see. I hear. I detect odors. I touch. I feel changes in temperature, taste. I sense the passage of time. I may take emotive samples. Ah, I am happy. You see, Gurney, Namri, there's no mystery about a human life. It's not a problem to be solved, but a reality to be experienced. You try our patience, lad, Namri said. Is this the place where you wish to die? But Halleck put out a restraining hand. First, I am not a lad. Leto said. He made the first sign at his right ear. You'll not slay me. I've placed a water burden upon you. Namri drew his Chris knife half out of its sheath. I owe you nothing. But God created Arrakis to train the faithful, Leto said. I've not only shown you my faith, I've made you conscious of your own existence. Life requires dispute. You've been made to know by me that your reality differs from all others. Thus, you know you're alive. Irreverence is a dangerous game to play with me, Namri said. He held his Chris knife half-drawn. Irreverence is a most necessary ingredient of religion, Leto said, not to speak of its importance in philosophy. Irreverence is the only way left to us for testing our universe. So you think you understand the universe? Halleck asked and he opened a space between himself and Namri. 
Yes, Namri said, and there was death in his voice. The universe can be understood only by the wind, Leto said. There's no mighty seat of reason which dwells within the brain. Creation is discovery. God discovered us in the void because we moved against a background which he already knew. The wall was blank. Then there was movement. You play hide-and-seek with death, Halleck warned. But you are both my friends, Leto said. He faced Namri. When you offer a candidate as friend of your Sietch, do you not slay a hawk and an eagle as the offering? And is this not the response? God send each man at his end such hawks, such eagles, and such friends. Namri's hand slid from his knife. The blade slipped back into its sheath. He stared, wide-eyed at Leto. Each Sietch kept its friendship ritual secret, yet here was a selected part of the rite. Halleck, though, asked, Is this place your end? I know what you need to hear from me, Gurney, Leto said, watching the play of hope and suspicion across the ugly face. Leto touched his own breast. This child was never a child. My father lives within me, but he is not me. You loved him, and he was a gallant human whose affairs beat upon high shores. His intent was to close down the cycle of wars, but he reckoned without the movement of infinity as expressed by life. That's Rajya. Namri knows. Its movement can be seen by any mortal. Beware paths which narrow future possibilities. Such paths divert you from infinity into lethal traps. What is it I need to hear from you? Halleck asked. He's just word-playing, Namri said, but his voice carried deep hesitation. Doubts. I ally myself with Namri against my father, Leto said, and my father within allies himself with us against what was made of him. Why? Halleck demanded. Because it's the amor fati which I bring to humankind, the act of ultimate self-examination. In this universe, I choose to ally myself against any force which brings humiliation upon humankind. Gurney, Gurney, you were not born and raised in the desert. Your flesh doesn't know the truth of which I speak, but Namri knows. In the open land, one direction is as good as another. I still have not heard what I must hear, Halleck snarled. He speaks for war and against peace, Namri said. No, Leto said, nor did my father speak against war. But look what was made of him. Peace has only one meaning in this imperium. It's the maintenance of a single way of life. You are commanded to be contented. Life must be uniform on all planets as it is in the imperial government. The major object of priestly study is to find the correct forms of human behavior. For this they go to the words of Muad'Dib. Tell me, Namri, are you content? No. The words came out flat, spontaneous rejection. Then do you blaspheme? Of course not. But you aren't contented. You see, Gurney, Namri proves it to us. Every question, every problem doesn't have a single correct answer. One must permit diversity. 
a monolith is unstable, then why do you demand a single correct statement from me? Is that to be the measure of your monstrous judgment? Will you force me to have you slain? Halleck asked, and there was agony in his voice. No, I'll have pity upon you, Plato said. Send word to my grandmother that I'll cooperate. The sisterhood may come to regret my cooperation, but an Atreides gives his word. A truth-sayer should test that, Namri said. These Atreides. He'll have his chance to say before his grandmother what must be said, Halleck said. He nodded with his head toward the passage. Namri paused before leaving, glanced at Leto. I pray we do the right thing in leaving him alive. Go, friends, Leto said. Go and reflect. As the two men departed, Leto threw himself onto his back, feeling the cold cot against his spine. Movement sent his head spinning over the edge of his spice-burdened consciousness. In that instant, he saw the entire planet, every village, every town, every city, the desert places and the planted places. All of the shapes which smashed against his vision bore intimate relationships to a mixture of elements within themselves and without. He saw the structures of imperial society reflected in physical structures of its planets and their communities. Like a gigantic unfolding within him, he saw this revelation for what it must be, a window into the society's invisible parts. Seeing this, Leto realized that every system had such a window, even the system of himself and his universe. He began peering into windows, a cosmic voyeur. This was what his grandmother and the sisterhood sought. He knew it. His awareness flowed on a new, higher level. He felt the past carried in his cells, in his memories, in the archetypes which haunted his assumptions, in the myths which hemmed him, in his languages and their prehistoric detritus. It was all of the shapes out of his human and non-human past, all of the lives which he now commanded, all integrated in him at last. And he felt himself as a thing caught up in the ebb and flow of nucleotides. Against the backdrop of infinity, he was a protozoan creature in which birth and death were virtually simultaneous, but he was both infinite and protozoan, a creature of molecular memories. We humans are a form of colony organism, he thought. They wanted his cooperation. Promising cooperation had won him another reprieve from Namri's knife. By summoning to cooperation, they sought to recognize a healer. And he thought, But I'll not bring them social order in the way they expect it. A grimace contorted Leto's mouth. He knew he'd not be as unconsciously malevolent as was his father. Despotism at one terminal and slavery at the other. But this universe might pray for those good old days. His father within spoke to him then, cautiously probing, unable to demand attention but pleading for audience, and Leto answered, No, we will give them complexities to occupy their minds. There are many modes of flight from danger. How will they know I'm dangerous unless they experience me for thousands of years? Yes. Father within, we'll give them question marks.
There is no guilt or innocence in you. All of that is past. Guilt belabors the dead, and I am not the iron hammer. You multitude of the dead are merely people who have done certain things, and the memory of those things illuminates my path. Later the second, to his memory lives, after Hark Aladar. It moves of itself, Faradun said, and his voice was barely a whisper. He stood above the Lady Jessica's bed, a brace of guards close behind him. The Lady Jessica had propped herself up in the bed. She was clad in a parasilk gown of shimmering white with a matching band around her copper hair. Faridun had come bursting in upon her moments before. He wore the grey leotard and his face was sweaty with excitement and the exertions of his dash through the palace corridors. What time is it? Jessica asked. Time? Faridun appeared puzzled. One of the guards spoke up. It is the third hour past midnight, my lady. The guard glanced fearfully at Faridun. The young prince had come dashing through the night-lighted corridors, picking up startled guards in his wake. But it moves, Faridun said. He held out his left hand, then his right. I saw my own hands shrink into chubby fists, and I remembered. They were my hands when I was an infant, remembered being an infant. But it was a clearer memory. I was reorganizing my old memories. Very good, Jessica said. His excitement was infectious. And what happened when your hands became old? My mind was sluggish, he said. I felt an ache in my back, right here. He touched a place over his left kidney. You've learned a most important lesson, Jessica said. Do you know what that lesson is? He dropped his hands to his sides, stared at her. Then, my mind controls my reality. His eyes glittered and he repeated it, louder this time. My mind controls my reality. This is the beginning of Pranabindu balance, Jessica said. It is only the beginning, though. What do I do next? he asked. My lady, the guard who had answered her question, ventured now to interrupt. The hour, he said. Aren't there spy posts manned at this hour? Jessica wondered. She said, Be gone, we have work to do. But my lady, the guard said, and he looked fearfully from Faridun to Jessica and back. You think I'm going to seduce him? Jessica asked. The man stiffened. Faridun laughed, a joyous outburst. He waved a hand in dismissal. You heard her. Be gone. The guards looked at each other, but they obeyed. Faridun sat on the edge of her bed. What next? He shook his head. I wanted to believe you, yet I did not believe. Then it was as though my mind melted. I was tired. My mind gave up its fighting against you. It happened, just like that he snapped his fingers. It was not me that your mind fought against, Jessica said. Of course not, he admitted. I was fighting against myself, all the nonsense I've learned. What next now? Jessica smiled. I confess I didn't expect you to succeed this rapidly. It's been only eight days, and I was patient, he said, grinning. And you've begun to learn patience too, she said. Begun? 
You've just crept over the lip of this learning, she said. Now you're truly an infant. Before, you were only a potential, not even born. The corners of his mouth drew down. Don't be so gloomy, she said. You've done it. That's important. How many can say they were born anew? What comes next? he insisted. You will practice this thing you've learned, she said. I want you able to do this at will, easily. Later you'll find a new place in your awareness which this has opened. It will be filled by the ability to test any reality against your own demands. Is that all I do now? Practice the— No. Now you can begin the muscle training. Tell me, can you move the little toe on your left foot without moving any other muscle of your body? My— She saw a distant expression come over his face as he tried to move the toe. He looked down at his foot presently, staring at it. Sweat broke out on his forehead. A deep breath escaped him. I can't do it. Yes, you can, she said. You will learn to do it. You will learn every muscle in your body. You will know these muscles the way you know your hands. He swallowed hard at the magnitude of this prospect. Then, what are you doing to me? What is your plan for me? I intend to turn you loose upon the universe, she said. You will become whatever it is you most deeply desire. He mulled this for a moment. Whatever I desire? Yes, that's impossible. Unless you learn to control your desires the way you control your reality, she said. And she thought, there, let his analysts examine that. They'll advise cautious approval, but Faraden will move a step closer to realization of what I'm really doing. He proved his surmise by saying, It's one thing to tell a person he'll realize his heart's desire. It's another thing to actually deliver that realization. You've come farther than I thought, Jessica said. Very good. I promise you, if you complete this program of learning, you'll be your own man. Whatever you do, it'll be because that's what you want to do. And let a truth-sayer try to pry that apart, she thought. He stood up, but the expression he bent upon her was warm, a sense of camaraderie in it. You know, I believe you. Damned if I know why, but I do. And I won't say a word about the other things I'm thinking. Jessica watched his retreating back as he let himself out of her bedchamber. She turned off the glow globes, lay back. This Faradon was a deep one. He'd as much as told her that he was beginning to see her design, but he was joining her conspiracy of his own volition. Wait until he begins to learn his own emotions, she thought. With that, she composed herself for the return to sleep. The morrow, she knew, would be plagued by casual encounters with palace personnel asking seemingly innocuous questions. Humankind periodically goes through a speed-up of its affairs, thereby experiencing the race between the renewable vitality of the living and the beckoning vitiation of decadence. In this periodic race, any pause becomes luxury. Only then can one reflect that all is permitted, all is possible. The Apocrypha of Muad'Dib
The touch of sand is important, Leto told himself. He could feel the grit beneath him where he sat beneath a brilliant sky. They had force-fed him another heavy dosage of melange, and Leto's mind turned upon itself like a whirlpool. An unanswered question lay deep within the funnel of the whirlpool. Why do they insist that I say it? Gurney was stubborn, no doubt of that, and he'd had his orders from his Lady Jessica. They brought him out of the Sietch into the daylight for this lesson. He had the strange sensation that he'd let his body take the short trip from the Sietch while his inner being mediated a battle between the Duke Leto I and the old Baron Harkonnen. They'd fought within him, through him, because he would not let them communicate directly. The fight had taught him what had happened to Alia. Poor Alia. I was right to fear the spice trip, he thought. A welling bitterness toward the Lady Jessica filled him. Her damned Gomjabar. Fight it and win or die in the attempt. She couldn't put a poisoned needle against his neck, but she could send him into the valley of peril which had claimed her own daughter. Snuffling sounds intruded upon his awareness. They wavered, growing louder, then softer. Louder, softer. There was no way for him to determine whether they had current reality or came from the spice. Leto's body sagged over his folded arms. He felt hot sand through his buttocks. There was a rug directly in front of him, but he sat on open sand. A shadow lay across the rug. Namri. Leto stared into the muddy pattern of the rug, feeling bubbles ripple there. His awareness drifted on its own current through a landscape which stretched out to a horizon of shock-headed greenery. His skull thrummed with drums. He felt heat, fever. The fever was a pressure of burning which filled his senses, crowding out awareness of flesh until he could only feel the moving shadows of his peril. Namri and the knife. Pressure. Pressure. Leto lay at last suspended between sky and sand, his mind lost to all but the fever. Now he waited for something to happen, sensing that any occurrence would be a first and only thing. Hot, hot, pounding sunshine crashed brilliantly around him, without tranquility, without remedy. Where is my golden path? Everywhere bugs crawled, everywhere. My skin is not my own. He sent messages along his nerves, waited out the dragging other person responses. Up head, he told his nerves. A head, which might have been his own, crept upward, looked out at patches of blankness in the bright light. Someone whispered, He's deep into it now. No answer. Burn. Fire. Sun, building heat on heat. Slowly, outbending, the current of his awareness took him drifting through a last screen of green blankness, and there, across low folding dunes, distant no more than a kilometre beyond the stretched out chalk line of a cliff, there lay the green burgeoning future, upflung, flowing into endless green, green swelling, green, green, moving outward endlessly. 
In all of that green, there was not one great worm. Riches of wild growth, but nowhere Shai Hulud. Later sensed that he had ventured across old boundaries into a new land, which only the imagination had witnessed, and that he looked now directly through the very next veil which a yawning humankind called unknown. It was bloodthirsty reality. He felt the red fruit of his life swaying on a limb, fluid slipping away from him, and the fluid was the spice essence flowing through his veins. Without Shai Hulud, no more spice. He had seen a future without the great grey worm serpent of Dune. He knew this, yet could not tear himself from the trance to rail against such a passage. Abruptly his awareness plunged back, 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 away from such a deadly future. His thoughts went into his bowels, becoming primitive, moved only by intense emotions. He found himself unable to focus on any particular aspect of his vision or his surroundings, but there was a voice within him. It spoke an ancient language and he understood it perfectly. The voice was musical and lilting but its words bludgeoned him. It is not the present which influences the future, thou fool, but the future which forms the present. You have it all backward. Since the future is set, an unfolding of events which will assure that future is fixed and inevitable. The words transfixed him. He felt terror rooted in the heavy matter of his body. By this he knew his body still existed, but the reckless nature and enormous power of his vision left him feeling contaminated, defenseless, unable to signal a muscle and gain its obedience. He knew he was submitting more and more to the onslaught of those collective lives whose memories once had made him believe he was real. Fear filled him. He thought that he might be losing the inner command, falling at last into abomination. Leto felt his body twisting in terror. He had come to depend upon his victory and the newly won benevolent cooperation of those memories. They had turned against him, all of them, even Royal Harum, whom he'd trusted. He lay shimmering on a surface which had no roots, unable to give any expression to his own life. He tried to concentrate upon a mental picture of himself, was confronted by overlapping frames, each a different age, infant into doddering ancient. He recalled his father's early training. Let the hands grow young, then old. But his whole body was immersed now in this lost reality, and the entire image progression melted into other faces, the features of those who had given him their memories. A diamond thunderbolt shattered him. Leto felt pieces of his awareness drifting apart, yet he retained a sense of himself somewhere between being and non-being. Hope quickening, he felt his body breathing. In. Out. He took in a deep breath. Yin. He let it out. Yang. Somewhere just beyond his grasp lay a place of supreme independence, a victory over all the confusions inherent in his multitude of lives, no false sense of command but a true victory. He knew his previous mistake now. He had sought power in the reality of his trance, choosing that rather than face the fears which he and Ganima had fed in each other. Fear defeated Alia. 
But the seeking after power spread another trap, diverting him into fantasy. He saw the illusion. The entire illusion process rotated half a turn, and now he knew a centre from which he could watch, without purpose, the flight of his visions, of his inner lives. Elation flooded him. It made him want to laugh, but he denied himself this luxury, knowing it would bar the doors of memory. Ah, my memories, he thought. I have seen your illusion. You no longer invent the next moment for me. You merely show me how to create new moments. I'll not lock myself on the old tracks. This thought passed through his awareness as though wiping a surface clean, and in its wake he felt his entire body, an Einfall which reported in most minute detail on every cell, every nerve. He entered a state of intense quiet. In this quiet he heard voices, knowing they came from a great distance, but he heard them clearly, as though they echoed in a chasm. One of the voices was Halleck's. Perhaps we gave him too much of it, Namri answered. We gave him exactly what she told us to give him. Perhaps we should go back out there and have another look at him, Halleck. Sabaha is good at such things. She'll call us if anything starts to go wrong, Namri. I don't like this business of Sabiha, Halleck. She's a necessary ingredient, Namri. Leto felt bright light outside himself and darkness within, but the darkness was secretive, protective, and warm. The light began to blaze up, and he felt that it came from the darkness within, swirling outward like a brilliant cloud. His body became transparent, drawing him upward, yet he retained that Einfall contact with every cell and nerve. The multitude of inner lives fell into alignment, nothing tangled or mixed. They became very quiet in duplication of his own inner silence, each memory life discreet, an entity incorporeal and undivided. Leto spoke to them then. I am your spirit. I am the only life you can realize. I am the house of your spirit in the land which is nowhere, the land which is your only remaining home. Without me, the intelligible universe reverts to chaos. Creative and abysmal are inextricably linked in me. Only I can mediate between them. Without me, Mankind will sink into the mire and vanity of knowing. Through me, you and they will find the only way out of chaos, understanding by living. With this, he let go of himself and became himself, his own person compassing the entirety of his past. It was not victory, not defeat but a new thing to be shared with any inner life he chose. Leto savoured this newness, letting it possess every cell, every nerve, giving up what the Einfall had presented to him and recovering the totality in the same instant. After a time, he awoke in white darkness. With a flash of awareness, he knew where his flesh was, seated on sand about a kilometre from the cliff wall which marked the northern boundary of the Siech. He knew that Siech now, Jakorutu for certain, and Fondak. 
but it was far different from the myths and legends and the rumors which the smugglers allowed. A young woman sat on a rug directly in front of him, a bright glow-globe anchored to her left sleeve and drifting just above her head. When Leto looked away from the glow-globe, there were stars. He knew this young woman. She was the one from his vision earlier, the roaster of coffee. She was Namri's niece, as ready with a knife as Namri was. There was the knife in her lap. She wore a simple green robe over a grey still suit. Sabiha, that was her name. And Namri had his own plans for her. Sabiha saw the awakening in his eyes, said, It's almost dawn. You've spent the whole night here. And most of a day, he said. You make good coffee. This statement puzzled her, but she ignored it with a single-mindedness which spoke of harsh training and explicit instructions for her present behavior. It's the hour of assassins, Leto said, but your knife is no longer needed. He glanced at the Chris knife in her lap. Namri will be the judge of that, she said. Not Halleck, then. She only confirmed his inner knowledge. Shai Hulud is a great garbage collector and eraser of unwanted evidence, Leto said. I've used him thus myself. She rested her hand lightly on the knife handle. How much is revealed by where we sit and how we sit, he said. You sit upon the rug and I upon the sand. Her hand closed over the knife handle. Leto yawned, a gaping and stretching which made his jaws ache. I've had a vision which included you, he said. Her shoulders relaxed slightly. We've been very one-sided about Arrakis, he said. Barbaric of us. There's a certain momentum in what we've been doing, but now we must undo some of our work. The scales must be brought into better balance. A puzzled frown touched Sabiha's face. My vision, he said. Unless we restore the dance of life here on Dune, the dragon on the floor of the desert will be no more. Because he'd used the old Fremen name for the great worm, there was a moment understanding him. Then, the worms? We are in a dark passage, he said. Without spice, the empire falls apart. The guild will not move. Planets will slowly lose their clear memories of each other. They'll turn inward upon themselves. Space will become a boundary when the guild navigators lose their mastery. We'll cling to our dune tops and be ignorant of that which is above us and below us. You speak very strangely, she said. How have you seen me in your vision? Trust Fremen superstition, he thought. He said, I've become passigraphic. I'm a living glyph to write out the changes which must come to pass. If I do not write them, you'll encounter such heartache as no human should experience. What words are these? she asked, but her hand remained lightly on the knife. Leto turned his head toward the cliffs of Jakurutu, seeing the beginning glow which would be second moon making its pre-dawn passage behind the rocks. The death scream of a desert hare shocked its way through him. He saw Sabiha shudder. There came the beating of wings, a predator bird, night creature here. He saw the ember glow of many eyes as they swept past above him, headed for crannies in the cliff. 
I must follow the dictates of my new heart, Plato said. You look upon me as a mere child, Sabiha, but if they warned me about you, Sabiha said, and now her shoulders were stiff with readiness. He heard the fear in her voice, said, Don't fear me, Sabiha. You've lived eight more years than this flesh of mine. For that I honor you. But I have untold thousands more years of other lives, far more than you have known. Don't look upon me as a child. I have bridged the many futures, and in one saw us entwined in love. You and I, Sabiha. What are this can't? She broke off in confusion. The idea could grow on you, he said. Now help me back to the Siege, for I've been in far places and am weak with the weariness of my travels. Namri must hear where I have been. He saw the indecision in her, said, Am I not the guest of the cavern? Namri must learn what I have learned. We have many things to do, lest our universe degenerate. I don't believe that, about the worms, she said. Nor about us, entwined in love? She shook her head, but he could see the thoughts drifting through her mind like wind-blown feathers. His words both attracted and repelled her. To be consort of power, that certainly carried high allure. Yet there were her uncle's orders. But one day this son of Muad'Dib might rule here on Dune and in the farthest reaches of their universe. She encountered then an extremely Fremen, cavern-hiding aversion to such a future. The consort of Leto would be seen by everyone, would be an object of gossip and speculations. She could have wealth, though, and I am the son of Muad'Dib, able to see the future, he said. Slowly she replaced her knife in its sheath, lifted herself easily from the rug, crossed to his side and helped him to his feet. Leto found himself amused by her actions then. She folded the rug neatly and draped it across her right shoulder. He saw her measuring the difference in their sizes, reflecting upon his words, entwined in love. Size is another thing that changes, he thought. She put a hand on his arm then to help him and control him. He stumbled and she spoke sharply. We're too far from the siege for that meaning the unwanted sound which might attract a worm. Leto felt that his body had become a dry shell, like that abandoned by an insect. He knew this shell. It was one with a society which had been built upon the melange trade and its religion of the golden elixir. It was emptied by its excesses. Muad'Dib's high aims had fallen into wizardry which was enforced by the military arm of Arkaf. Muad'Dib's religion had another name now. It was Xian San Shao, an Ixian label which designated the intensity and insanity of those who thought they could bring the universe to paradise at the point of a Chris knife. But that too would change, as Ix had changed, for they were merely the ninth planet of their sun, and had even forgotten the language which had given them their name. The jihad was a kind of mass insanity he muttered. What? Sabiha had been concentrating on the problem of making him walk without rhythm, hiding their presence out here on open sand. 
She was a moment focusing on his words, then interpreted them as another product of his obvious fatigue. She felt the weakness of him, the way he'd been drained by the trance. It seemed pointless and cruel to her. If he were to be killed, as Namri said, then it should be done quickly, without all of this by-play. Leto had spoken of a marvellous revelation, though. Perhaps that was what Namri sought. Certainly that must be the motive behind the behaviour of this child's own grandmother. Why else would Our Lady of Dune give her sanction to these perilous acts against a child? Child? Again, she reflected upon his words. They were at the cliff base now, and she stopped her charge, letting him relax a moment here where it was safer. Looking down at him in the dim starlight, she asked, How could there be no more worms? Only I can change that, he said. Have no fear. I can change anything. But it's... Some questions have no answers, he said. I've seen that future but the contradictions would only confuse you. This is a changing universe, and we are the strangest change of all. We resonate to many influences. Our futures need constant updating. Now there's a barrier which we must remove. This requires that we do brutal things, that we go against our most basic, our dearest wishes. But it must be done. What must be done? Have you ever killed a friend? he asked, and turning, led the way into the gap which sloped upward to the Sietch's hidden entrance. He moved as quickly as his trance fatigue would permit, but she was right behind him, clutching his robe and pulling him to a stop. What's this of killing a friend? He'll die anyway, Vileto said. I don't have to do it, but I could prevent it. If I don't prevent it, is that not killing him? Who is this who will die? The alternative keeps me silent, he said. I might have to give my sister to a monster. Again he turned away from her, and this time when she pulled at his robe he resisted, refusing to answer her questions. Best she not know until the time comes, he thought. Natural selection has been described as an environment selectively screening for those who will have progeny. Where humans are concerned, though, this is an extremely limiting viewpoint. Reproduction by sex tends toward experiment and innovation. It raises many questions, including the ancient one about whether environment is a selective agent after the variation occurs, or whether environment plays a pre-selective role in determining the variations which it screens. Dune did not really answer those questions. It merely raised new questions which Leto and the Sisterhood may attempt to answer over the next five hundred generations. The Dune Catastrophe, after Hark Aladar the bare brown rocks of the shield wall loomed in the distance, visible to Ganima as the embodiment of that apparition which threatened her future. She stood at the edge of the roof garden atop the keep, the setting sun at her back. The sun held a deep orange glow from intervening dust clouds, a colour as rich as the rim of a worm's mouth. She sighed, thinking, Alia, Alia, is your fate to be my fate? The inner lives had grown increasingly clamorous of late. 
There was something about female conditioning in a Fremen society. Perhaps it was a real sexual difference, but whatever, the female was more susceptible to that inner tide. Her grandmother had warned about it as they'd schemed, drawing on the accumulated wisdom of the Bene Gesserit, but awakening that wisdom's threats within Ganima. Abomination, the Lady Jessica had said. Our term for the pre-born has a long history of bitter experiences behind it. The way of it seems to be that the inner lives divide. They split into the benign and the malignant. The benign remain tractable, useful. The malignant appear to unite in one powerful psyche, trying to take over the living flesh and its consciousness. The process is known to take considerable time, but its signs are well known. Why did you abandon Alia? Ganima asked. I fled in terror of what I'd created, Jessica said, her voice low. I gave up, and my burden now is that perhaps I gave up too soon. What do you mean? I cannot explain yet, but maybe... No, I'll not give you false hopes. Gafla, the abominable distraction, has a long history in human mythology. It was called many things, but chiefly it was called possession. That's what it seems to be. You lose your way in the malignancy, and it takes possession of you. Leto feared the spice, Ganima said, finding that she could talk about him quietly. The terrible price demanded of them. And wisely, Jessica had said. She would say no more. But Ganima had risked an explosion of her inner memories, peering past an odd blurred veil and futilely expanding on the Bene Gesserit fears. To explain what had befallen Alia did not ease it one bit. The Bene Gesserit accumulation of experience had pointed to a possible way out of the trap, though, and when Ganima ventured the inner sharing, she first called upon the Mohalata, a partnership of the benign which might protect her. She recalled that sharing as she stood in the sunset glow at the edge of the keep's roof garden. Immediately she felt the memory presence of her mother. Cheney stood there, an apparition between Ganima and the distant cliffs. Enter here, and you will eat the fruit of the Zakum, the food of hell, Cheney said. Bar this door, my daughter. It is your only safety. The inner clamor lifted itself around the vision, and Ganima fled, sinking her consciousness into the sisterhood's credo, reacting out of desperation more than trust. Quickly, she recited the credo, moving her lips, letting her voice rise to a whisper. Religion is the emulation of the adult by the child. Religion is the insistment of past beliefs. Mythology, which is guesswork, the hidden assumptions of trust in the universe, those pronouncements which men have made in search of personal power, all of it mingled with shreds of enlightenment. And always the ultimate unspoken commandment is, Thou shalt not question. But we question. We break that commandment as a matter of course. The work to which we have set ourselves is the liberating of the imagination, the harnessing of imagination to humankind's deepest sense of creativity. Slowly, a sense of order returned to Ganima's thoughts. 
She felt her body trembling, though, and knew how fragile was this peace she had attained, and that blurring veil remained in her mind. Lep Kamai, she whispered, heart of my enemy, you shall not be my heart. And she called up a memory of Faridun's features, the saturnine young face with its heavy brows and firm mouth. Hate will make me strong, she thought. In hate I can resist Aaliyah's fate. But the trembling fragility of her position remained, and all she could think about was how much Faridun resembled his uncle, the late Shaddam IV. Here you are. It was Irulan coming up from Ganima's right, striding along the parapet with movements reminiscent of a man. Turning, Ganima thought, and she's Shaddam's daughter. Why will you persist in sneaking out alone? Irulan demanded, stopping in front of Ganima and towering over her with a scowling face. Ganima refrained from saying that she was not alone, that guards had seen her emerge onto the roof. Irulan's anger went to the fact that they were in the open here and that a distant weapon might find them. You're not wearing a still suit, Ganima said. Did you know that in the old days, someone caught outside the Siege without a still suit was automatically killed? To waste water was to endanger the tribe. Water, water, Irulan snapped. I want to know why you endanger yourself this way. Come back inside. You make trouble for all of us. What danger is there now? Ganima asked. Stilgar has purged the traitors. Aliyah's guards are everywhere. Irulan peered upward at the darkening sky. Stars were already visible against a grey-blue backdrop. She returned her attention to Ganima. I won't argue. I was sent to tell you we have word from Faridun. He accepts, but for some reason he wishes to delay the ceremony. How long? We don't know yet. It's being negotiated, but Duncan is being sent home. And my grandmother? She chooses to stay on Seleucia for the time being. Who can blame her? Ganima asked. That silly fight with Aaliyah. Don't try to gull me, Irlan. That was no silly fight. I've heard the stories. The sisterhood's fears are real, Ganima said. Well, you've delivered your message. Will you use this opportunity to have another try at dissuading me? I've given up. You should know better than to try lying to me, Ganima said. Very well. I'll keep trying to dissuade you. This course is madness and Irulan wondered why she let Ganima become so irritating. A Bene Gesserit didn't need to be irritated at anything. She said, I'm concerned by the extreme danger to you. You know that. Gani, Gani, you're Paul's daughter. How can you? Because I'm his daughter, Ganima said. We Atreides go back to Agamemnon, and we know what's in our blood. Never forget that, childless wife of my father. We Atreides have a bloody history, and we're not through with the blood. Distracted, Irulan asked, Who's Agamemnon? How sparse your vaunted Bene Gesserit education proves itself, Ganima said. I keep forgetting that you foreshorten history, but my memories go back to... She broke off. Best not to arouse those shades from their fragile sleep. Whatever you remember, Irulan said, you must know how dangerous this course is to- I'll kill him, Ganima said. He owes me a life. 
and I'll prevent it if I can. We already know this. You won't get the opportunity. Alia is sending you south to one of the new towns until after it's done. Irulan shook her head in dismay. Gani, I took my oath that I'd guard you against any danger. I'll do it with my own life if necessary. If you think I'm going to languish in some brick wall dijedida while you... There's always the Huanui, Ganima said, speaking softly. We have the death still as an alternative. I'm sure you couldn't interfere from there. Irulan paled, put a hand to her mouth, forgetting for a moment all of her training. It was a measure of how much care she had invested in Ganima, this almost complete abandonment of everything except animal fear. She spoke out of that shattering emotion, allowing it to tremble on her lips. Gani, I don't fear for myself. I'd throw myself into the worm's mouth for you. Yes, I'm what you call me, the childless wife of your father. But you're the child I never had. I beg you. Tears glistened at the corners of her eyes. Ganima fought down a tightness in her throat, said, There is another difference between us. You were never Fremen. I'm nothing else. This is a chasm which divides us. Aaliyah knows. Whatever else she may be, she knows this. You can't tell what Aaliyah knows, Irulan said, speaking bitterly. If I didn't know her for Atreides, I'd swear she has set herself to destroy her own family. And how do you know she's still Atreides? Ganima thought, wondering at this blindness in Irulan. This was a Bene Gesserit, and who knew better than they the history of abomination? She would not let herself even think about it, let alone believe it. Alia must have worked some witchery on this poor woman. Ganima said, I owe you a water debt. For that I'll guard your life, but your cousin's forfeit. Say no more of that. Irulan stilled the trembling of her lips, wiped her eyes. I did love your father, she whispered. I didn't even know it until he was dead. Perhaps he isn't dead, Ganima said. This preacher, Gani, sometimes I don't understand you. Would Paul attack his own family? Ganima shrugged, looked out at the darkening sky. He might find amusement in such a... How can you speak so lightly of this? To keep away the dark depths, Ganima said. I don't taunt you. The gods know I don't. But I'm just my father's daughter. I'm every person who's contributed seed to the Atreides. You won't think of abomination, but I can't think of anything else. I'm the pre-born. I know what's within me. That foolish old superstition about don't, Ganima reached a hand toward Irulan's mouth. I'm every Bene Gesserit of their damnable breeding program, up to and including my grandmother. And I'm very much more. She tore at her left palm, drawing blood with a fingernail. This is a young body, but its experiences. Oh, gods, Irulan, my experiences. No. She put out her hand once more as Irulan moved closer. I know all of those futures which my father explored. I've the wisdom of so many lifetimes, and all the ignorance, too, all the frailties. If you'd help me, Irulan, first learn who I am. Instinctively, Irulan bent and gathered Ganima into her arms, holding her close, cheek against cheek.
Don't let me have to kill this woman, Ganima thought. Don't let that happen. As this thought swept through her, the whole desert passed into night. One small bird has called thee from a beak-streaked crimson. It cried once over Siech Tabor, and thou went forth unto funeral plain. Lament for Leto the Second. Leto awoke to the tinkle of water rings in a woman's hair. He looked to the open doorway of his cell and saw Sabiha sitting there. In the half-immersed awareness of the spice, he saw her outlined by all that his vision revealed about her. She was two years past the age when most Fremen women were wed or at least betrothed. Therefore, her family was saving her for something, or someone. She was nubile, obviously. His vision-shrouded eyes saw her as a creature out of humankind's tyrannic past, dark hair and pale skin, deep sockets which gave her blue-in-blue eyes a greenish cast. She possessed a small nose and a wide mouth above a sharp chin, and she was a living signal to him that the Bene Gesserit plan was known or suspected here in Jakarutu. So they hoped to revive pharaonic imperialism through him, did they? Then what was their design to force him into marrying his sister? Surely Sabiha could not prevent that. His captors knew the plan, though, and how had they learned it? They'd not shared its vision. They'd not gone with him where life became a moving membrane in other dimensions. The reflexive and circular subjectivity of the visions which revealed Sabiha were his and his alone. Again the water rings tinkled in Sabiha's hair, and the sound stirred up his visions. He knew where he had been and what he had learned. Nothing could erase that. He was not riding a great maker palanquin now, the tinkle of water rings among the passengers a rhythm for their passage songs. No, he was here in the cell of Jakorutu, embarked on that most dangerous of all journeys, away from and back to the Al-Asuna Wal-Jamas, from the real world of the senses and back to that world. What was she doing there with the water rings tinkling in her hair? Oh, Yes, she was mixing more of the brew which they thought held him captive, food laced with spice essence to keep him half in and half out of the real universe until either he died or his grandmother's plan succeeded. And every time he thought he'd won, they sent him back. The Lady Jessica was right, of course, that old witch. But what a thing to do. The total recall of all those lives within him was of no use at all, until he could organize the data and remember it at will. Those lives had been the raw stuff of anarchy. One or all of them could have overwhelmed him. The spice and its peculiar setting here in Jakarutu had been a desperate gamble. Now Gurney waits for the sign, and I refuse to give it to him. How long will his patience last? He stared out at Sabiha. She'd thrown her hood back and revealed the tribal tattoos at her temples. Leto did not recognize the tattoos at first, then remembered where he was. Yes, Jakurutu still lived. Leto did not know whether to be thankful toward his grandmother or hate her. 
She wanted him to have conscious-level instincts, but instincts were only racial memories of how to handle crises. His direct memories of those other lives told him far more than that. He had it all organized now and could see the peril of revealing himself to Gurney. No way of keeping the revelation from Namri, and Namri was another problem. Sabiha entered the cell with a bowl in her hands. He admired the way the light from outside made rainbow circles at the edges of her hair. Gently, she raised his head and began feeding him from the bowl. It was only then he realized how weak he was. He allowed her to feed him while his mind went roving, recalling the session with Gurney and Namri. They believed him. Namri more than Gurney, but even Gurney could not deny what his senses had already reported to him about the planet. Sabiha wiped his mouth with a hem of her robe. Ah, Sabiha, he thought, recalling that other vision which filled his heart with pain. Many nights have I dreamed beside the open water, hearing the winds pass overhead. Many nights my flesh lay beside the snake's den, and I dreamed of Sabiha in the summer heat. I saw her storing spice bread, baked on red-hot sheets of plastile. I saw the clear water in the canat, gentle and shining, but a storm wind ran through my heart. She sips coffee and eats. Her teeth shine in the shadows. I see her braiding my water rings into her hair. The amber fragrance of her bosom strikes through to my innermost senses. She torments me and oppresses me by her very existence. The pressure of his multi-memories exploded the time-frozen endlobement which he had tried to resist. He felt twining bodies, the sounds of sex, rhythms laced in every sensory impression, lips, breathing, moist breaths, tongues. Somewhere in his vision there were helix shapes, coal-colored, and he felt the beat of those shapes as they turned within him. A voice pleaded in his skull, Please, 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 please. There was an adult beef swelling in his loins, and he felt his mouth open, holding, clinging to the girder shape of ecstasy, then a sigh, a lingering ground-swelling sweetness, a collapse. Oh, how sweet to let that come into existence. Sabiha, he whispered. Oh, my Sabiha. When her charge had clearly gone deeply into the trance after his food, Sabiha took the bowl and left, pausing at the doorway to speak to Namri. He called my name again. Go back and stay with him, Namri said. I must find Halleck and discuss this with him. Sabiha deposited the bowl beside the doorway and returned to the cell. She sat on the edge of the cot, staring at Leto's shadowed face. Presently, he opened his eyes and put a hand out, touching her cheek. He began to talk to her then, telling her about the vision in which she had lived. She covered his hand with her own as he spoke. How sweet he was. How very sweet. She sank onto the cot cushioned by his hand, unconscious before he pulled the hand away. Leto sat up, feeling the depths of his weakness. The spice and its visions had drained him. He searched through his cells for every spare spark of energy, climbed from the cot without disturbing Sabiha. He had to go, but he knew he'd not get far. 
Slowly, he sealed his still suit, drew the robe around him, slipped through the passage to the outer shaft. There were a few people about, busy at their own affairs. They knew him, but he was not their responsibility. Namri and Halleck would know what he was doing, so Biha could not be far away. He found the kind of side passage he needed and walked boldly down it. Behind him, Sabiha slept peacefully, until Halleck roused her. She sat up, rubbed her eyes, saw the empty cot, saw her uncle standing behind Halleck, the anger on their faces. Namri answered the expression on her face. Yes, he's gone. How could you let him escape? Halleck raged. How is this possible? He was seen going toward the lower exit, Namri said, his voice oddly calm. Sabiha cowered in front of them, remembering. How? Halleck demanded. I don't know. I don't know. It's night and he's weak, Namri said. He won't get far. Halleck whirled on him. You want the boy to die? It wouldn't displease me. Again Halleck confronted Sabiha. Tell me what happened. He touched my cheek. He kept talking about his vision. Us together. She looked down at the empty cot. He made me sleep. He put some magic on me. Halleck glanced at Namri. Could he be hiding inside somewhere? Nowhere inside. He'd be found, seen. He was headed for the exit. He's out there. Magic, Sabiha muttered. No magic, Namri said. He hypnotized her. Almost did it to me, you remember? Said I was his friend. He's very weak, Halleck said. Only in his body, Namri said. He won't go far, though. I disabled the heel pumps of his still suit. He'll die with no water if we don't find him. Halleck almost turned and struck Namri, but held himself in rigid control. Jessica had warned him that Namri might have to kill the lad. Gods below, what a pass they'd come to. Atreides against Atreides. He said, Is it possible he just wandered away in the spice trance? What difference does it make? Namri asked. If he escapes us, he must die. We'll start searching at first light, Halleck said. Did he take a frem kit? There are always a few beside the door seal, Namri said. He'd have been a fool not to take one. Somehow he has never struck me as a fool. Then send a message to our friends, Halleck said. Tell them what's happened. No messages this night, Namri said. There's a storm coming. The tribes have been tracking it for three days now. It'll be here by midnight. Already communications blanked out. The satellites signed off this sector two hours ago. A deep sigh shook Halleck. The boy would die out there for sure if the sandblast storm caught him. It would eat the flesh from his bones and sliver the bones to fragments. The contrived false death would become real. He slapped a fist into an open palm. The storm could trap them in the siege. They couldn't even mount a search, and storm static had already isolated the siege. Distrands he said, thinking they might imprint a message onto a bat's voice and dispatch it with the alarm. Namri shook his head. Bats won't fly in a storm. Come on, man, they're more sensitive than we are. They'll cower in the cliffs until it's past. Best to wait for the satellites to pick us up again. Then we can try to find his remains. Not if he took a friend kit and hid in the sand, 
Sabiha said. Cursing under his breath, Halleck whirled away from them, strode out into the Siege. Peace demands solutions, but we never reach living solutions, we only work toward them. A fixed solution is, by definition, a dead solution. The trouble with peace is that it tends to punish mistakes instead of rewarding brilliance. The words of my father, an account of Muad'Dib reconstructed by Haq al-Adar. She's training him? She's training Faridun? Alia glared at Duncan Idaho with a deliberate mix of anger and incredulity. The Guild Highliner had swung into orbit around Arrakis at noon local. An hour later, the lighter had put Idaho down at Arakeen unannounced, but all casual and open. Within minutes, a thopter had deposited him atop the keep. Warned of his impending arrival, Alia had greeted him there, coldly formal before her guards, but now they stood in her quarters beneath the north rim. He had just delivered his report, truthfully, precisely, emphasizing each datum in mentat fashion. She has taken leave of her senses, Alia said. He treated the statement as a mentat problem. All the indicators are that she remains well-balanced, sane. I should say her sanity index was- Stop that, Alia snapped. What can she be thinking of? Idaho, who knew that his own emotional balance depended now upon retreat into mentat coldness, said, I compute she is thinking of her granddaughter's betrothal. His features remained carefully bland, a mask for the raging grief which threatened to engulf him. There was no Aliyah here. Aliyah was dead. For a time he'd maintained a myth Aliyah before his senses, someone he'd manufactured out of his own needs, but a mentat could carry on such self-deception for only a limited time. This creature in human guise was possessed. A demon psyche drove her. His steely eyes with their myriad facets available at will reproduced upon his vision centers a multiplicity of myth aliyahs. But when he combined them into a single image, no aliyah remained. Her features moved to other demands. She was a shell within which outrages had been committed. Where's Ganima? he asked. She waved the question aside. I've sent her with Irulan to stay in Stilgar's keeping. Neutral territory, he thought. There's been another negotiation with rebellious tribes. She's losing ground and doesn't know it. Or does she? Is there another reason? Has Stilgar gone over to her? The betrothal, Ali amused. What are conditions in the Carino house? Salusa swarms with Utrine relatives, all working upon Faradun, hoping for a share in his return to power. And she's training him in the Bene Gesserit. Is it not fitting for Ganima's husband? Alia smiled to herself, thinking of Ganima's adamant rage. Let Faridun be trained. Jessica was training a corpse. It would all work out. I must consider this at length, she said. You're very quiet, Duncan. I await your questions. I see. You know, I was very angry with you, taking her to Faridun. You commanded me to make it real. I was forced to put out the report that you'd both been taken captive, she said. I obeyed your orders. You're so literal at times, Duncan. You almost frightened me. But if you hadn't, well... The Lady Jessica's out of harm's way, he said. 
and for Ganima's sake we shall be grateful that exceedingly grateful, she agreed. And she thought, he's no longer trustworthy. He has that damnable Atreides loyalty. I must make an excuse to send him away and have him eliminated. An accident, of course. She touched his cheek. Idaho forced himself to respond to the caress, taking her hand and kissing it. Duncan, Duncan, how sad it is, she said. But I cannot keep you here with me. Too much is happening and I've so few I can completely trust. He released her hand, waited. I was forced to send Ganima to Tabur, she said. Things are in deep unrest here. Raiders from the Broken Lands breached the Kanats at Kaga Basin and spilled all of their waters into the sands. Arakin was on short rations. The basin's alive with sand trout yet reaping the water harvest. They're being dealt with, of course, but we're spread very thin. He'd already noted how few Amazons of Aliyah's guard were to be seen in the keep, and he thought, the Maquis of the inner desert will keep on probing her defences. Doesn't she know that? Tabor is still neutral territory, she said. Negotiations are continuing there right now. Javid's there with a delegation from the priesthood, but I'd like you at Tabor to watch them, especially Irulan. She is Carino, he agreed. But he saw in her eyes that she was rejecting him. How transparent this Alia creature had become. She waved a hand. Go now, Duncan, before I soften and keep you here beside me. I've missed you so. And I've missed you, he said, allowing all of his grief to flow into his voice. She stared at him, startled by the sadness. Then, for my sake, Duncan. And she thought, too bad, Duncan. She said, Zia will take you to Dabor. We need the top to back here. Her pet Amazon, he thought. I must be careful of that one. I understand, he said, once more taking her hand and kissing it. He stared at the dear flesh which once had been his Aliyah's. He could not bring himself to look at her face as he left. Someone else stared back at him from her eyes. As he mounted to the keep's roof pad, Idaho probed a growing sense of unanswered questions. The meeting with Aliyah had been extremely trying for the Mentat part of him, which kept reading data signs. He waited beside the Thopter with one of the keep's Amazons, stared grimly southward. Imagination took his gaze beyond the shield wall to Siech Tabur. Why does Zia take me to Tabur? Returning a Thopter is a menial task. What is the delay? Is Zia getting special instructions? Idaho glanced at the watchful guard mounted to the pilot's position in the thopter. He leaned out, said, Tell Aliyah I'll send the thopter back immediately with one of Stilgar's men. Before the guard could protest, he closed the door and started the thopter. He could see her standing there indecisively. Who could question Aliyah's consort? He had the thopter airborne before she could make up her mind what to do. Now, alone in the thopter, he allowed his grief to spend itself in great racking sobs. Aliyah was gone. They had parted forever. Tears flowed from his Tleilaxu eyes and he whispered, Let all the waters of Dune flow into the sand. They will not match my tears. This was a non-mentat excess, though. 
and he recognized it as such, forcing himself to sober assessment of present necessities. The thopter demanded his attention. The reactions of flying brought him some relief, and he had himself once more in hand. Ganima with Stilgar again, and Irulan. Why had Zir been designated to accompany him? He made it a mentat problem, and the answer chilled him. I was to have a fatal accident. This rocky shrine to the skull of a ruler grants no prayers. It has become the grave of lamentations. Only the wind hears the voice of this place. The cries of night creatures and the passing wonder of two moons all say his day has ended. No more supplicants come. The visitors have gone from the feast. How bare the pathway down this mountain. Lines at the shrine of an Atreides duke. Anon. The thing had the deceptive appearance of simplicity to Leto. Avoiding the vision, do that which has not been seen. He knew the trap in his thought, how the casual threads of a locked future twisted themselves together until they held you fast. But he had a new grip on those threads. Nowhere had he seen himself running from Jakurutu. The thread to Sabiha must be cut first. He crouched now in the last daylight at the eastern edge of the rock which protected Jakarutu. His Fremkit had produced energy tablets and food. He waited now for strength. To the west lay Lake Azrak, the gypsum plain where once there had been open water in the days before the worm. Unseen to the east lay the Bene Sherk, a scattering of new settlements encroaching upon the open bled. To the south lay the Tanzaruft, the land of terror, thirty-eight hundred kilometers of wasteland broken only by patches of grass-locked dunes and wind traps to water them, the work of the ecological transformation remaking the landscape of Arrakis. They were serviced by airborne teams, and no one stayed for long. I will go south, he told himself. Gurney will expect me to do that. This was not the moment to do the completely unexpected. It would be dark soon, and he could leave this temporary hiding place. He stared at the southern skyline. There was a whistling of dun sky along that horizon, rolling there like smoke, a burning line of undulant dust. A storm. He watched the high center of the storm rising up out of the great flat like a questing worm. For a full minute he watched the center, saw that it did not move to the right or the left. The old Fremen saying leaped into his mind, When the center does not move, you are in its path. That storm changed matters. For a moment he stared back westward the direction of Tabor, feeling the deceptive grey-tan peace of the desert evening, seeing the white gypsum pan edged by wind-rounded pebbles, the desolate emptiness with its unreal surface of glaring white reflecting dust clouds. Nowhere in any vision had he seen himself surviving the grey serpent of a mother storm or buried too deeply in sand to survive. There was only that vision of rolling in wind. But that might come later. And a storm was out there, winding across many degrees of latitude, whipping its world into submission. It could be risked. 
There were old stories, always heard from a friend of a friend, that one could lock an exhausted worm on the surface by propping a maker hook beneath one of its wide rings and, having immobilized it, ride out a storm in the leeward shadow. There was a line between audacity and abandoned recklessness which tempted him. That storm would not come before midnight at the earliest. There was time. How many threads could be cut here? All including the final one? Gurney will expect me to go south, but not into a storm. He stared down to the south, seeking a pathway, saw the fluent ebony brush stroke of a deep gorge curving through Jakarutu's rock. He saw sand curls in the bowels of the gorge, chimera sand. It uttered its haughty runnels onto the plain as though it were water. The gritty taste of thirst whispered in his mouth as he shouldered his fremkit and let himself down onto the path which led into the canyon. It was still light enough that he might be seen, but he knew he was gambling with time. As he reached the canyon's lip, the quick night of the central desert fell upon him. He was left with a parched glissando of moonglow to light his way toward the Tanzeruft. He felt his heartbeat quicken with all of the fears which his wealth of memories provided. He sensed that he might be going down into Huanuina, as Fremen Fierce labelled the greatest storms, the Earth's death still. But whatever came, it would be visionless. Every step left farther behind him the spice-induced Diana, that spreading awareness of his intuitive, creative nature with its unfolding to the motionless chain of causality. For every hundred steps he took now, there must be at least one step aside beyond words and into communion with his newly grasped internal reality. One way or another, father, I'm coming to you. There were birds invisible in the rocks around him, making themselves known by small sounds. Fremen-wise he listened for their echoes to guide his way where he could not see. Often as he passed crannies he marked the baleful green of eyes, creatures crouched in hiding because they knew a storm approached. He emerged from the gorge onto the desert. Living sand moved and breathed beneath him, telling of deep actions and latent fumaroles. He looked back and up to the moon-touched lava caps on Jakarutu's buttes. The whole structure was metamorphic, mostly pressure-formed. Arrakis still had something to say in its own future. He planted his thumper to call a worm, and when it began beating against the sand, took his position to watch and listen. Unconsciously, his right hand went to the Atreides' hawk ring, concealed in a knotted fold of his dishdasha. Gurney had found it, but had left it. What had he thought, seeing Paul's ring? Father, expect me soon. The worm came from the south. It angled in to avoid the rocks, not as large a worm as he'd hoped, but that could not be remedied. He gauged its passage, planted his hooks, and went up the scaled side with a quick scrambling as it swept over the thumper in a swishing dust spray. The worm turned easily under the pressure of his hooks. The wind of its passage began to whip his robe. He bent his gaze on the southern stars, dim through dust, and pointed the worm that way. Right into the storm. As first moon rose, Oleto gauged the storm height and put off his estimate of its arrival. Not before daylight. It was spreading out, gathering more energy for a great leap.
There'd be plenty of work for the ecological transformation teams. It was as though the planet fought them with a conscious fury out here, the fury increasing as the transformation took in more land. All night he pressed the worm southward, sensing the reserves of its energy in the movements transmitted through his feet. Occasionally he let the beast fall off to the west, which it was forever trying to do, moved by the invisible boundaries of its territory, or by a deep-seated awareness of the coming storm. Worms buried themselves to escape the sand-blast winds, but this one would not sink beneath the desert while maker-hooks held any of its rings open. At midnight the worm was showing many signs of exhaustion. He moved back along its great ridges and worked the flail, allowing it to slow down but continuing to drive it southward. The storm arrived just after daybreak. First, there was the beady, stretched-out immobility of the desert dawn pressing dunes one into another. Next, the advancing dust caused him to seal his face flaps. In the thickening dust, the desert became a dun picture without lines. Then sand needles began cutting his cheeks, stinging his lids. He felt the coarse grit on his tongue and knew the moment of decision had come. Should he risk the old stories by immobilizing the almost exhausted worm? He took only a heartbeat to discard this choice, worked his way back to the worm's tail, slacked off his hooks. Barely moving now, the worm began to burrow. But the excesses of the creature's heat transfer system still churned up a cyclone oven behind him in the quickening storm. Fremen children learned the dangers of this position near the worm's tail with their earliest stories. Worms were oxygen factories. Fire burned wildly in their passage, fed by the lavish exhalations from the chemical adaptations to friction within them. Sand began to whip around his feet. Leto loosed his hooks and leaped wide to avoid the furnace at the tail. Everything depended now on getting beneath the sand where the worm had loosened it. Grasping the static compaction tool in his left hand, he burrowed into a dune's slip face, knowing the worm was too tired to turn back and swallow him in its great white-orange mouth. As he burrowed with his left hand, his right hand worked the still tent from his frem kit, and he readied it for inflation. It was all done in less than a minute. He had the tent into a hard-walled sand pocket on the lee face of a dune. He inflated the tent and crawled into it. Before sealing the sphincter, he reached out with the compaction tool, reversed its action. The slip face came sliding down over the tent. Only a few sand grains entered as he sealed the opening. Now he had to work even more quickly. No sand snorkel would reach up there to keep him supplied with breathing air. This was a great storm, the kind few survived. It would cover this place with tons of sand. Only the tender bubble of the still tent with its compacted outer shell would protect him. Leto stretched flat on his back folded his hands over his breast, and sent himself into a dormancy trance where his lungs would move only once an hour. In this, he committed himself to the unknown. The storm would pass, and if it did not expose his fragile pocket, he might emerge, or he might enter the Madenat Asalam, the abode of peace. Whatever happened, he knew he had to break the threads one by one, leaving him at last only the golden path. It was that 
or he could not return to the caliphate of his father's heirs. No more would he live the lie of that despotiny, that terrible caliphate chanting to the demi-urge of his father. No more would he keep silent when a priest mouthed offensive nonsense. His Chris knife will dissolve demons. With this commitment, Leto's awareness slipped into the web of timeless Tao. There exist obvious higher-order influences in any planetary system. This is often demonstrated by introducing terraform life onto newly discovered planets. In all such cases, the life in similar zones develops striking similarities of adaptive form. This form signifies much more than shape. It connotes a survival organization and a relationship of such organizations. The human quest for this interdependent order and our niche within it represents a profound necessity. The quest can, however, be perverted into a conservative grip on sameness. This has always proved deadly for the entire system. The Dune Catastrophe, after Hark Aladar My son didn't really see the future. He saw the process of creation and its relationship to the myths in which men sleep, Jessica said. She spoke swiftly, but without appearing to rush the matter. She knew the hidden observers would find a way to interrupt as soon as they recognized what she was doing. Faridun sat on the floor, outlined in a shaft of afternoon sunlight which slanted through the window behind him. Jessica could just see the top of a tree in the courtyard garden when she glanced across from her position standing against the far wall. It was a new Faridun she saw, more slender, more sinewy. The months of training had worked their inevitable magic on him. His eyes glittered when he stared at her. He saw the shapes which existing forces would create unless they were diverted, Jessica said. Rather than turn against his fellow men, he turned against himself. He refused to accept only that which comforted him because that was moral cowardice. Faradun had learned to listen, silently testing, probing, holding his questions until he had shaped them into a cutting edge. She had been talking about the Bene Gesserit view of molecular memory expressed as ritual and had, quite naturally, diverged to the sisterhood's way of analyzing Paul Muad'Dib. Faridun saw a shadow play in her words and actions, however, a projection of unconscious forms at variance with the surface intent of her statements. Of all our observations, this is the most crucial, she'd said. Life is a mask through which the universe expresses itself. We assume that all of humankind and its supportive life forms represent a natural community, and that the fate of all life is at stake in the fate of the individual. Thus, when it comes to that ultimate self-examination, the amor fati, we stop playing God and revert to teaching. In the crunch, we select individuals and we set them as free as we're able. He saw now where she had to be going, and knowing its effect upon those who watched through the spy eyes, refrained from casting an apprehensive glance at the door. Only a trained eye could have detected his momentary imbalance, but Jessica saw it and smiled. A smile, after all, could mean anything. This is a sort of graduation ceremony, she said. I'm very pleased with you, Faridun. Will you stand, please? He obeyed, 
blocking off her view of the treetop through the window behind him. Jessica held her arms stiffly at her side, said, I am charged to say this to you. I stand in the sacred human presence. As I do now, so should you stand some day. I pray to your presence that this be so. The future remains uncertain, and so it should, for it is the canvas upon which we paint our desires. Thus always the human condition faces a beautifully empty canvas. We possess only this moment in which to dedicate ourselves continuously to the sacred presence which we share and create. As Jessica finished speaking, Tiekanik came through the door on her left, moving with a false casualness which the scowl on his face belied. My lord, he said, but it already was too late. Jessica's words and all of the preparation which had gone before had done their work. Faradun no longer was Corino. He was now Bene Gesserit. What you of the Chome Directorate seem unable to understand is that you seldom find real loyalties in commerce. When did you last hear of a clerk giving his life for the company? Perhaps your deficiency rests in the false assumption that you can order men to think and cooperate. This has been a failure of everything from religions to general staffs throughout history. General staffs have a long record of destroying their own nations. As to religions, I recommend a re-reading of Thomas Aquinas. As to you of Chome, what nonsense you believe. Men must want to do things out of their own innermost drives. People, not commercial organizations or chains of command, are what make great civilizations work. Every civilization depends upon the quality of the individuals it produces. If you over-organize humans, over-legalize them, suppress their urge to greatness, they cannot work and their civilization collapses. A letter to Chome, attributed to the preacher. Leto came out of the trance with a softness of transition which did not define one condition as separate from another. One level of awareness simply moved into the other. He knew where he was. A restoration of energy surged through him, but he sensed another message from the stale deadliness of the oxygen-depleted air within the still tent. If he refused to move, he knew he would remain caught in the timeless web, the eternal now where all events coexisted. This prospect enticed him. He saw time as a convention shaped by the collective mind of all sentience. Time and space were categories imposed on the universe by his mind. He had but to break free of the multiplicity where prescient visions lured him. A bold selection could change provisional futures. What boldness did this moment require? The trance state lured him. Later felt that he had come from the Alam al-Mithal into the universe of reality, only to find them identical. He wanted to maintain the Rihani magic of this revelation, but survival demanded decisions of him. His relentless taste for life sent its signals along his nerves. 
Abruptly, he reached out his right hand to where he had left the sand compaction tool. He gripped it, rolled onto his stomach, and breached the tense sphincter. A pool of sand drifted across his hand. Working in darkness, goaded by the stale air, he worked swiftly, tunneling upward at a steep angle. Six times his body lengths he went before he broke out into darkness and clean air. He slipped out onto the moonlight wind face of a long, curving dune, found himself about a third of the way from the dune's top. It was second moon above him. It moved swiftly across him, departing beyond the dune, and the stars were laid out above him like bright rocks beside a path. Leto searched for the constellation of the Wanderer, found it, and let his gaze follow the outstretched arm to the brilliant glittering of Fum al-Hut, the polar star of the south. There's your damned universe for you, he thought. Seen close up, it was a hustling place like the sand all around him, a place of change, of uniqueness piled upon uniqueness. Seen from a distance, only the patterns lay revealed, and those patterns tempted one to belief in absolutes. In absolutes, we may lose our way. This made him think of the familiar warning from a Fremen ditty, who loses his way in the Tansaruft loses his life. The patterns could guide, and they could trap. One had to remember that patterns change. He took a deep breath, stirred himself into action. Sliding back down his passage, he collapsed the tent, brought it out, and repacked the Fremkit. A wine glow began to develop along the eastern horizon. He shouldered the pack, climbed to the dune crest, and stood there in the chill pre-dawn air until the rising sun felt warm on his right cheek. He stained his eye pits then to reduce reflection, knowing that he must woo this desert now rather than fight her. When he had put the stain back into the pack, he sipped from one of his catch tubes, drew in a sputtering of drops, and then air. Dropping to the sand, he began going over his still suit, coming at last to the heel pumps. They had been cut, cleverly, with a needle knife. He slipped out of the suit and repaired it, but the damage had been done. At least half of his body's water was gone. Were it not for the still-tense catch, he mused on this as he donned the suit, thinking how odd it was that he'd not anticipated this. Here was an obvious danger of visionless future. Later squatted on the dune top then, pressed himself against the loneliness of this place. He let his gaze wander, fishing in the sand for a whistling vent, any irregularity of the dunes which might indicate spice or worm activity. But the storm had stamped its uniformity upon the land. Presently he removed a thumper from the kit, armed it, and sent it rotating to call Shai Khulud from his depths. He then moved off to wait. The worm was a long time coming. He heard it before he saw it turned eastward where the earth-shaking susurration made the air tremble, waited for the first glimpse of orange from the mouth rising out of the sand. The worm lifted itself from the depths in a gigantic hissing of dust which obscured its flanks. The curving grey wall swept past Leto, and he planted his hooks, went up the side in easy steps. He turned the worm southward in a great curving track as he climbed. Under his goading hooks, the worm picked up speed. Wind whipped his robe against him. He felt himself to be goaded as the worm was goaded, an intense current of creation in his loins. 
Each planet has its own period and each life likewise, he reminded himself. The worm was a type Fremen called a growler. It frequently dug in its foreplates while the tail was driving. This produced rumbling sounds and caused part of its body to rise clear of the sand in a moving hump. It was a fast worm, though, and when they picked up a following wind, the furnace exhalation of his tail sent a hot breeze across him. It was filled with acrid odours carried on the freshet of oxygen. As the worm sped southward, Leto allowed his mind to run free. He tried to think of this passage as a new ceremony for his life, one which kept him from considering the price he'd have to pay for his golden path. Like the Fremen of old, he knew he'd have to adopt many new ceremonies to keep his personality from dividing into its memory parts, to keep the ravening hunters of his soul forever at bay. Contradictory images, never to be unified, must now be insisted in a living tension, a polarizing force which drove him from within. Always newness, he thought. I must always find the new threads out of my vision. In the early afternoon, his attention was caught by a protuberance ahead and slightly to the right of his course. Slowly, the protuberance became a narrow butte, an upthrust rock precisely where he'd expected it. Now, Namri, now, Sabiha, let us see how your brethren take to my presence, he thought. This was the most delicate thread ahead of him, dangerous more for its lures than its open threats. The butte was a long time changing dimensions, and it appeared for a while that it approached him instead of him approaching it. The worm, tiring now, kept veering left. Leto slid down the immense slope to set his hooks anew and keep the giant on a straight course. A soft sharpness of melange came to his nostrils, the signal of a rich vein. They passed the leprous blotches of violet sand, where a spice blow had erupted, and he held the worm firmly until they were well past the vein. The breeze, redolent with a gingery odor of cinnamon, pursued them for a time until Leto rolled the worm onto its new course, headed directly toward the rising butte. Abruptly, colors blinked far out on the southern bled, the unwary rainbow flashing of a man-made artifact in that immensity. He brought up his binoculars, focused the oil lenses, and saw in the distance the outbanking wings of a spice scout glittering in the sunlight. Beneath it, a big harvester was shedding its wings like a chrysalis before lumbering off. When Leto lowered the binoculars, the harvester dwindled to a speck, and he felt himself overcome by the haddarp, the immense omnipresence of the desert. It told him how those spice hunters would see him, a dark object between desert and sky, which was the Fremen symbol for man. They'd see him, of course, and they'd be cautious. They'd wait. Fremen were always suspicious of one another in the desert until they recognized the newcomer or saw for certain that he posed no threat. Even within the fine patterna of imperial civilization and its sophisticated rules, they remained half-tamed savages, aware always that a Chris knife dissolved at the death of its owner. That's what can save us, Plato thought, that wildness. In the distance, the spice scout banked right, then left, a signal to the ground. He imagined the occupants scanning the desert behind him for sign that he might be more than a single rider on a single worm. 
Leto rolled the worm to the left, held it until it had reversed its course, dropped down the flank and leaped clear. The worm, released from his goading, sulked on the surface for a few breaths, then sank its front third and lay there recuperating, a sure sign that it had been ridden too long. He turned away from the worm. It would stay there now. The scout was circling its crawler, still giving wing signals. They were smuggler-paid renegades for certain, wary of electronic communications. The hunters would be on spice out there. That was the message of the crawler's presence. The scout circled once more, dipped its wings, came out of the circle and headed directly toward him. He recognized it for a type of light thopter his grandfather had introduced on Arrakis. The craft circled once above him, went out along the dune where he stood and banked to land against the breeze. It came down within ten meters of him, stirring up a scattering of dust. The door on his side cracked enough to emit a single figure in a heavy Fremen robe with a spear symbol at the right breast. The Fremen approached slowly, giving each of them time to study the other. The man was tall, with a total indigo of spice eyes. The stillsuit mask concealed the lower half of his face, and the hood had been drawn down to protect his brows. The movement of the robe revealed a hand beneath it holding a mauler pistol. The man stopped two paces from Leto, looked down at him with a puzzled crinkling around the eyes. Good fortune to us all. Leto said. The man peered all around, scanning the emptiness, then returned his attention to Leto. What do you hear, child? he demanded. His voice was muffled by the stillsuit mask. Are you trying to be the cork in a wormhole? Again Leto used traditional Fremen formula. The desert is my home. When? the man demanded. Which way do you go? I travel south from Jakurutu. An abrupt laugh erupted from the man. Well, Batig, you're the strangest thing I've ever seen in the Tanzaruft. I'm not your little melon, Leto said, responding to Batig. That was a label with dire overtones. The little melon on the desert's edge offered its water to any finder. We'll not drink you, Batig, the man said. I am Muriz, I am the Arifa of this taif. He indicated with a head motion the distant spice crawler. Leto noted how the man called himself the judge of his group and referred to the others as Taif, a band or company. They were not Ichwan, not a band of brothers. Paid renegades for sure. Here lay the thread he required. When Leto remained silent, Muriz asked, Do you have a name? Batik will do. A chuckle shook Maurice. You've not told me what you do here. I seek the footprints of a worm, Leto said, using the religious phrase which said he was on Hajj for his own Omar, his personal revelation. One so young? Maurice asked. He shook his head. I don't know what to do with you. You have seen us. What have I seen? Leto asked. I speak of Jakarutu, and you make no response. Riddle games, Muriz said. What is that, then? He nodded toward the distant butte. Leto spoke from his vision. Only Shuloch? Muriz stiffened, and Leto felt his own pulse quicken. A long silence ensued, and Leto could see the man debating and discarding various responses. 
Shulok. In the quiet story time after a Siech meal, stories of the Shulok caravansary were often repeated. Listeners always assumed that Shulok was a myth, a place for interesting things to happen and only for the sake of the story. Later recalled a Shulok story. A waif was found at the desert's edge and brought into the Siech. At first the waif refused to respond to his saviors, then when he spoke no one could understand his words. As days passed, he continued unresponsive, refused to dress himself or cooperate in any way. Every time he was left alone, he made odd motions with his hands. All the specialists in the Siech were called in to study this waif, but arrived at no answer. Then a very old woman passed the doorway, saw the moving hands, and laughed. He only imitates his father who rolls the spice fibers into rope, she explained. It's the way they still do it at Shulok. He's just trying to feel less lonely. And the moral? In the old ways of Shulok, there is security and a sense of belonging to the golden thread of life. As Muriz remained silent, later said, I'm the waif from Shulok, who knows only to move his hands. In the quick movement of the man's head, later saw that Muriz knew the story. Muriz responded slowly, voice low and filled with menace. Are you human? Human as yourself, Leto said. You speak most strangely for a child. I remind you that I am a judge who can respond to the taqwa. Ah, yes, Leto thought. In the mouth of such a judge, the taqwa carried immediate threat. Taqwa was the fear invoked by the presence of a demon, a very real belief among older Fremen. The Arifa knew the ways to slay a demon and was always chosen because he had the wisdom to be ruthless without being cruel, to know when kindness is in fact the way to greater cruelty. But this thing had come to the point which Leto sought, and he said, I can submit to the Mashad. I'll be the judge of any spiritual test, Maurice said. Do you accept this? Bilal Kaifa, Leto said without qualification. A sly look came over Muriz's face. He said, I don't know why I permit this. Best you were slain out of hand. But you're a small batig, and I had a son who is dead. Come, we will go to Shulok, and I'll convene the Isnad for a decision about you. Leto, noting how the man's every mannerism betrayed deadly decision, wondered how anyone could be fooled by this. He said, I know Shulok is the Al-Asona Waljamas. What does a child know of the real world? Muriz asked, motioning for Leto to precede him to the Thopter. Leto obeyed, but listened carefully to the sound of the Fremen's footsteps. The surest way to keep a secret is to make people believe they already know the answer, Leto said. People don't ask questions then. It was clever of you who were cast out of Jakurutu. Who'd believe Shulok? The story myth place is real, and how convenient for the smugglers or anyone else who desires access to Dune. Murray's footsteps stopped. Leto turned with his back against the thopter's side, the wing on his left. Murray's stood half a pace away with his mauler pistol drawn and pointed directly at Leto. So you're not a child, Murray's said. A cursed midget come to spy on us. I thought you spoke too wisely for a child, but you spoke too much too soon. Not enough, Leto said. 
I'm Leto, the child of Paul Muad'Dib. If you slay me, you and your people will sink into the sand. If you spare me, I'll lead you to greatness. Don't play games with me, midget, Muriz snarled. Leto is at the real Jakurutu, from whence you say... He broke off. The gun hand dropped slightly as a puzzled frown made his eyes squint. It was the hesitation Leto had expected. He made every muscle indication of a move to the left, which, deflecting his body no more than a millimeter, brought the Fremen's gun swinging wildly against the wing edge. The Mauler pistol flew from his hand, and before he could recover, Leto was beside him with Muriz's own Chris knife pressed against the man's back. The tip's poisoned, Leto said. Tell your friend in the Thopter that he's to remain exactly where he is without moving at all. Otherwise I'll be forced to kill you. Muriz, nursing his injured hand, shook his head at the figure in the thopter, said, My companion, Behalath, has heard you. He will be as unmoving as the rock. Knowing he had very little time until the two worked out a plan of action or their friends came to investigate, Leto spoke swiftly. You need me, Muriz. Without me, the worms and their spice will vanish from Dune. He felt the Fremen stiffen. But how do you know of Shulok? Muriz asked. I know they said nothing at Jakarutu. So you admit I'm Leto Atreides? Who else could you be? But how do you... Because you are here, Leto said. Shulok exists, therefore the rest is utter simplicity. You are the cast out who escaped when Jakarutu was destroyed. I saw you signal with your wings, therefore you use no device which could be overheard at a distance. You collect spice, therefore you trade. You could only trade with the smugglers. You are a smuggler, yet you are Fremen. You must be of Shulok. Why did you tempt me to slay you out of hand? Because you would have slain me anyway when we'd returned to Shulok. A violent rigidity came over Muris's body. Careful, Muris, Plato cautioned. I know about you. It was in your history that you took the water of unwary travelers. By now this would be common ritual with you. How else could you silence the ones who chanced upon you? How else keep your secret? Batigue. You'd seduce me with gentle epithets and kindly words. Why waste any of my water upon the sand? And if I were missed, as were many of the others, well, the Danzaroft got me. Muriz made the horns of the worm sign with his right hand to ward off the Rihani which Leto's words called up. And Leto, knowing how older Fremen distrusted Mentats or anything which smacked of them by a show of extended logic, suppressed a smile. Manri spoke of us at Jakarutu, Muriz said. I will have his water when— You'll have nothing but empty sand if you continue playing the fool, Leto said. What will you do, Muriz, when all of Dune has become green, grass, trees, and open water? It will never happen. It is happening before your eyes. Leto heard Muriz's teeth grinding in rage and frustration. Presently, the man grated, How would you prevent this? I know the entire plan of the transformation, Leto said. I know every weakness in it, every strength. Without me, Shai Hulud will vanish forever. A sly note returning to his voice, Muriz asked, Well, why dispute it here? We're at a standoff. You have your knife. You could kill me, but Behalath would shoot you. Not before I recovered your pistol, Leto said. Then I'd have your thopter. Yes, I can fly it. 
A scowl creased Murizi's forehead beneath the hood. What if you're not who you say? Will my father not identify me? Leto asked. Ah, Muriz said. There's how you learned, eh? But he broke off, shook his head. My own son guides him. He says you two have never... How could... So you don't believe Muad'Dib reads the future, Leto said. Of course we believe, but he says of himself that... Again, Muriz broke off. And you thought him unaware of your distrust, Leto said. I came to this exact place in this exact time to meet you, Muriz. I know all about you because I've seen you and your son. I know how secure you believe yourselves, how you sneer at Muad'Dib, how you plot to save your little patch of desert. But your little patch of desert is doomed without me, Muriz, lost forever. It has gone too far here on Dune. My father has almost run out of vision, and you can only turn to me. That blind... Muriz stopped swallowed. He'll return soon from Arakeen, Leto said, and then we shall see how blind he is. How far have you gone from the old Fremen ways, Muriz? What? He is Wadkias with you. Your people found him alone in the desert and brought him to Shulok. What a rich discovery he was, richer than a spice vein. Wadkias! He has lived with you, his water mingled with your tribe's water. He's part of your spirit river. Leto pressed the knife hard against Muriz's robe. Careful, Muriz. Leto lifted his left hand, released the Fremen's face flap, dropped it. Knowing what Leto planned, Muriz said, Where would you go if you killed us both? Back to Jakarutu. Leto pressed the fleshy part of his own thumb against Muriz's mouth. Bite and drink, Muriz. That or die. Muriz hesitated, then bit viciously into Leto's flesh. Leto watched the man's throat, saw the swallowing convulsion, withdrew the knife, and returned it. Wadkias, Leto said. I must offend the tribe before you can take my water. Muriz nodded. Your pistol is over there, Leto gestured with his chin. You trust me now? Muriz asked. How else can I live with the cast out? Again, Leto saw the sly look in Muriz's eyes, but this time it was a measuring thing, a weighing of economics. The man turned away with an abruptness which told of secret decisions, recovered his Mauler pistol and returned to the wing step. Come, he said, we tarry too long in a worm's lair. The future of prescience cannot always be locked into the rules of the past. The threads of existence tangle according to many unknown laws. Prescient future insists on its own rules. It will not conform to the ordering of the Zen Sunni, nor to the ordering of science. Prescience builds a relative integrity. It demands the work of this instant, always warning that you cannot weave every thread into the fabric of the past. Kalima, the words of Muad'Dib, the Shulok Commentary Muriz brought the ornithopter in over Shulok with a practiced ease. Leto, seated beside him, felt the armed presence of Behaleth behind them. Everything went on trust now in the narrow thread of his vision to which he clung. If that failed, Allahu Akbar, sometimes one had to submit to a greater order.
The beauty of Shulok was impressive in this desert. Its unmarked presence here spoke of many bribes and many deaths, of many friends in high places. Later you could see at Shulok's heart a cliff-walled pan with interfringing blind canyons leading down into it. A thick growth of shade scale and salt bushes lined the lower edges of these canyons with an inner ring of fan palms, indicating the water riches of this place. Crude buildings of green bush and spice fibre had been built out from the fan palms. The buildings were green buttons scattered on the sand. There would live the cast out of the cast out, those who would go no lower except into death. Muriz landed in the pan near the base of one of the canyons. A single structure stood on the sand directly ahead of the thopter, a thatch of desert vines and bajato leaves, all lined with heat-fused spice fabric. It was the living replica of the first crude still tents, and it spoke of degradation for some who lived in Shulok. Leto knew the place would leak moisture and would be full of night biters from the nearby growth. So this was how his father lived. And poor Sabiha. Here would be her punishment. At Muriz's order, Leto let himself out of the thopter, jumped down to the sand and strode toward the hut. He could see many people working farther toward the canyon among the palms. They looked tattered, poor, and the fact that they barely glanced at him or at the thopter said much of the oppression here. Leto could see the rock lip of a canat beyond the workers, and there was no mistaking the sense of moisture in this air. Open water. Passing the hut, Leto saw it was as crude as he'd expected. He pressed on to the canat peered down and saw the swirl of predator fish in the dark flow. The workers, avoiding his eyes, went on with clearing sand away from the line of rock openings. Muriz came up behind Leto, said, You stand on the boundary between fish and worm. Each of these canyons has its worm. This canat has been opened, and we will remove the fish presently to attract sand trout. Of course, Leto said, holding pens. You sell sand trout and worms off-planet. It was Muad'Dib's suggestion. I know. But none of your worms or sand trout survive for long away from Dune. Not yet, Muris said. But some day. Not in ten thousand years, Leto said. And he turned to watch the turmoil on Muris's face. Questions flowed there like the water in the canat. Could this son of Muad'Dib really read the future? Some still believed Muad'Dib had done it, but how could a thing such as this be judged? Presently, Muriz turned away, led them back to the hut. He opened the crude door seal, motioned for Leto to enter. There was a spice oil lamp burning against the far wall, and a small figure squatted beneath it, back to the door. The burning oil gave off a heavy fragrance of cinnamon. They've sent down a new captive to care for Muad'Dib's siege, Muriz sneered. If she serves well, she may keep her water for a time. He confronted Leto. Some think it evil to take such water. Those lace-shirt Fremen now make rubbish heaps in their new towns. Rubbish heaps! When has Dune never before seen rubbish heaps? When we get such as this one, he gestured toward the figure by the lamp. They're usually half wild with fear, lost to their own kind and never accepted by true Fremen. Do you understand me, Leto Batig? I understand you. The crouching figure had not moved. 
You speak of leading us, Muriel said. Fremen are led by men who've been blooded. What could you lead us in? Kralizek, Leto said, keeping his attention on the crouched figure. Meris glared at him, brows contracted over his indigo eyes. Kralizek? That wasn't merely war or revolution. That was the typhoon struggle. It was a word from the furthermost Fremen legends, the battle at the end of the universe. Kralizek? The tall Fremen swallowed convulsively. This sprat was as unpredictable as a city dandy. Muris turned to the squatting figure. Woman, Liban Wahid, he commanded. Bring us the spice drink. She hesitated. Do as he says, Sabiha, Leto said. She jumped to her feet, whirling. She stared at him, unable to take her gaze from his face. You know this one? Muris asked. She is Namri's niece. She offended Jakarutu, and they have sent her to you. Namri? But Liban Wahid, Leto said. She rushed past them, tore herself through the door seal, and they heard the sound of her running feet. She will not go far, Muris said. He touched a finger to the side of his nose. A kin of Namri, eh? Interesting. What did she do to offend? She allowed me to escape. Leto turned then and followed Sabiha. He found her standing at the edge of the canat. Leto moved up beside her and looked down at the water. There were birds in the nearby fan palms, and he heard their calls, their wings. The workers made scraping sounds as they moved sand. Still, he did as Sabiha did, looking down, deep into the water and its reflections. The corners of his eyes saw blue parakeets in the palm fronds. One flew across the canat, and he saw it reflected in a silver swirl of fish, all run together as though birds and predators swam in the same firmament. Sabiha cleared her throat. You hate me, Leto said. You shamed me. You shamed me before my people. They held an isnad and sent me here to lose my water. All because of you. Muris laughed from close behind them. And now you see, Leto Batig, that our spirit river has many tributaries. But my water flows in your veins, Leto said, turning. That is no tributary. Sabiha is the fate of my vision, and I follow her. I fled across the desert to find my future here in Shulok. You and... He pointed at Sabiha, threw his head back in laughter. It will not be as either of you might believe, Leto said. Remember this, Muris. I have found the footprints of my worm. He felt tears swimming in his eyes then. He gives water to the dead, Sabiha whispered. Even Muriz stared at him in awe. Fremen never cried, unless it was the most profound gift of the soul. Almost embarrassed, Muriz closed his mouth seal, pulled his Jibala hood low over his brows. Leto peered beyond the man, said, Here in Shulok, they still pray for dew at the desert's edge. Go, Muriz, and pray for Kralizek. I promise you it will come. Fremen speech implies great concision, a precise sense of expression. It is immersed in the illusion of absolutes. 
Its assumptions are a fertile ground for absolutist religions. Furthermore, Fremen are fond of moralizing. They confront the terrifying instability of all things with institutionalized statements. They say, we know there is no summer of all attainable knowledge, that is the preserve of God. But whatever men can learn, men can contain. Out of this knife-edged approach to the universe, they carve a fantastic belief in signs and omens and in their own destiny. This is an origin of their Kralizek legend, the war at the end of the universe. Bene Gesserit Private Reports, Folio 800881 They have him securely in a safe place, Namri said, smiling across the square stone room at Gurney Halleck. You may report this to your friends. Where is this safe place? Halleck asked. He didn't like Namri's tone, felt constrained by Jessica's orders. Damn the witch. Her explanations made no sense except the warning about what could happen if Leto failed to master his terrible memories. It's a safe place, Namri said. That's all I'm permitted to tell you. How do you know this? I've had a distrans. Sabiha is with him. Sabiha? She'll just let him. Not this time. Are you going to kill him? That's no longer up to me. Halleck grimaced. Distrans. What was the range of those damned cave bats? He'd often seen them flitting across the desert with hidden messages imprinted upon their squeaking calls, but how far would they go on this hell-hole planet? I must see him for myself, Halleck said. That's not permitted. Halleck took a deep breath to quiet himself. He had spent two days and two nights waiting for search reports. Now it was another morning, and he felt his role dissolving around him, leaving him naked. He had never liked Command, anyway. Command always waited while others did the interesting and dangerous things. Why isn't it permitted? he asked. The smugglers who'd arranged this safe sietch had left too many questions unanswered, and he wanted no more of the same from Namri. Some believe you saw too much when you saw this sietch, Namri said. Halleck heard the menace, relaxed into the easy stance of the trained fighter, hand near but not on his knife. He longed for a shield, but that had been ruled out by its effect on the worms, its short life in the presence of storm-generated static charges. This secrecy isn't part of our agreement, Halleck said. If I'd killed him... Would that have been part of our agreement? Again, Halleck felt the jockeying of unseen forces about which the Lady Jessica hadn't warned him. This damned plan of hers. Maybe it was right not to trust the Bene Gesserit. Immediately he felt disloyal. She'd explained the problem and he'd come into her plan with the expectation that it, like all plans, would need adjustments later. This wasn't any Bene Gesserit. This was Jessica of the Atreides, who'd never been other than friend and supporter to him. Without her, he knew he'd have been adrift in a universe more dangerous than the one he now inhabited. You can't answer my question, Namri said. You were to kill him only if he showed himself to be... possessed, Halleck said. Abomination. Namri put his fist beside his right ear. Your lady knew we had tests for such. Wise of her to leave that judgment in my hands. Halleck compressed his lips in frustration. 
You heard the Reverend Mother's words to me, Namri said. We Fremen understand such women, but you off-worlders never understand them. Fremen women often send their sons to death. Halleck spoke past still lips. Are you telling me you've killed him? He lives. He is in a safe place. He'll continue to receive the spice. But I'm to escort him back to his grandmother if he survives, Halleck said. Namri merely shrugged. Halleck understood that this was all the answer he'd get. Damn. He couldn't go back to Jessica with such unanswered questions. He shook his head. Why question what you cannot change? Namri asked. You're being well paid. Halleck scowled at the man. Fremen. They believed all foreigners were influenced primarily by money. But Namri was speaking more than Fremen prejudice. Other forces were at work here, and that was obvious to one who'd been trained in observation by a Bene Gesserit. This whole thing had the smell of a faint within a faint within a faint. Shifting to the insultingly familiar form, Halleck said, The Lady Jessica will be wrathful. She could send cohorts against... Zanadik, Namri cursed. You obvious messenger. You stand outside the Mohalata. I take pleasure in possessing your water for the noble people. Halleck rested a hand on his knife, readied his left sleeve where he'd prepared a small surprise for attackers. I see no water spilled here, he said. Perhaps you're blinded by your pride. You live because I wished you to learn before dying that your Lady Jessica will not send cohorts against anyone. You are not to be lured quietly into the Huanui off-world scum. I am of the noble people, and you... And I'm just a servant of the Atreides. Halleck said, voice mild. We're the scum who lifted the Harkonnen yoke from your smelly neck. Namri showed white teeth in a grimace. Your lady is prisoner on Salusa Secundus. The notes you thought were from her came from her daughter. By extreme effort, Halleck managed to keep his voice even. No matter. Aaliyah will... Namri drew his knife. What do you know of the womb of heaven? I am her servant, you male whore. I do her bidding when I take your water. And he lunged across the room with foolhardy directness. Halleck, not allowing himself to be tricked by such seeming clumsiness, flicked up the left arm of his robe, releasing the extra length of heavy fabric he'd had sewn there, letting that take Namri's knife. In the same movement, Halleck swept the folds of cloth over Namri's head, came in under and through the cloth with his own knife aimed directly for the face. He felt the point bite home as Namri's body hit him with a hard surface of metal armor beneath the robe. The Fremen emitted one outraged squeal, jerked backward, and fell. He lay there, blood gushing from his mouth as his eyes glared at Halleck, then slowly dulled. Halleck blew air through his lips. How could that fool Namri have expected anyone to miss the presence of armor beneath a robe? Halleck addressed the corpse as he recovered the trick sleeve, wiped his knife, and sheathed it. How did you think we Atreides' servants were trained, fool? He took a deep breath, thinking, Well now, who's faint am I? There'd been the ring of truth in Namri's words. Jessica a prisoner of the Carinos, and Alia working her own devious schemes. 
Jessica herself had warned of many contingencies with Alia as enemy, but had not predicted herself as prisoner. He had his orders to obey, though. First, there was the necessity of getting away from this place. Luckily, one robed Fremen looked much like another. He rolled Namri's body into a corner, threw cushions over it, moved a rug to cover the blood. When it was done, Halleck adjusted the nose and mouth tubes of his stillsuit, brought up the mask as one would in preparing for the desert, pulled the hood of his robe forward, and went out into the long passage. The innocent move without care, he thought, setting his pace at an easy saunter. He felt curiously free, as though he'd moved out of danger, not into it. I never did like her plan for the boy, he thought, and I'll tell her so if I see her. If? Because if Namri spoke the truth, the most dangerous alternate plan went into effect. Alia wouldn't let him live long if she caught him. But there was always Stilgar, a good Fremen with a good Fremen's superstitions. Jessica had explained it. There's a very thin layer of civilized behavior over Stilgar's original nature, and here's how you take that layer off him. The spirit of Muad'Dib is more than words, more than the letter of the law which arises in his name. Muad'Dib must always be that inner outrage against the complacently powerful, against the charlatans and the dogmatic fanatics. It is that inner outrage which must have its say, because Muad'Dib taught us one thing above all others, that humans can endure only in a fraternity of social justice. The Fadaikin Compact. Leto sat with his back against the wall of the hut, his attention on Sabiha, watching the threads of his vision unroll. She had prepared the coffee and set it aside. Now she squatted across from him, stirring his evening meal. It was a gruel, redolent with melange. Her hands moved quickly with a ladle and liquid indigo stained the sides of his bowl. She bent her thin face over the bowl, blending in the concentrate. The crude membrane, which made a still tent of the hut, had been patched with lighter material directly behind her, and this formed a grey halo against which her shadow danced in the flickering light of the cooking flame and the single lamp. That lamp intrigued later. These people of Shulok were profligate with spice oil. A lamp, not a glow-globe. They kept slave outcasts within their walls in the fashion told by the most ancient Fremen traditions, yet they employed ornithopters and the latest spice harvesters. They were a crude mixture of ancient and modern. Sabiha pushed the bowl of gruel toward him, extinguished the cooking flame. Leto ignored the bowl. I will be punished if you do not eat this, she said. He stared at her, thinking, If I kill her, that'll shatter one vision. If I tell her Muriz's plans, that'll shatter another vision. If I wait here for my father, this vision thread will become a mighty rope. His mind sorted the threads. Some held a sweetness which haunted him. One future with Sabiha carried alluring reality within his prescient awareness. It threatened to block out all others until he followed it out to its ending agonies. Why do you stare at me that way? she asked. Still he did not answer. She pushed the bowl closer to him. Leto tried to swallow in a dry throat. 
The impulse to kill Sabiha welled in him. He found himself trembling with it. How easy it would be to shatter one vision and let the wildness run free. Muris commands this, she said, touching the bowl. Yes, Muris commanded it. Superstition conquered everything. Muris wanted a vision cast for him to read. He was an ancient savage asking the witch doctor to throw the ox bones and interpret their sprawl. Muris had taken his captive's still suit as a simple precaution. There'd been a sly jibe at Namri and Sabiha in that comment. Only fools let a prisoner escape. Muris had a deep emotional problem, though, the spirit river. The captive's water flowed in Muris's veins. Muris sought a sign that would permit him to hold a threat of death over Leto. Like father, like son, Leto thought. The spice will only give you visions, Sabiha said. The long silences made her uneasy. I've had visions in the orgy many times. They don't mean anything. That's it, he thought his body locking itself into a stillness which left his skin cold and clammy. The Bene Gesserit training took over his consciousness, a pinpoint illumination which fanned out beyond him to throw the blazoning light of vision upon Sabiha and all of her cast-out fellows. The ancient Bene Gesserit learning was explicit. Languages build up to reflect specializations in a way of life, Each specialization may be recognized by its words, by its assumptions and sentence structures. Look for stoppages. Specializations represent places where life is being stopped, where the movement is dammed up and frozen. He saw Sabiha then as a vision maker in her own right, and every other human carried the same power. Yet she was disdainful of her spice orgy visions. They caused disquiet and, therefore, must be put aside, forgotten deliberately. Her people prayed to Shai Hulud because the worm dominated many of their visions. They prayed for dew at the desert's edge because moisture limited their lives, yet they wallowed in spice wealth and lured sand trout to open canats. Sabiha fed him prescient visions with a casual callousness, yet within her words he saw the illuminated signals. She depended upon absolutes, sought finite limits, and all because she couldn't handle the rigors of terrible decisions which touched her own flesh. She clung to her one-eyed vision of the universe, endlobing and time-freezing as it might be, because the alternatives terrified her. In contrast, Leto felt the pure movement of himself. He was a membrane collecting infinite dimensions, and because he saw those dimensions, he could make the terrible decisions. As my father did. You must eat this, Sabiha said, her voice petulant. Leto saw the whole pattern of the visions now and knew the thread he must follow. My skin is not my own. He stood, pulling his robe around him. It felt strange against his flesh, with no still suit protecting his body. His feet were bare upon the fused spice fabric of the floor, feeling the sand tracked in there. What are you doing? Sabiha demanded. The air is bad in here. I'm going outside. You can't escape, she said. Every canyon has its worm. If you go beyond the canat, the worms will sense you by your moisture. These captive worms are very alert, not like the ones in the desert at all. Besides, how gloating her voice became. 
You've no still suit. Then why do you worry? he asked, wondering if he might yet provoke a real reaction from her. Because you've not eaten. And you'll be punished. Yes, but I'm already saturated with spice, he said. Every moment is a vision. He gestured with a bare foot at the bowl. Pour that onto the sand. Who'll know? They watch, she whispered. He shook his head, shedding her from his visions, feeling new freedom envelop him. No need to kill this poor pawn. She danced to other music, not even knowing the steps, believing that she might yet share the power which lured the hungry pirates of Shulok and Jakurutu. Leto went to the door seal, put a hand upon it. When Muris comes, she said, he'll be very angry with... Muris is a merchant of emptiness, Leto said. My aunt has drained him. She got to her feet. I'm going out with you. And he thought, she remembers how I escaped her. Now she feels the fragility of her hold upon me. Her visions stir within her. But she would not listen to those visions. She had but to reflect. How could he outwit a captive worm in its narrow canyon? How could he live in the Tanzaruft without stillsuit or fremkit? I must be alone to consult my visions, he said. You'll remain here. Where will you go? To the Kanat. The sand trout come out in swarms at night. They won't eat me. Sometimes the worm comes down to just beyond the water, she said. If you cross the Kanat, she broke off, trying to edge her words with menace. How could I mount a worm without hooks? he asked, wondering if she still could salvage some bit of her visions. Will you eat when you return? she asked, squatting once more by the bowl, recovering the ladle and stirring the indigo broth. Everything in its own time, he said, knowing she'd be unable to detect his delicate use of voice, the way he insinuated his own desires into her decision-making. Muris will come and see if you've had a vision, she warned. I will deal with Muris in my own way, he said, noting how heavy and slow her movements had become. The pattern of all Fremen lent itself naturally into the way he guided her now. Fremen were people of extraordinary energy at sunrise, but a deep and lethargic melancholy often overcame them at nightfall. Already she wanted to sink into sleep and dreams. Leto let himself out into the night alone. The sky glittered with stars and he could make out the bulk of surrounding butte against their pattern. He went up under the palms to the canat. For a long time Leto squatted at the canat's edge, listening to the restless hiss of sand within the canyon beyond. A small worm, by the sound of it, chosen for that reason, no doubt. A small worm would be easier to transport. He thought about the worm's capture. The hunters would dull it with a water mist, using the traditional Fremen method of taking a worm for the orgy transformation rite. But this worm would not be killed by immersion. This one would go out on a guild highliner to some hopeful buyer whose desert probably would be too moist. Few off-worlders realized the basic desiccation which the sand trout had maintained on Arrakis. Had maintained. Because even here in the Tanzaruft, there would be many times more airborne moisture than any worm had ever before known short of its death in a Fremen cistern. He heard Sabiha stirring in the hut behind him. She was restless, 
prodded by her own suppressed visions. He wondered how it would be to live outside a vision with her, sharing each moment just as it came of itself. The thought attracted him far more strongly than had any spice vision. There was a certain cleanliness about facing an unknown future. A kiss in the Sietch is worth two in the city. The old Fremen maxim said it all. The traditional Sietch had held a recognizable wildness mingled with shyness. There were traces of that shyness in the people of Jakarutu Shulok, but only traces. This saddened him by revealing what had been lost. Slowly, so slowly that the knowledge was fully upon him before he recognized its beginnings, Leto grew aware of the soft rustling of many creatures all around him. Sand trout. Soon it would be time to shift from one vision to another. He felt the movement of sand trout as a movement within himself. Fremen had lived with the strange creatures for generations, knowing that if you risked a bit of water as bait, you could lure them into reach. Many a Fremen dying of thirst had risked his last few drops of water in this gamble, knowing that the sweet green syrup, teased from a sand trout, might yield a small profit in energy. But the sand trout were mostly the game of children who caught them for the huanui, and for play. Leto shuddered at the thought of what that play meant to him now. He felt one of the creatures slither across his bare foot. It hesitated, then went on, attracted by the greater amount of water in the canut. For a moment, though, he'd felt the reality of his terrible decision. The sand trout glove. It was the play of children. If one held a sand trout in the hand, smoothing it over your skin, it formed a living glove. Traces of blood in the skin's capillaries could be sensed by the creatures, but something mingled with the blood's water repelled them. Sooner or later the glove would slip off into the sand, there to be lifted into a spice-fibre basket. The spice soothed them until they were dumped into the death still. He could hear sand trout dropping into the canard, the swirl of predators eating them. Water softened the sand trout, made it pliable. Children learned this early. A bit of saliva teased out the sweet syrup. Leto listened to the splashing. This was a migration of sand trout come up to the open water, but they could not contain a flowing canard patrolled by predator fish. Still they came. Still they splashed. Leto groped on the sand with his right hand until his fingers encountered the leathery skin of a sand trout. It was the large one he had expected. The creature didn't try to evade him, but moved eagerly onto his flesh. He explored its outline with his free hand, roughly diamond-shaped. It had no head, no extremities, no eyes. Yet it could find water unerringly. With its fellows it could join body to body locking one on another by the coarse interlacings of extruded cilia until the whole became one large sac organism enclosing the water, walling off the poison from the giant which the sand trout would become, Shai Hulud. The sand trout squirmed on his hand, elongating, stretching. As it moved, he felt a counterpart elongating and stretching of the vision he had chosen. This thread, not that one. He felt the sand trout becoming thin, covering more and more of his hand. No sand trout had ever before encountered a hand such as this one, every cell supersaturated with spice. 
No other human had ever before lived and reasoned in such a condition. Delicately, Leto adjusted his enzyme balance, drawing on the illuminated sureness he'd gained in spice trance. The knowledge from those uncounted lifetimes which blended themselves within him provided the certainty through which he chose the precise adjustments, staving off the death from an overdose which would engulf him if he relaxed his watchfulness for only a heartbeat. And at the same time, he blended himself with the sand trout, feeding on it, feeding it, learning it. His trance vision provided the template, and he followed it precisely. Leto felt the sand trout grow thin, spreading itself over more and more of his hand, reaching up his arm. He located another, placing it over the first one. Contact ignited a frenzied squirming in the creatures, their cilia locked and they became a single membrane which enclosed him to the elbow. The sand trout adjusted to the living glove of childhood play, but thinner and more sensitive as he lured it into the role of a skin symbiote. He reached down with a living glove, felt sand, each grain distinct to his senses. This was no longer sand trout, it was tougher stronger, and it would grow stronger and stronger. His groping hand encountered another sand trout, which whipped itself into union with the first two and adapted itself to the new role. Leathery softness insinuated itself up his arm to his shoulder. With a terrible singleness of concentration, he achieved the union of his new skin with his body, preventing rejection. No corner of his attention was left to dwell upon the terrifying consequences of what he did here. Only the necessities of his trance vision mattered. Only the golden path could come from this ordeal. Leto shed his robe and lay naked upon the sand, his gloved arm outstretched into the path of migrating sand trout. He remembered that once he and Ganima had caught a sand trout, abraded it against the sand until it contracted into the child worm, a stiff tube, its interior pregnant with the green syrup. One bit gently upon the end and sucked swiftly before the wound was healed, gaining the few drops of sweetness. They were all over his body now. He could feel the pulse of his blood against the living membrane. One tried to cover his face, but he moved it roughly until it elongated into a thin roll. The thing grew much longer than the child worm, remaining flexible. Leto bit the end of it, tasted a thin stream of sweetness which continued far longer than any Fremen had ever before experienced. He could feel energy from the sweetness flow through him. A curious excitement suffused his body. He was kept busy for a time rolling the membrane away from his face until he'd built up a stiff ridge, circling from jaw to forehead and leaving his ears exposed. Now the vision must be tested. He got to his feet, turned to run back toward the hut, and as he moved, found his feet moving too fast for him to balance. He plunged into the sand, rolled and leaped to his feet. The leap took him two meters off the sand, and when he fell back trying to walk, he again moved too fast. Stop, he commanded himself. He fell into the Pranabindu forced relaxation, gathering his senses into the pool of consciousness. This focused the inward ripples of the constant now through which he experienced time, and he allowed the vision elation to warm him. The membrane worked precisely as the vision had predicted. 
My skin is not my own. But his muscles took some training to live with this amplified movement. When he walked, he fell, rolling. Presently he sat. In the quiet, the ridge below his jaw tried to become a membrane covering his mouth. He spat against it and bit, tasting the sweet syrup. It rolled downward to the pressure of his hand. Enough time had passed to form the union with his body. Leto stretched flat and turned onto his face. He began to crawl, rasping the membrane against the sand. He could feel the sand distinctly, but nothing abraded his own flesh. With only a few swimming movements, he traversed fifty meters of sand. The physical reaction was a friction-induced warming sensation. The membrane no longer tried to cover his nose and mouth, but now he faced the second major step onto his golden path. His exertions had taken him beyond the canat into the canyon where the trapped worm stayed. He heard it hissing toward him, attracted by his movements. Leto leaped to his feet, intending to stand and wait, but the amplified movement sent him sprawling twenty meters farther into the canyon. Controlling his reactions with terrible effort, he sat back onto his haunches, straightened. Now the sand began to swirl directly in front of him, rising up in a monstrous, starlit curve. Sand opened only two body lengths from him. Crystal teeth flashed in the dim light. He saw the yawning mouth cavern with, far back, the ambient movement of dim flame. The overpowering redolence of the spice swept over him, but the worm had stopped. It remained in front of him as first moon lifted over the butte. The light reflected off the worm's teeth outlined the fairy glow of chemical fires deep within the creature. So deep was the inbred Fremen fear that Leto found himself torn by a desire to flee, but his vision held him motionless, fascinated by this prolonged moment. No one had ever before stood this close to the mouth of a living worm and survived. Gently, Leto moved his right foot, met a sand ridge, and, reacting too quickly, was propelled toward the worm's mouth. He came to a stop on his knees. Still, the worm did not move. It sensed only the sand trout and would not attack the deep sand vector of its own kind. The worm would attack another worm in its territory and would come to exposed spice. Only a water barrier stopped it, and sand trout encapsulating water were a water barrier. Experimentally, Leto moved a hand toward that awesome mouth. The worm drew back a full meter. Confidence restored. Leto turned away from the worm and began teaching his muscles to live with their new power. Cautiously, he walked back toward the canat. The worm remained motionless behind him. When Leto was beyond the water barrier, he leaped with joy, went sailing ten meters across the sand, sprawled, rolled, laughed. Light flared on the sand as the hut's door seal was breached. Sabiha stood outlined in the yellow and purple glow of the lamp, staring out at him. Laughing, Leto ran back across the canut, stopped in front of the worm, turned and faced her with his arms outstretched. Look, he called, the worm does my bidding. As she stood in frozen shock, he whirled, went racing around the worm and into the canyon. Gaining experience with his new skin, he found he could run with only the lightest flexing of muscles. It was almost effortless. 
When he put effort into running, he raced over the sand with the wind burning the exposed circle of his face. At the canyon's dead end, instead of stopping, he leaped up a full fifteen meters, clawed at the cliff, scrabbled, climbing like an insect and came out on the crest above the Tanzaruft. The desert stretched before him, a vast silvery undulance in the moonlight. Leto's manic exhilaration receded. He squatted, sensing how light his body felt. Exertion had produced a slick film of perspiration which a stillsuit would have absorbed and routed into the transfer tissue which removed the salts. Even as he relaxed, the film disappeared now, absorbed by the membrane faster than a stillsuit could have done it. Thoughtfully, Leto rolled a length of the membrane beneath his lips, pulled it into his mouth, and drank the sweetness. His mouth was not masked, though. Fremen-wise, he sensed his body's moisture being wasted with every breath. Leto brought a section of the membrane over his mouth, rolled it back when it tried to seal his nostrils, kept at this until the rolled barrier remained in place. In the desert way, he fell into the automatic breathing pattern, in through his nose, out through his mouth. The membrane over his mouth protruded in a small bubble, but remained in place. No moisture collected on his lips, and his nostrils remained open. The adaptation proceeded then. A thopter flew between Leto and the moon, banked and came in for a spread-wing landing on the butte perhaps a hundred meters to his left. Leto glanced at it, turned, and looked back the way he had come up the canyon. Many lights could be seen down there beyond the canat, a stirring of a multitude. He heard faint outcries, sensed hysteria in the sounds. Two men approached him from the thopter, Moonlight glinted on their weapons. The Mashad, Leto thought, and it was a sad thought. Here was the great leap onto the golden path. He had put on the living, self-repairing stillsuit of a sand trout membrane, a thing of unmeasurable value on Arrakis. Until you understood the price. I am no longer human. The legends about this night will grow and magnify it beyond anything recognizable by the participants, but it will become truth, that legend. He peered down from the butte, estimated the desert floor lay two hundred meters below. The moon picked out ledges and cracks on the steep face, but no connecting pathway. Leto stood, inhaled a deep breath, glanced back at the approaching men, then stepped to the cliff's edge and launched himself into space. Some thirty meters down, his flexed legs encountered a narrow ledge. Amplified muscles absorbed the shock and rebounded in a leap sideways to another ledge, where he caught a narrow outcropping with his hands, dropped twenty meters, leaped to another handhold and once more went down, bouncing, leaping, grasping tiny ledges. He took the final forty meters in one jump, landing in a bent-knee roll which sent him plunging down the slip face of a dune in a shower of sand and dust. At the bottom he scrambled to his feet, launched himself to the next dune crest in one jump. He could hear hoarse shouts from atop the cliff, but ignored them to concentrate on the leaping strides from dune-top to dune-top. As he grew more accustomed to amplified muscles, he found a sensuous joy that he had not anticipated in this distance-gulping movement. It was a ballet on the desert, defiance of the Tansaruft which no other had ever experienced.
When he judged that the ornithopter's occupants had overcome their shock enough to mount pursuit once more, he dove for the moon-shadowed face of a dune, burrowed into it. The sand was like heavy liquid to his new strength, but the temperature mounted dangerously when he moved too fast. He broke free on the far face of the dune, found that the membrane had covered his nostrils. He removed it, sensing the new skin pulsing over his body in its labor to absorb his perspiration. Leto fashioned a tube at his mouth, drank the syrup while he peered upward at the starry sky. He estimated he had come fifteen kilometers from Shulok. Presently, a thopter drew its pattern across the stars, a great bird shape followed by another and another. He heard the soft swishing of their wings, the whisper of their muted jets. Sipping at the living tube, he waited. First moon passed through its track, then second moon. An hour before dawn, Leto crept out and up to the dune crest, examined the sky. No hunters. Now he knew himself to be embarked upon a path of no return. Ahead lay the trap in time and space, which had been prepared as an unforgettable lesson for himself and all of mankind. Leto turned northeast and loped another fifty kilometers before burrowing into the sand for the day, leaving only a tiny hole to the surface which he kept open with a sand trout tube. The membrane was learning how to live with him as he learned how to live with it. He tried not to think of the other things it was doing to his flesh. Tomorrow I'll raid Gararulan, he thought. I'll smash their canut and loose its water into the sand. Then I'll go on to Windsack, Old Gap, and Harg. In a month, the ecological transformation will have been set back a full generation. That'll give us space to develop the new timetable. And the wildness of the rebel tribes would be blamed, of course. Some would revive memories of Jakarutu. Alia would have her hands full. As for Ganima, silently to himself, Leto mouthed the words which would restore her memory. Time for that later if they survived this terrible mixing of threads. The golden path lured him out there on the desert, almost a physical thing which he could see with his open eyes, and he thought how it was. As animals must move across the land, their existence dependent upon that movement, the soul of humankind, blocked for eons, needed a track upon which it could move. He thought of his father then, telling himself, Soon we'll dispute as man to man, and only one vision will emerge. Limits of survival are set by climate, those long drifts of change which a generation may fail to notice. And it is the extremes of climate which set the pattern. Lonely, finite humans may observe climatic provinces, fluctuations of annual weather, and occasionally may observe such things as, this is a colder year than I've ever known. Such things are sensible. But humans are seldom alerted to the shifting average through a great span of years. And it is precisely in this alerting that humans learn how to survive on any planet. They must learn climate. Arrakis the transformation, after Hark Aladar. Alia sat cross-legged on her bed, trying to compose herself by reciting the litany against fear, but chuckling derision echoed in her skull to block every effort. She could hear the voice. It controlled her ears. 
her mind. What nonsense is this? What have you to fear? The muscles of her calves twitched as her feet tried to make running motions. There was nowhere to run. She wore only a golden gown of the sheerest Paleon silk, and it revealed the plumpness which had begun to bulge her body. The hour of assassins had just passed. Dawn was near. Reports covering the past three months lay before her on the red coverlet. She could hear the humming of the air conditioner, and a small breeze stirred the labels on the Shigawa spools. Aides had awakened her fearfully two hours earlier, bringing news of the latest outrage, and Alia had called for the report spools seeking an intelligible pattern. She gave up on the litany. These attacks had to be the work of rebels, obviously. More and more of them turned against Muad'Dib's religion. And what's wrong with that? the derisive voice asked within her. Alia shook her head savagely. Namri had failed her. She'd been a fool to trust such a dangerous double instrument. Her aides whispered that Stilgar was to blame, that he was a secret rebel, and what had become of Halleck, gone to ground among his smuggler friends? Possibly. She picked up one of the report spools. And Muris. The man was hysterical. That was the only possible explanation. Otherwise, she'd have to believe in miracles. No human, let alone a child, even a child such as Leto, could leap from the butte at Shulok and survive to flee across the desert in leaps that took him from Dunecrest to Dunecrest. Alia felt the coldness of the Shigawire under her hand. Where was Leto then? Ganima refused to believe him other than dead. A truthsayer had confirmed her story, Leto slain by a laser tiger. Then who was the child reported by Namri and Muris? She shuddered. Forty Kanats had been breached, their waters loosed into the sand. The loyal Fremen and even the rebels, superstitious louts all. Her reports were flooded with stories of mysterious occurrences, sand trout leaping into Kanats and shattered to become hosts of small replicas. Worms deliberately drowned themselves, blood dripped from second moon and fell to Arrakis, where it stirred up great storms, and the storm frequency was increasing. She thought of Duncan incommunicado at Tabur, fretting under the restraints she'd exacted from Stilgar. He and Irulan talked of little else than the real meaning behind these omens. Fools! Even her spies betrayed the influence of these outrageous stories. Why did Ganima insist on her story of the laser tiger? Alia sighed. Only one of the reports on the Shigawire spools reassured her. Faridun had sent a contingent of his household guard to help you in troubles and to prepare the way for the official rite of betrothal. Alia smiled to herself and shared the chuckle which rumbled in her skull. That plan at least remained intact. Logical explanations would be found to dispel all of this other superstitious nonsense. Meanwhile, she'd use Faridun's men to help close down Shulok and to arrest the known dissidents, especially among the naibs. She debated moving against Stilgar, but the inner voice cautioned against this. Not yet. My mother and the sisterhood still have some plan of their own, Alia whispered. Why is she training Faridun? Perhaps he excites her, the old baron said. Not that cold one. You're not thinking of asking Faridun to return her? 
I know the dangers in that. Good. Meanwhile, that young aide Zia recently brought in, I believe his name's Agaves, Buer Agaves. If you'd invite him here tonight... No! Alia. It's almost dawn, you insatiable old fool. There's a military council meeting this morning. The priests will have... Don't trust them, darling Alia. Of course not. Very well. Now, this Buer Agaves... I said no. The old baron remained silent within her, but she began to feel a headache. A slow pain crept upward from her left cheek into her skull. Once he'd sent her raging down the corridors with this trick, now she resolved to resist him. If you persist, I'll take a sedative, she said. He could see she meant it. The headache began to recede. Very well petulant. Another time, then. Another time, she agreed. Thou didst divide the sand by thy strength. Thou breakest the heads of the dragons in the desert. Yea, I behold thee as a beast coming up from the dunes. Thou hast the two horns of the lamb, but thou speakest as the dragon. Revised Orange Catholic Bible, Aaron 2, 4. It was the immutable prophecy, the threads become rope, a thing Leto now seemed to have known all of his life. He looked out across the evening shadows on the Tanzaruft. One hundred and seventy kilometers due north lay Old Gap, the deep and twisting crevice through the shield wall by which the first Fremen had migrated into the desert. No doubts remained in Leto. He knew why he stood here alone in the desert, yet filled with a sense that he owned this entire land, that it must do his bidding. He felt the cord which connected him with all of humankind, and that profound need for a universe of experiences which made logical sense, a universe of recognizable regularities within its perpetual changes. I know this universe. The worm which had brought him here had come to the stamping of his foot and, rising up in front of him, had stopped, like an obedient beast. He'd leaped atop it and, with only his membrane-amplified hands, had exposed the leading lip of the worm's rings to keep it on the surface. The worm had exhausted itself in the night-long dash northward. Its silicon-sulfur internal factory had worked at capacity, exhaling lavish gusts of oxygen, which a following wind had sent in enveloping eddies around Leto. At times the warm gusts had made him dizzy, filled his mind with strange perceptions. The reflexive and circular subjectivity of his visions had turned inward upon his ancestry, forcing him to relive portions of his tyrannic past, then comparing those portions with his changing self. Already he could feel how far he'd drifted from something recognizably human. Seduced by the spice which he gulped from every trace he found, the membrane which covered him no longer was sand trout, just as he was no longer human. Celia had crept into his flesh, forming a new creature which would seek its own metamorphosis in the eons ahead. You saw this, father, and rejected it, he thought. It was a thing too terrible to face. Leto knew what was believed of his father and why. Muad'Dib died of prescience. 
but Paul Atreides had passed from the universe of reality into the Alam al-Mithal while still alive, fleeing from this thing which his son had dared. Now there was only the preacher. Leto squatted on the sand and kept his attention northward. The worm would come from that direction, and on its back would ride two people, a young Fremen and a blind man. A flight of pallid bats passed over Leto's head, bending their course southeast. They were random specks in the darkening sky, and a knowledgeable Fremen eye could mark their back course to learn where shelter lay that way. The preacher would avoid that shelter, though. His destination was Shulok, where no wild bats were permitted lest they guide strangers to a secret place. The worm appeared first as a dark movement between the desert and the northern sky. Matar, the rain of sand, dropped from high altitudes by a dying storm wind, obscured the view for a few minutes, then it returned, clearer and closer. The cold line at the base of the dune where Leto crouched began to produce its nightly moisture. He tasted the fragile dampness in his nostrils, adjusted the bubble cap of the membrane over his mouth. There no longer was any need for him to find soaks and sip wells. From his mother's genes, he had that longer, larger Fremen large intestine to take back water from everything which came its way. The living stillsuit grasped and retained every bit of moisture it encountered, and even while he sat here, the membrane which touched sand extruded pseudopod cilia to hunt for bits of energy which it could store. Leto studied the approaching worm. He knew the youthful guide had seen him by this time, noting the spot atop the dune. The worm rider would discern no principle in this object seen from a distance, but that was a problem Fremen had learned how to handle. Any unknown object was dangerous. The young guide's reactions would be quite predictable, even without the vision. True to that prediction, the worm's course shifted slightly, and aimed directly at Leto. Giant worms were a weapon which Fremen had employed many times. Worms had helped beat Shaddam at Arakin. This worm, however, failed to do its rider's bidding. It came to a halt ten meters away, and no manner of goading would send it across another grain of sand. Leto arose, feeling the cilia snap back into the membrane behind him. He freed his mouth and called out, Achlan! Was Achlan! Welcome! Twice welcome! The blind man stood behind his guide atop the worm, one hand on the youth's shoulder. The man held his face high, nose pointed over Leto's head as though trying to sniff out this interruption, sunset painted orange on his forehead. Who is that? the blind man asked, shaking his guide's shoulder. Why have we stopped? His voice was nasal through the still-suit plugs. The youth stared fearfully down at Leto, said, It is only someone alone in the desert, a child by his looks. I tried to send the worm over him, but the worm won't go. Why didn't you say? the blind man demanded. I thought it was only someone alone in the desert, the youth protested. But it's a demon. Spoken like a true son of Jakarutu, Leto said. And you, sire, you are the preacher. I am that one, yes. And there was fear in the preacher's voice because, at last, he had met his own past. This is no garden, Leto said but you are welcome to share this place with me tonight. Who are you? the preacher demanded. How have you stopped our worm? There was an ominous tone of recognition in the preacher's voice. 
Now he called up the memories of this alternate vision, knowing he could reach an end here. It is a demon, the young guide protested. We must flee this place or our souls. Silence, the preacher roared. I am Leto Atreides, Leto said. Your worm stopped because I commanded it. The preacher stood in frozen silence. Come, father, Leto said. Alight and spend the night with me. I'll give you sweet syrup to sip. I see you fremkits with food and water jars. We'll share our riches here upon the sand. Leto's yet a child, the preacher protested. And they say he's dead of Corino treachery. There's no childhood in your voice. You know me, sire, Leto said. I'm small for my age as you were, but my experience is ancient and my voice has learned. What do you hear in the inner desert? the preacher asked. Buji, Leto said. Nothing from nothing. It was the answer of a Zensuni wanderer, one who acted only from a position of rest, without effort and in harmony with his surroundings. The preacher shook his guide's shoulder. Is it a child? Truly a child? Aya, the youth said, keeping a fearful attention on Leto. A great shuddering sigh shook the preacher. No, he said. It is a demon in child form, the guide said. You will spend the night here, Leto said. We will do as he says, the preacher said. He released his grip on the guide, slipped off the worm's side, and slid down a ring to the sand, leaping clear when his feet touched. Turning, he said, Take the worm off and send it back into the sand. It is tired and will not bother us. The worm will not go, the youth protested. It will go, Leto said. But if you try to flee on it, I'll let it eat you. He moved to one side out of the worm's sensory range, pointed in the direction they had come. Go that way. The youth tapped a goad against the ring behind him, wiggled a hook where it held a ring open. Slowly the worm began to slide over the sand, turning as the youth shifted his hook down aside. The preacher, following the sound of Leto's voice, clambered up the dune slope and stood two paces away. It was done with a swift sureness which told Leto this would be no easy contest. Here the visions parted. Leto said, Remove your suit mask, father. The preacher obeyed, dropping the fold of his hood and withdrawing the mouth cover. Knowing his own appearance, Leto studied this face, seeing the lines of likeness as though they'd been outlined in light. The lines formed an indefinable reconciliation, a pathway of genes without sharp boundaries, and there was no mistaking them. Those lines came down to Leto from the humming days, from the water-dripping days, from the miracle seas of Caladan. But now they stood at a dividing point on Arrakis as night waited to fold itself into the dunes. So, father, Leto said, glancing to the left, where he could see the youthful guide trudging back to them from where the worm had been abandoned. Mutzain, the preacher said, waving his right hand in a cutting gesture. This is no good. Coolish Zain, Leto said, voice soft. This is all the good we may ever have. And he added, speaking in Jacobsa, the Atreides' battle language, Here I am, here I remain. We cannot forget that, father. 
The preacher's shoulders sagged. He put both hands to his empty sockets in a long, unused gesture. I gave you the sight of my eyes once and took your memories, Leto said. I know your decisions, and I've been to that place where you hid yourself. I know, the preacher lowered his hands. You will remain. You named me for the man who put that on his coat of arms, Leto said. J'y suis, j'y reste. The preacher sighed deeply. How far has it gone, this thing you've done to yourself? My skin is not my own, father. The preacher shuddered. Then I know how you found me here. Yes, I fastened my memory to a place my flesh had never known, Leto said. I need an evening with my father. I'm not your father. I'm only a poor copy, a relic. He turned his head toward the sound of the approaching guide. I no longer go to the visions for my future. As he spoke, darkness covered the desert. Stars leaped out above them and Leto, too, turned toward the approaching guide. Wubach, Ulkoha, Leto called to the youth. Greetings. Back came the response. Subach onar. Speaking in a hoarse whisper, the preacher said, That young Asan Tariq is a dangerous one. All of the cast out are dangerous, Leto said, but not to me. He spoke in a low, conversational tone. If that's your vision, I will not share it, the preacher said. Perhaps you have no choice, Leto said. You are the Phil Hakika, the reality. You are Abu Dur, father of the infinite roads of time. I'm no more than bait in a trap, the preacher said, and his voice was bitter. And Alia already has eaten that bait, Plato said. But I don't like its taste. You cannot do this, the preacher hissed. I've already done it. My skin is not my own. Perhaps it's not too late for you to... It is too late. Plato bent his head to one side. He could hear Asan Tariq trudging up the dune slope toward them, coming to the sound of their voices. Greetings, Asan Tariq of Shulok, Leto said. The youth stopped just below Leto on the slope, a dark shadow there in the starlight. There was indecision in the set of his shoulders, the way he tipped his head. Yes, Leto said, I'm the one who escaped from Shulok. When I heard, the preacher began, and again, You cannot do this. I am doing it. What matter if you're made blind once more? You think I fear that? The preacher asked. Do you not see the fine guide they have provided for me? I see him. Again Leto faced Tariq. Didn't you hear me, Asan? I'm the one who escaped from Shulok. You're a demon, the youth quavered. Your demon, Leto said. But you are my demon and Leto felt the tension grow between himself and his father. It was a shadow play all around them, a projection of unconscious forms, and Leto felt the memories of his father, a form of backward prophecy which sorted visions from the familiar reality of this moment. Tariq sensed it, this battle of the visions. He slid several paces backward down the slope. You cannot control the future. 
the preacher whispered, and the sound of his voice was filled with effort as though he lifted a great weight. Leto felt the dissonance between them then. It was an element of the universe with which his entire life grappled. Either he or his father would be forced to act soon, making a decision by that act, choosing a vision. And his father was right. Trying for some ultimate control of the universe, you only built weapons with which the universe eventually defeated you. To choose and manage a vision required you to balance on a single thin thread, playing God on a high, tight wire with cosmic solitude on both sides. Neither contestant could retreat into death as your cease from paradox. Each knew the visions and the rules. All of the old illusions were dying, and when one contestant moved, the other might counter-move. The only real truth that mattered to them now was that which separated them from the vision background. There was no place of safety, only a transitory shifting of relationships marked out within the limits which they now imposed and bound for inevitable changes. Each of them had only a desperate and lonely courage upon which to rely, but Leto possessed two advantages. He had committed himself upon a path from which there was no turning back, and he had accepted the terrible consequences to himself. His father still hoped there was a way back, and had made no final commitment. You must not! You must not! the preacher rasped. He sees my advantage, Leto thought. Leto spoke in a conversational tone, masking his own tensions, the balancing effort this other level contest required. I have no passionate belief in truth, no faith other than what I create, he said, and he felt then a movement between himself and his father, something with granular characteristics which touched only Leto's own passionately subjective belief in himself. By such belief he knew that he posted the markers of the golden path. Some day such markers could tell others how to be human, a strange gift from a creature who no longer would be human on that day. But these markers were always set in place by gamblers. Leto felt them scattered throughout the landscape of his inner lives, and, feeling this, poised himself for the ultimate gamble. Softly he sniffed the air, seeking the signal which both he and his father knew must come. One question remained. Would his father warn the terrified young guide who waited below them? Presently, Leto sensed ozone in his nostrils, the betraying odor of a shield. True to his orders from the cast out, young Tariq was trying to kill both of these dangerous Atreides, not knowing the horrors which this would precipitate. Don't, the preacher whispered. But Leto knew the signal was a true one. He sensed ozone, but there was no tingling in the air around them. Tariq used a pseudo-shield in the desert, a weapon developed exclusively for Arrakis. The Holtzman effect would summon a worm while it maddened that worm. Nothing would stop such a worm, not water, not the presence of sand trout, nothing. Yes, the youth had planted the device in the dune slope and was beginning to edge away from the danger zone. Leto launched himself off the dune top, hearing his father scream in protest, but the awful impetus of Leto's amplified muscles threw his body like a missile. One outflung hand caught the neck of Tariq's stillsuit. The other slapped around to grip the doomed youth's robe at the waist. There came a single snap as the neck broke. 
Leto rolled, lifting his body like a finely balanced instrument which dove directly into the sand where the pseudo-shield had been hidden. Fingers found the thing and he had it out of the sand, throwing it in a looping arc far out to the south of them. Presently there came a great, hissing, thrashing din out on the desert where the pseudo-shield had gone. It subsided and silence returned. Leto looked up to the top of the dune where his father stood, still defiant but defeated. That was Paul Muad'Dib up there, blind, angry, near despair as a consequence of his flight from the vision which Leto had accepted. Paul's mind would be reflecting now upon the Zen Sunni Long Koan. In the one act of predicting an accurate future, Muad'Dib introduced an element of development and growth into the very prescience through which he saw human existence. By this, he brought uncertainty onto himself. Seeking the absolute of orderly prediction, he amplified disorder, distorted prediction. Returning to the dune top in a single leap, Leto said, Now I'm your guide. Never. Would you go back to Shulok, even if they'd welcome you when you arrived without Tariq? Where has Shulok gone now? Do your eyes see it? Paul confronted his son then, aiming the eyeless sockets at Leto. Do you really know the universe you have created here? Leto heard the particular emphasis. The vision which both of them knew had been set into terrible motion here had required an act of creation at a certain point in time. For that moment, the entire sentient universe shared a linear view of time which possessed characteristics of orderly progression. They entered this time as they might step onto a moving vehicle, and they could only leave it the same way. Against this, Leto held the multi-thread reins, balanced in his own vision-lighted view of time as multi-linear and multi-looped. He was the sighted man in the universe of the blind. Only he could scatter the orderly rationale because his father no longer held the reins. In Leto's view, a son had altered the past, and a thought as yet undreamed in the farthest future could reflect upon the now and move his hand. Only his hand. Paul knew this because he no longer could see how Leto might manipulate the reins, could only recognize the inhuman consequences which Leto had accepted, and he thought, Here is the change for which I prayed. Why do I fear it? Because it's the golden path. I'm here to give purpose to evolution, and therefore to give purpose to our lives, Leto said. Do you wish to change those thousands of years, changing as you now know you will change? Leto recognized that his father was not speaking about physical changes. Both of them knew the physical consequences. Leto would adapt and adapt. The skin which was not his own would adapt and adapt. The evolutionary thrust of each part would melt into the other and a single transformation would emerge. When metamorphosis came, if it came, a thinking creature of awesome dimensions would emerge upon the universe, and that universe would worship him. No. Paul was referring to the inner changes, the thoughts and decisions which would inflict themselves upon the worshippers. Those who think you dead, Leto said, you know what they say about your last words. Of course. Now I do what all life must do in the service of life, Plato said. You never said that, but a priest who thought you could never return and call him liar put those words into your mouth. I'd not call him liar, 
Paul took in a deep breath. Those are good last words. Would you stay here or return to that hut in the basin of Shulok? Leto asked. This is your universe now, Paul said. The words filled with defeat cut through Leto. Paul had tried to guide the last strands of a personal vision, a choice he'd made years before in Siech Tabur. For that, he'd accepted his role as an instrument of revenge for the cast out, the remnants of Jakarutu. They had contaminated him, but he'd accepted this rather than his view of this universe which Leto had chosen. The sadness in Leto was so great he could not speak for several minutes. When he could manage his voice, Leto said, So you baited Alia, tempted her and confused her into inaction and the wrong decisions, and now she knows who you are. She knows. Yes, she knows. Paul's voice was old then, and filled with hidden protests. There was a reserve of defiance in him, though. He said, I'll take the vision away from you if I can. Thousands of peaceful years, Leto said. That's what I'll give them. Dormancy, stagnation, of course, and those forms of violence which I permit. It'll be a lesson which humankind will never forget. I spit on your lesson, Paul said. You think I've not seen a thing similar to what you choose? You saw it, Leto agreed. Is your vision any better than mine? Not one whit better. Worse, perhaps, Leto said. Then what can I do but resist you? Paul demanded. Kill me, perhaps? I'm not that innocent. I know what you've set in motion. I know about the broken kanats and the unrest. And now Asan Tariq will never return to Shulok. You must go back with me or not at all, because this is my vision now. I choose not to go back. How old his voice sounds, Leto thought. And the thought was a wrenching pain. He said, I've the hawk ring of the Atreides concealed in my dish, Dasha. Do you wish me to return it to you? If I'd only died, Paul whispered. I truly wanted to die when I went into the desert that night, but I knew I could not leave this world. I had to come back and... Restore the legend, Leto said. I know, and the jackals of Jakarutu were waiting for you that night, as you knew they would be. They wanted your visions. You knew that. I refused. I never gave them one vision. But they contaminated you. They fed you spice essence and plied you with women and dreams, and you did have visions. Sometimes. How sly his voice sounded. Will you take back your hawk ring? Leto asked. Paul sat down suddenly on the sand, a dark blotch in the starlight. No. So he knows the futility of that path, Leto thought. This revealed much, but not enough. The contest of the visions had moved from its delicate plane of choices down to a gross discarding of alternates. Paul knew he could not win, but he hoped yet to nullify that single vision to which Leto clung. Presently, Paul said, Yes, I was contaminated by the Jakarutu but you contaminate yourself. That's true, Leto admitted. I am your son. And are you a good Fremen? Yes. Will you permit a blind man to go into the desert, finally? Will you let me find peace on my own terms? He pounded the sand beside him. No, I'll not permit that, Leto said. 
but it's your right to fall upon your knife if you insist upon it. And you would have my body? True. No. And so he knows that path, Leto thought. The enshrining of Muad'Dib's body by his son could be contrived as a form of cement for Leto's vision. You never told them, did you, father? Leto asked. I never told them. But I told them, Leto said. I told Muris, Kralizek, the typhoon struggle. Paul's shoulders sagged. You cannot, he whispered. You cannot. I am a creature of this desert now, father. Leto said. Would you speak thus to a Coriolis storm? You think me coward for refusing that path, Paul said, his voice husky and trembling. Oh, I understand you well, son. Augury and haruspication have always been their own torments, but I was never lost in the possible futures because this one is unspeakable. Your jihad will be a summer picnic on Caladan by comparison, Leto agreed. I'll take you to Gurney Halleck now. Gurney. He serves the sisterhood through my mother. And now Leto understood the extent of his father's vision. No, father. Gurney no longer serves anyone. I know the place to find him, and I can take you there. It's time for the new legend to be created. I see that I cannot sway you. Let me touch you then, for you are my son. Leto held out his right hand to meet the groping fingers felt their strength, matched it, and resisted every shift of Paul's arm. Not even a poisoned knife will harm me now, Leto said. I'm already a different chemistry. Tears slipped from the sightless eyes and Paul released his grip, dropped his hand to his side. If I'd chosen your way, I'd have become the Bikoros of Shaitan. What will you become? For a time they'll call me the missionary of Shaitan too, Leto said. Then they'll begin to wonder, and finally they'll understand. You didn't take your vision far enough, father. Your hands did good things and evil. But the evil was known after the event, which is the way of many great evils, Leto said. You crossed over only into a part of my vision. Was your strength not enough? You know I couldn't stay there. I could never do an evil act which was known before the act. I'm not Jakarutu. He clambered to his feet. Do you think me one of those who laughs alone at night? It is sad that you were never really Fremen, Leto said. We Fremen know how to commission the Arifa. Our judges can choose between evils. It's always been that way for us. Fremen, is it? Slaves of the fate you helped to make? Paul stepped toward Leto, reached out in an oddly shy movement, touched Leto's sheathed arm, explored up it to where the membrane exposed an ear, then the cheek, and finally the mouth. Ah, that is your own flesh yet, he said. Where will that flesh take you? He dropped his hand. Into a place where humans may create their futures from instant to instant. So you say. An abomination might say the same. I'm not abomination, though I might have been, Leto said. I saw how it goes with Alia. A demon lives in her father. Gani and I know that demon. It's the Baron, your grandfather.
Paul buried his face in his hands. His shoulders shook for a moment, then he lowered his hands and his mouth was set in a harsh line. There is a curse upon our house. I prayed that you would throw that ring into the sand, that you deny me and run away to make another life. It was there for you. At what price? After a long silence, Paul said, The end adjusts the path behind it. Just once I failed to fight for my principles. Just once. I accepted the Martinet. I did it for Cheney. But it made me a bad leader. Later found he couldn't answer this. The memory of that decision was there within him. I cannot lie to you any more than I could lie to myself, Paul said. I know this. Every man should have such an auditor. I will only ask this one thing. Is the typhoon struggle necessary? It's that, or humans will be extinguished. Paul heard the truth in Leto's words, spoke in a low voice which acknowledged the greater breadth of his son's vision. I did not see that among the choices. I believe the sisterhood suspects it, Leto said. I cannot accept any other explanation of my grandmother's decision. The night wind blew coldly around them then. It whipped Paul's robe around his legs. He trembled. Seeing this, Leto said, You've a kit, father. I'll inflate the tent, and we can spend this night in comfort. But Paul could only shake his head, knowing he would have no comfort from this night or any other. Muad'Dib, the hero, must be destroyed. He'd said it himself. Only the preacher could go on now. Fremen were the first humans to develop a conscious-unconscious symbology through which to experience the movements and relationships of their planetary system. They were the first people anywhere to express climate in terms of a semi-mathematic language whose written symbols embody and internalize the external relationships. The language itself was part of the system it described. Its written form carried the shape of what it described. The intimate local knowledge of what was available to support life was implicit in this development. One can measure the extent of this language-system interaction by the fact that Fremen accepted themselves as foraging and browsing animals. The Story of Liet Kynes by Harkaladar Kave Wahid, Stilgar said. Bring coffee. He signalled with a raised hand to an aide who stood at one side near the single door to the austere rock-walled room where he had spent this wakeful night. This was the place where the old Fremen naive usually took his Spartan breakfast, and it was almost breakfast time, but after such a night he did not feel hungry. He stood, stretching his muscles. Duncan Idaho sat on a low cushion near the door, trying to suppress a yawn. He had just realized that, while they talked, he and Stilgar had gone through an entire night. Forgive me still, he said. I've kept you up all night. To stay awake all night adds a day to your life, Stilgar said, accepting the tray with coffee as it was passed in the door. He pushed a low bench in front of Idaho, placed the tray on it, and sat across from his guest. 
Both men wore the yellow robes of mourning, but Idaho's was a borrowed garment worn because the people of Tabor had resented the Atreides green of his working uniform. Stilgar poured the dark brew from the fat copper carafe, sipped first and lifted his cup as a signal to Idaho. The ancient Fremen custom. It is safe, I have taken some of it. The coffee was Harrah's work, done just as Stilgar preferred it, the beans roasted to a rose-brown, ground to a fine powder in a stone mortar while still hot, and boiled immediately, a pinch of melange added. Idaho inhaled the spice-rich aroma, sipped carefully but noisily. He still did not know if he had convinced Stilgar. His mentat faculties had begun to work sluggishly in the early hours of the morning, all of his computations confronted at last by the inescapable datum supplied in the message from Gurney Halleck. Alia had known about Leto. She'd known. And Javid had to be part of that knowing. I must be freed of your restraints, Idaho said at last, taking up the arguments once more. Stilgar stood his ground. The agreement of neutrality requires me to make hard judgments. Gunny is safe here. You and Irulan are safe here. But you may not send messages. Receive messages, yes, but you may not send them. I've given my word. This is not the treatment usually accorded a guest and an old friend who has shared your dangers, Idaho said, knowing he'd used this argument before. Stilgar put down his cup, setting it carefully into its place on the tray and keeping his attention on it as he spoke. We Fremen don't feel guilt for the same things that arouse such feelings in others, he said. He raised his attention to Idaho's face. He must be made to take Gunny and flee this place, Idaho thought. He said, it was not my intention to raise a storm of guilt. I understand that. Stilgar said, I raise the question to impress upon you our Fremen attitude, because that is what we are dealing with, Fremen. Even Alia thinks Fremen. And the priests? They are another matter, Stilgar said. They want the people to swallow the grey wind of sin, taking that into the everlasting. This is a great blotch by which they seek to know their own piety. He spoke in a level voice, but Idaho heard the bitterness and wondered why that bitterness could not sway Stilgar. It's an old, old trick of autocratic rule, Idaho said. Alia knows it well. Good subjects must feel guilty. The guilt begins as a feeling of failure. The good autocrat provides many opportunities for failure in the populace. I've noticed, Stilgar spoke dryly. But you must forgive me if I mention to you once more that this is your wife of whom you speak. It is the sister of Muad'Dib. She's possessed, I tell you. Many say it. She will have to undergo the test one day. Meanwhile, there are other considerations more important. Idaho shook his head sadly. Everything I've told you can be verified. The communication with Jakarutu was always through Alia's temple. The plot against the twins had accomplices there. Money for the sale of worms off-planet goes there. All of the strings lead to Alia's office, to the Regency. Stilgar shook his head, drew in a deep breath. This is neutral territory. I've given my word. Things can't go on this way, 
Idaho protested. I agree, Stilgar nodded. Aliyah's caught inside the circle, and every day the circle grows smaller. It's like our old custom of having many wives. This pinpoints male sterility. He bent a questioning gaze on Idaho. You say she deceived you with other men. Using her sex as a weapon is the way I believe you've expressed it. Then you have a perfectly legal avenue available to you. Javid's here in Tabor with messages from Alia. You have only to... On your neutral territory? No, but outside in the desert. And if I took that opportunity to escape? You'll not be given such an opportunity. Still, I swear to you, Alia's possessed. What do I have to do to convince you of... A difficult thing to prove, Stilgar said. It was the argument he'd used many times during the night. Idaho recalled Jessica's words, said, But you've ways of proving it. A way, yes, Stilgar said. Again he shook his head. Painful, irrevocable. That is why I remind you about our attitude toward guilt. We can free ourselves from guilts which might destroy us in everything except the trial of possession. For that, the tribunal, which is all of the people, accepts complete responsibility. You've done it before, haven't you? I'm sure the Reverend Mother didn't omit our history in her recital, Stilgar said. You well know we've done it before. Idaho responded to the irritation in Stilgar's voice. I wasn't trying to trap you in a falsehood. It's just... It's the long night and the questions without answers, Stilgar said. And now it's morning. I must be allowed to send a message to Jessica, Idaho said. That would be a message to Salusa, Stilgar said. I don't make evening promises. My word is meant to be kept. That is why Tabor's neutral territory. I will hold you in silence. I have pledged this for my entire household. Aliyah must be brought to your trial. Perhaps. First, we must find out if there are extenuating circumstances, a failure of authority, possibly, or even bad luck. It could be a case of that natural bad tendency which all humans share, and not possession at all. You want to be sure I'm not just the husband wronged, seeking others to execute his revenge. Idaho said. The thought has occurred to others, not to me, Stilgar said. He smiled to take the sting out of his words. We Fremen have our science of tradition, our hadith. When we fear a mentat or a reverend mother, we revert to the hadith. It is said that the only fear we cannot correct is the fear of our own mistakes. The Lady Jessica must be told. Idaho said. Gurney says, That message may not come from Gurney Halleck. It comes from no other. We Atreides have our ways of verifying messages. Still, won't you at least explore some of... Jakaruto is no more, Stilgar said. It was destroyed many generations ago. He touched Idaho's sleeve. In any event, I cannot spare the fighting men. These are troubled times. The threat to the Gonat, you understand? He sat back. Now, when Alia... There is no more Alia, Idaho said. So you say. Stilgar took another sip of coffee, replaced the cup. 
Let it rest there, friend Idaho. Often there's no need to tear off an arm to remove a splinter. Then let's talk about Ganima. There's no need. She has my countenance, my bond. No one can harm her here. He cannot be that naive, Idaho thought. But Stilgar was rising to indicate that the interview was ended. Idaho levered himself to his feet, feeling the stiffness in his knees. His calves felt numb. As Idaho stood, an aide entered and stood aside. Javid came into the room behind him. Idaho turned. Stilgar stood four paces away. Without hesitating, Idaho drew his knife in one swift motion and drove its point into the breast of the unsuspecting Javid. The man staggered backward, pulling himself off the knife. He turned, fell onto his face. His legs kicked, and he was dead. That was to silence the gossip, Idaho said. The aide stood with drawn knife, undecided how to act. Idaho had already sheathed his own knife, leaving a trace of blood on the edge of his yellow robe. You have defiled my honor, Stilgar cried. This is neutral. Shut up. Idaho glared at the shocked Naib. You wear a collar, Stilgar. It was one of the three most deadly insults which could be directed at a Fremen. Stilgar's face went pale. You are a servant, Idaho said. You've sold Fremen for their water. This was the second most deadly insult, the one which had destroyed the original Jakarutu. Stilgar ground his teeth, put a hand on his Chris knife. The aide stepped back, away from the body in the doorway. Turning his back on the naive, Idaho stepped into the door, taking the narrow opening beside Javid's body, and speaking without turning, delivered the third insult. You have no immortality, Stilgar. None of your descendants carry your blood. Where do you go now, Mentat? Stilgar called as Idaho continued leaving the room. Stilgar's voice was as cold as a wind from the poles. To find Jakarutu, Idaho said, still not turning. Stilgar drew his knife. Perhaps I can help you. Idaho was at the outer lip of the passage now. Without stopping, he said, If you'd help me with your knife, water thief, please do it in my back. That's the fitting way for one who wears the collar of a demon. With two leaping strides, Stilgar crossed the room, stepped on Javid's body and caught Idaho in the outer passage. One gnarled hand jerked Idaho around and to a stop. Stilgar confronted Idaho with bared teeth and a drawn knife. Such was his rage that Stilgar did not even see the curious smile on Idaho's face. Draw your knife, mentat scum, Stilgar roared. Idaho laughed. He cuffed Stilgar sharply, left hand, right hand, two stinging slaps to the head. With an incoherent screech, Stilgar drove his knife into Idaho's abdomen, striking upward through the diaphragm into the heart. Idaho sagged onto the blade, grinned up at Stilgar, whose rage dissolved into sudden icy shock. Two deaths for the Atreides, Idaho husked. The second for no better reason than the first. He lurched sideways, collapsed to the stone floor on his face. Blood spread out from his wound. 
Stilgar stared down past his dripping knife at the body of Idaho, took a deep, trembling breath. Javid lay dead behind him, and the consort of Alia, the womb of heaven, lay dead at Stilgar's own hands. It might be argued that a naive had but protected the honor of his name, avenging the threat to his promised neutrality. But this dead man was Duncan Idaho. No matter the arguments available, no matter the extenuating circumstances, nothing could erase such an act. Even were Aaliyah to approve privately, she would be forced to respond publicly in revenge. She was, after all, Fremen. To rule Fremen, she could be nothing else, not even to the smallest degree. Only then did it occur to Stilgar that this situation was precisely what Idaho had intended to buy with his second death. Stilgar looked up, saw the shocked face of Hara, his second wife, peering at him in an enclosing throng. Everywhere Stilgar turned there were faces with identical expressions, shock and an understanding of the consequences. Slowly Stilgar drew himself erect, wiped the blade on his sleeve and sheathed it. Speaking to the faces, his tone casual, he said, Those who'll go with me should pack at once. Send men to summon worms. Where will you go, Stilgar? Hara asked. Into the desert. I will go with you, she said. Of course you'll go with me. All of my wives will go with me, and Ganima. Get her, Hara, at once. Yes, Stilgar, at once, she hesitated. And Irulan? If she wishes. Yes, husband. Still she hesitated. You take Gani as hostage? Hostage? He was genuinely startled by the thought. Woman. He touched Idaho's body softly with a toe. If this mentat was right, I'm Gani's only hope. And he remembered then Leto's warning. Beware of Alia. You must take Gani and flee. After the Fremen, all planetologists see life as expressions of energy and look for the overriding relationships. In small pieces, bits and parcels which grow into general understanding, the Fremen racial wisdom is translated into a new certainty. The thing Fremen have as a people, any people can have. They need but develop a sense for energy relationships. They need but observe that energy soaks up the patterns of things and builds with those patterns. The Arakeen Catastrophe, after Hark Aladar. It was Turk's Siege on the inner lip of False Wall. Halleck stood in the shadow of the rock buttress which shielded the high entrance to the Siege, waiting for those inside to decide whether they would shelter him. He turned his gaze outward to the northern desert and then upward to the grey-blue morning sky. The smugglers here had been astonished to learn that he, an off-worlder, had captured a worm and ridden it. But Halleck had been equally astonished at their reaction. The thing was simple for an agile man who'd seen it done many times. Halleck returned his attention to the desert, the silver desert of shining rocks and grey-green fields where water had worked its magic. All of this struck him suddenly as an enormously fragile containment of energy, of life, everything threatened by an abrupt shift in the pattern of change. 
He knew the source of this reaction. It was the bustling scene on the desert floor below him. Containers of dead sand trout were being trundled into the Siech for distillation and recovery of their water. There were thousands of the creatures. They had come to an outpouring of water, and it was this outpouring which had set Halleck's mind racing. Halleck stared downward across the Siech fields and the Kanat boundary, which no longer flowed with precious water. He had seen the holes in the Kanat's stone walls, the rending of the rock liner which had spilled water into the sand. What had made those holes? Some stretched along twenty meters of the Kanat's most vulnerable sections, in places where soft sand led outward into water-absorbing depressions. It was those depressions which had swarmed with sand trout. The children of the Siech were killing them and capturing them. Repair teams worked on the shattered walls of the Kanat. Others carried minims of irrigation water to the most needy plants. The water source in the gigantic cistern beneath Tuak's wind trap had been closed off, preventing the flow into the shattered canat. The sun-powered pumps had been disconnected. The irrigation water came from dwindling pools at the bottom of the canat and, laboriously, from the cistern within the siach. The metal frame of the door seal behind Halleck crackled in the growing warmth of the day. As though the sound moved his eyes, Halleck found his gaze drawn to the farthest curve of the Kanat, to the place where water had reached most impudently into the desert. The garden-hopeful planners of the Siech had planted a special tree there, and it was doomed unless the water flow could be restored soon. Halleck stared at the silly, trailing plumage of a willow tree there shredded by sand and wind. For him, that tree symbolized the new reality for himself and for Arrakis. Both of us are alien here. They were taking a long time over their decision within the Siech, but they could use good fighting men. Smugglers always needed good men. Halleck had no illusions about them, though. The smugglers of this age were not the smugglers who'd sheltered him so many years ago when he'd fled the dissolution of his duke's fief. No, these were a new breed quick to seek profit. Again he focused on the silly willow. It came to Halleck then that the storm winds of his new reality might shred these smugglers and all of their friends. It might destroy Stilgar with his fragile neutrality and take with him all of the tribes who remained loyal to Alia. They'd all become colonial peoples. Halleck had seen it happen before, knowing the bitter taste of it on his own homeworld. He saw it clearly, recalling the mannerisms of the city Fremen, the pattern of the suburbs, and the unmistakable ways of the rural Siech which rubbed off even on this smuggler's hideaway. The rural districts were colonies of the urban centers. They'd learned how to wear a padded yoke, led into it by their greed if not their superstitions. Even here, especially here, the people had the attitude of a subject population, not the attitude of free men. They were defensive, concealing, evasive. Any manifestation of authority was subject to resentment, any authority, the regencies, Stilgars, their own council. I can't trust them, Halleck thought. He could only use them and nurture their distrust of others. It was sad. Gone was the old give and take of free men. The old ways had been reduced to ritual words, their origins lost to memory. Alia had done her work well, punishing opposition and rewarding assistance, shifting the imperial forces in random fashion, concealing the major elements of her imperial power. The spies, 
gods below the spies she must have. Halleck could almost see the deadly rhythm of movement and counter-movement by which Alia hoped to keep her opposition off balance. If the Fremen remain dormant, she'll win, he thought. The door seal behind him crackled as it was opened. A Siech attendant named Melodies emerged. He was a short man, with a gourd-like body which dwindled into spindly legs whose ugliness was only accented by a still suit. You have been accepted, Melodies said. And Halleck heard the sly dissimulation in the man's voice. What that voice revealed told Halleck there was sanctuary here for only a limited time. Just until I can steal one of their thopters, he thought. My gratitude to your counsel, he said. And he thought of Esmar Tuak, for whom this Siech had been named. Esmar, long dead of someone's treachery, would have slit the throat of this Melodies on sight. Any path which narrows future possibilities may become a lethal trap. Humans are not threading their way through a maze. They scan a vast horizon filled with unique opportunities. The narrowing viewpoint of the maze should appeal only to creatures with their noses buried in sand. Sexually produced uniqueness and differences are the life protection of the spices. The Spacing Guild Handbook Why do I not feel grief? Aaliyah directed the question at the ceiling of her small audience chamber, a room she could cross in ten paces one way and fifteen the other. It had two tall and narrow windows which looked out across the Arakeen rooftops at the shield wall. It was almost noon. The sun burned down into the pan upon which the city had been built. Aaliyah lowered her gaze to Buer Agarvis, the former Taborite and now aide to Zia who directed the temple guards. Agarvis had brought the news that Javid and Idaho were dead. A mob of sycophants, aides, and guards had come in with him, and more crowded the area way outside, revealing that they already knew Agave's message. Bad news travelled fast on Arrakis. He was a small man, this Agave's, with a round face for a Fremen, almost infantile in its roundness. He was one of the new breed who had gone to water fatness. Alia saw him as though he had been split into two images, one with a serious face and opaque indigo eyes, a worried expression around the mouth, the other image sensuous and vulnerable, excitingly vulnerable. She especially liked the thickness of his lips. Although it was not yet noon, Alia felt something in the shocked silence around her that spoke of sunset. Idaho should have died at sunset, she told herself. How is it, where, that you're the bearer of this news? she asked, noting the watchful quickness which came into his expression. Agaves tried to swallow, spoke in a hoarse voice hardly more than a whisper. I went with Javid, you recall, and when Stilgar sent me to you, he said for me to tell you that I carried his final obedience. Final obedience, she echoed. What did he mean by that? I don't know, Lady Alia, he pleaded. Explain to me again what you saw, she ordered, and she wondered at how cold her skin felt. I saw, he bobbed his head nervously, looked at the floor in front of Alia. I saw the holy consort dead upon the floor of the central passage, and Javid lay dead nearby in a side passage, 
The women already were preparing them for Huenui. And Stilgar summoned you to this scene? That is true, my lady. Stilgar summoned me. He sent Modibo, the bent one, his messenger in Siege. Modibo gave me no warning. He merely told me Stilgar wanted me. And you saw my husband's body there on the floor? He met her eyes with a darting glance, returned his attention once more to the floor in front of her before nodding. Yes, my lady, and Javid dead nearby. Stilgar told me, told me that the holy consort had slain Javid. And my husband, you say Stilgar? He said it to me with his own mouth, my lady. Stilgar said he had done this. He said the holy consort provoked him to rage. Rage, Aliyah repeated. How was that done? He didn't say. No one said. I asked, and no one said. And that's when you were sent to me with this news? Yes, my lady. Was there nothing you could do? Agaves wet his lips with his tongue, then... Stilgar commanded, my lady. It was his siege. I see. And you always obeyed Stilgar? I always did, my lady, until he freed me from my bond. When you were sent to my service, you mean? I obey only you now, my lady. Is that right? Tell me, Boer, if I commanded you to slay Stilgar, your old Naib, would you do it? He met her gaze with a growing firmness. If you commanded it, my lady. I do command it. Have you any idea where he's gone? Into the desert, that's all I know, my lady. How many men did he take? Perhaps half the effectives. And Ganima and Irulan with him? Yes, my lady. Those who left are burdened with their women, their children, and their baggage. Stilgar gave everyone a choice. Go with him or be freed of their bond. Many chose to be freed. They will select a new naib. I'll select their new naib, and it'll be you, Buer Agavis, on the day you bring me Stilgar's head. Agavis could accept selection by battle. It was a Fremen way. He said, As you command, my lady. What forces may I seize here? I can't give you many thopters for the search. They're needed elsewhere, but you'll have enough fighting men. Stilgar has defamed his honor. Many will serve with you gladly. I'll get about it then, my lady. Wait. She studied him a moment, reviewing whom she could send to watch over this vulnerable infant. He would need close watching until he'd proved himself. Zia would know whom to send. Am I not dismissed, my lady? You are not dismissed. I must consult you privately and at length on your plans to take Stilgar. She put a hand to her face. I'll not grieve until you've exacted my revenge. Give me a few minutes to compose myself. She lowered her hand. One of my attendants will show you the way. She gave a subtle hand signal to one of her attendants, whispered to Shalus, her new dame of chamber. Have him washed and perfumed before you bring him. He smells of worm. Yes, mistress. Alia turned then, feigning the grief she did not feel, and fled to her private chambers. There, in her bedroom, she slammed the door into its tracks, cursed, and stamped her foot. Damn that Duncan! Why? 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 She sensed a deliberate provocation from Idaho. He'd slain Javid and provoked Stilgar. 
It said he knew about Javid. The whole thing must be taken as a message from Duncan Idaho, a final gesture. Again she stamped her foot, and again raging across the bedchamber. Damn him! Damn him! Damn him! Stilgar gone over to the rebels, and Ganima with him. Irulan too. Damn them all! Her stamping foot encountered a painful obstacle descending onto metal. Pain brought a cry from her and she peered down, finding that she'd bruised her foot on a metal buckle. She snatched it up, stood frozen at the sight of it in her hand. It was an old buckle, one of the silver and platinum originals from Caladan, awarded originally by the Duke Leto Atreides I to his swordmaster, Duncan Idaho. She'd seen Duncan wear it many times, and he'd discarded it here. Alia's fingers clutched convulsively on the buckle. Idaho had left it here when... when... Tears sprang from her eyes, forced out against the great Fremen conditioning. Her mouth drew down into a frozen grimace and she sensed the old battle begin within her skull, reaching out to her fingertips, to her toes. She felt that she had become two people. One looked upon these fleshly contortions with astonishment. The other sought submission to an enormous pain spreading in her chest. The tears flowed freely from her eyes now, and the astonished one within her demanded querulously, Who cries? Who is it that cries? Who is crying now? But nothing stopped the tears, and she felt the painfulness which flamed through her breast as it moved her flesh and hurled her onto the bed. Still something demanded out of that profound astonishment. Who cries? Who is that? By these acts, Leto II removed himself from the evolutionary succession. He did it with a deliberate cutting action, saying, To be independent is to be removed. Both twins saw beyond the needs of memory as a measuring process, that is, a way of determining their distance from their human origins. But it was left to Leto II to do the audacious thing, recognizing that a real creation is independent of its creator. He refused to reenact the evolutionary sequence, saying, That too takes me farther and farther from humanity. He saw the implications in this, that there can be no truly closed systems in life. The Holy Metamorphosis by Hark Aladar There were birds thriving on the insect life which teemed in the damp sand beyond the broken canat. Parrots, magpies, jays. This had been a Dijedida, the last of the new towns, built on a foundation of exposed basalt. It was abandoned now. Ganima, using the morning hours to study the area beyond the original plantings of the abandoned Siech, detected movement and saw a banded gecko lizard. There'd been a Gila woodpecker earlier, nesting in a mud wall of the Dijedida. She thought of it as a Siech, but it was really a collection of low walls made of stabilized mud brick surrounded by plantings to hold back the dunes. It lay within the Tanzaruft, 600 kilometers south of Sihaya Ridge. Without human hands to maintain it, the Siech already was beginning to melt back into the desert, its walls eroded by sandblast winds, its plants dying, its plantation area cracked by the burning sun. Yet the sand beyond the shattered Kanat remained damp, attesting to the fact that the squat bulk of the wind trap still functioned. 
In the months since their flight from Tabur, the fugitives had sampled the protection of several such places made uninhabitable by the desert demon. Ganima didn't believe in the desert demon, although there was no denying the visible evidence of the Kanat's destruction. Occasionally they had word from the northern settlements, through encounters with rebel spice hunters. A few thopters, some said no more than six, carried out search flights seeking Stilgar, but Arrakis was large and its desert was friendly to the fugitives. Reportedly there was a search-and-destroy force charged with finding Stilgar's band, but the force which was led by the former Taborite Buergavis had other duties and often returned to Arakeen. The rebels said there was little fighting between their men and the troops of Alia. Random depredations of the desert demon made home guard duty the first concern of Alia and the Naibs. Even the smugglers had been hit, but they were said to be scouring the desert, for Stilgar wanting the price on his head. Stilgar had brought his band into the Dijedida just before dark the previous day, following the unerring moisture sense of his old Fremen nose. He'd promised they would head south for the Palmyres soon, but refused to put a date on the move. Although he carried a price on his head which once would have bought a planet, Stilgar seemed the happiest and most carefree of men. This is a good place for us, he'd said, pointing out that the wind trap still functioned. Our friends have left us some water. They were a small band now, sixty people in all. The old, the sick, and the very young had been filtered south into the Palmares, absorbed there by trusted families. Only the toughest remained, and they had many friends to the north and the south. Ganima wondered why Stilgar refused to discuss what was happening to the planet. Couldn't he see it? As Kunats were shattered, Fremen pulled back to the northern and southern lines which once had marked the extent of their holdings. This movement could only signal what must be happening to the Empire. One condition was the mirror of the other. Ganima ran a hand under the collar of her still suit and resealed it. Despite her worries, she felt remarkably free here. The inner lives no longer plagued her, although she sometimes felt their memories inserted into her consciousness. She knew from those memories what this desert had been once, before the work of the ecological transformation. It had been drier, for one thing. That unrepaired wind trap still functioned because it processed moist air. Many creatures which once had shunned this desert ventured to live here now. Many in the band remarked how the daylight owls proliferated. Even now Ganima could see ant birds. They jigged and danced along the insect lines which swarmed in the damp sand at the end of the shattered canat. Few badgers were to be seen out here, but there were kangaroo mice in uncounted numbers. Superstitious fear ruled the new Fremen, and Stilgar was no better than the rest. This Dijedida had been given back to the desert after its canat had been shattered a fifth time in eleven months. Four times they'd repaired the ravages of the desert demon, then they'd no longer had the surplus water to risk another loss. It was the same all through the Dijedidas and in many of the old Sietches. Eight out of nine new settlements had been abandoned. Many of the old Sietch communities were more crowded than they had ever been before, and while the desert entered this new phase, Fremen reverted to their old ways. They saw omens in everything. Were worms increasingly scarce except in the Tanzaruft? It was the judgment of Shai Hulud, and dead worms had been seen with nothing to say why they died. 
They went back to desert dust swiftly after death, but those crumbling hulks which Fremen chanced upon filled the observers with terror. Stilgar's band had encountered such a hulk the previous month, and it had taken four days for them to shake off the feeling of evil. The thing had reeked of sour and poisonous putrefaction. Its mouldering hulk had been found sitting on top of a giant spice blow, the spice mostly ruined. Ganima turned from observing the Kanat and looked back at the Dijedida. Directly in front of her lay a broken wall which once had protected a mushtamal, a small garden annex. She'd explored the place with a firm dependence upon her own curiosity and had found a store of flat, unleavened spice bread in a stone box. Stilgar had destroyed it, saying, Fremen would never leave good food behind them. Ganima had suspected he was mistaken, but it hadn't been worth the argument or the risk. Fremen were changing. Once they'd moved freely across the bled, drawn by natural needs, water, spice, trade. Animal activities had been their alarm clocks, but animals moved to strange new rhythms now while most Fremen huddled close in their old cave warrens within the shadow of the northern shield wall. Spice hunters in the Tansaruft were rare, and only Stilgar's band moved in the old ways. She trusted Stilgar and his fear of Alia. Irulan reinforced his arguments now, reverting to odd Bene Gesserit musings. But on faraway Salusa, Faradun still lived. Someday there would have to be a reckoning. Ganima looked up at the grey-silver morning sky, questing in her mind. Where was help to be found? Where was there someone to listen when she revealed what she saw happening all around them? The Lady Jessica stayed on Salusa, if the reports were to be believed. And Alia was a creature on a pedestal, involved only in being colossal while she drifted farther and farther from reality. Gurney Halleck was nowhere to be found, although he was reported seen everywhere. The preacher had gone into hiding, his heretical rantings only a fading memory. And Stilgar. She looked across the broken wall to where Stilgar was helping repair the system. Stilgar reveled in his role as the will of the desert, the price upon his head growing monthly. Nothing made sense anymore. Nothing. Who was this desert demon, this creature able to destroy Kanats as though they were false idols to be toppled into the sand? Was it a rogue worm? Was it a third force in rebellion? Many people? No one believed it was a worm. The water would kill any worm venturing against a Kanat. Many Fremen believed the desert demon was actually a revolutionary band bent on overthrowing Alia's Mardinet and restoring Arrakis to its old ways. Those who believed this said it would be a good thing. Get rid of that greedy apostolic succession which did little else than uphold its own mediocrity. Get back to the true religion which Muad'Dib had espoused. A deep sigh shook Ganima. Oh, Leto, she thought. I'm almost glad you didn't live to see these days. I'd join you myself, but I've a knife yet unblooded. Alia and Faridun. Faridun and Alia. The old barons heard demon, and that can't be permitted. Hara came out of the Dijedida, approaching Ganima with a steady, sand-swallowing pace. Hara stopped in front of Ganima, demanded, What do you alone out here? This is a strange place, Hara. We should leave. Stilgar waits to meet someone here. Oh, he didn't tell me that? 
Why should he tell you everything? Maku? Harras slapped the water pouch which bulged the front of Ganima's robe. Are you a grown woman to be pregnant? I've been pregnant so many times there's no counting them, Ganima said. Don't play those adult child games with me. Hara took a backward step at the venom in Ganima's voice. You're a band of stupids, Ganima said, waving her hand to encompass the Dijedida and the activities of Stilgar and his people. I should never have come with you. You'd be dead by now if you hadn't. Perhaps, but you don't see what's right in front of your faces. Who is it that Stilgar waits to meet here? Buer Agarvis. Ganima stared at her. He is being brought here secretly by friends from Red Chasm Siech, Hara explained. Alia's little plaything? He is being brought under blindfold. Does Stilgar believe that? Buer asked for the parley. He agreed to all of our terms. Why wasn't I told about this? Stilgar knew you would argue against it. Argue against? This is madness! Hara scowled. Don't forget that Buer is... He's family, Ganima snapped. He's the grandson of Stilgar's cousin. I know, and the Faridun whose blood I'll draw one day is as close a relative to me. Do you think that'll stay my knife? We've had a distrans. No one follows his party. Ganima spoke in a low voice. Nothing good will come of this, Hara. We should leave at once. Have you read an omen? Hara asked. That dead worm we saw, was that? Stuff that into your womb and give birth to it elsewhere, Ganima raged. I don't like this meeting nor this place. Isn't that enough? I'll tell Stilgar what you... I'll tell him myself. Ganima strode past Hara, who made the sign of the worm horns at her back to ward off evil. But Stilgar only laughed at Ganima's fears and ordered her to look for sand trout as though she were one of the children. She fled into one of the Dijedida's abandoned houses and crouched in a corner to nurse her anger. The emotion passed quickly, though. She felt the stirring of the inner lives and remembered someone saying, If we can immobilize them, things will go as we plan. What an odd thought. But she couldn't recall who'd said those words. Muad'Dib was disinherited and he spoke for the disinherited of all time. He cried out against that profound injustice which alienates the individual from that which he was taught to believe, from that which seemed to come to him as a right. The Martinet, An Analysis, by Hark Aladar Gurney Halleck sat on the butte at Shulok with his baliset beside him on a spice-fibre rug. Below him the enclosed basin swarmed with workers planting crops. The sand ramp up which the cast out had lured worms on a spice trail had been blocked off with a new canut. Plantings moved down the slope to hold it. It was almost time for the noon meal, and Halleck had been on the butte for more than an hour, seeking privacy in which to think. Humans did the labor below him, but everything he saw was the work of melange. Leto's personal estimate was that spice production would fall soon to a stabilized one-tenth of its peak in the Harkonnen years. Stockpiles throughout the empire doubled in value at every new posting. 321 liters were said to have bought half of Novabrun's planet from the Metulli family. The cast-out worked like men driven by a devil, and perhaps they were. 
Before every meal they faced the Tansaruft and prayed to Shai Hulud personified. That was how they saw Leto, and through their eyes Halleck saw a future where most of humankind shared that view. Halleck wasn't sure he liked the prospect. Leto had set the pattern when he'd brought Halleck and the preacher here in Halleck's stolen thopter. With his bare hands, Leto had breached the Shulok Kanat, hurling large stones more than fifty meters. When the cast out had tried to intervene, Leto had decapitated the first to reach him, using no more than a blurred sweep of his arm. He'd hurled others back into their companions and had laughed at their weapons. In a demon voice, he'd roared at them, Fire will not touch me! Your knives will not harm me! I wear the skin of Shai Khulud. The cast-out had recognized him then, and recalled his escape, leaping from the butte directly to the desert. They'd prostrated themselves before him and later had issued his orders. I bring you two guests. You will guard them and honor them. You will rebuild your kanat and begin planting an oasis garden. One day I'll make my home here. You will prepare my home. You will sell no more spice, but you will store every bit you collect. On and on he'd gone with his instructions, and the cast-out had heard every word, seeing him through fear-glazed eyes, through a terrifying awe. Here was Shai Hulud come up from the sand at last. There'd been no intimation of this metamorphosis when Leto had found Halleck with Gadien al-Fali in one of the small rebel sieches at Garrudun. With his blind companion, Leto had come up from the desert along the old spice route, travelling by worm through an area where worms were now a rarity. He'd spoken of several detours forced upon him by the presence of moisture in the sand, enough water to poison a worm. They'd arrived shortly after noon and had been brought into the stone-walled common room by guards. The memory haunted Halleck now. So this is the preacher, he'd said. Striding around the blind man, studying him, Halleck recalled the stories about him. No still-suit mask hid the old face in Sietch, and the features were there for memory to make its comparisons. Yes, the man did look like the old duke, for whom Leto had been named. Was it a chance likeness? You know the stories about this one? Halleck asked, speaking in an aside to Leto. That he's your father, come back from the desert? I've heard the stories. Halleck turned to examine the boy. Leto wore an odd still suit with rolled edges around his face and ears. A black robe covered it, and sand boots sheathed his feet. There was much to be explained about his presence here, how he'd managed to escape once more. Why do you bring the preacher here? Halleck asked. In Jakarutu, they said he works for them. No more. I bring him because Aliyah wants him dead. So? You think this is a sanctuary? You are his sanctuary. All this time the preacher stood near them, listening but giving no sign that he cared which turn their discussion took. He has served me well, Gurney, Leto said. House Atreides has not lost all sense of obligation to those who serve us. House Atreides? I am House Atreides. You fled Jakarutu before I could complete the testing which your grandmother ordered, Halleck said, his voice cold. How can you assume? This man's life is to be guarded as though it were your own. Leto spoke as though there were no argument, 
and he met Halleck's stare without flinching. Jessica had trained Halleck in many of the Bene Gesserit refinements of observation, and he detected nothing in later which spoke of other than calm assurance. Jessica's orders remained, though. Your grandmother charged me to complete your education and be sure you're not possessed. I'm not possessed. Just a flat statement. Why did you run away? Namri had orders to kill me no matter what I did. His orders were from Alia. Are you a truth-sayer, then? I am. Another flat statement, filled with self-assurance. And Ganema as well? No. The preacher broke his silence then, turning his blind sockets toward Halleck but pointing at Leto. You think you can test him? Don't interfere when you know nothing of the problem or its consequences, Halleck ordered, not looking at the man. Oh, I know its consequences well enough, the preacher said. I was tested once by an old woman who thought she knew what she was doing. She didn't know, as it turned out. Halleck looked at him then. You're another truth-sayer? Anyone can be a truth-sayer, even you, the preacher said. It's a matter of self-honesty about the nature of your own feelings. It requires that you have an inner agreement with truth which allows ready recognition. Why do you interfere? Halleck asked, putting hand to Chris' knife. Who was this preacher? I'm responsive to these events, the preacher said. My mother could put her own blood upon the altar, but I have other motives, and I do see your problem. Oh? Halleck was actually curious now. The Lady Jessica ordered you to differentiate between the wolf and the dog, between Ze'eb and Ketleb. By her definition, a wolf is someone with power who misuses that power. However, between wolf and dog, there is a dawn period when you cannot distinguish between them. That's close to the mark, Halleck said, noting how more and more people of the Siege had entered the common room to listen. How do you know this? Because I know this planet. You don't understand? Think how it is. Beneath the surface there are rocks, dirt, sediment, sand. That's the planet's memory, the picture of its history. It's the same with humans. The dog remembers the wolf. Each universe revolves around a core of being, and outward from that core go all of the memories right out to the surface. Very interesting, Halleck said. How does that help me carry out my orders? Review the picture of your history which is within you. Communicate as animals would communicate. Halleck shook his head. There was a compelling directness about this preacher, a quality which he'd recognized many times in the Atreides, and there was more than a little hint that the man was employing the powers of voice. Halleck felt his heart begin to hammer. Was it possible? Jessica wanted an ultimate test a stress by which the underlying fabric of her grandson exposed itself, the preacher said. But the fabric's always there, open to your gaze. Halleck turned to stare at Leto. The movement came of itself, compelled by irresistible forces. The preacher continued, as though lecturing an obstinate pupil. This young person confuses you because he's not a singular being, he's a community. 
As with any community under stress, any member of that community may assume command. This command isn't always benign, and we get our stories of abomination. But you've already wounded this community enough, Gurney Halleck. Can't you see that the transformation already has taken place? This youth has achieved an inner cooperation which is enormously powerful, that cannot be subverted. Without eyes, I see this. Once I opposed him, but now I do his bidding. He is the healer. Who are you? Halleck demanded. I'm no more than what you see. Don't look at me. Look at this person you were ordered to teach and test. He has been formed by crisis. He survived a lethal environment. He is here. Who are you? Halleck insisted. I tell you only to look at this Atreides youth. He is the ultimate feedback upon which our species depends. He'll reinsert into the system the results of its past performance. No other human could know that past performance as he knows it. And you consider destroying such a one? I was ordered to test him, and I've not... But you have! Is he abomination? A weary laugh shook the preacher. You persist in Bene Gesserit nonsense. How they create the myths by which men sleep. Are you Paul Atreides? Halleck asked. Paul Atreides is no more. He tried to stand as a supreme moral symbol while he renounced all moral pretensions. He became a saint without a god, every word a blasphemy. How can you think? Because you speak with his voice. Would you test me now? Beware, Gurney Halleck. Halleck swallowed, forced his attention back to the impassive Leto who still stood calmly observant. Who's being tested? the preacher asked. Is it, perhaps, that the Lady Jessica tests you, Gurney Halleck? Halleck found this thought deeply disturbing, wondering why he let this preacher's words move him. But it was a deep thing in Atreides' servants to obey that autocratic mystique. Jessica, explaining this, had made it even more mysterious. Halleck now felt something changing within himself, a something whose edges had only been touched by the Bene Gesserit training Jessica had pressed upon him. Inarticulate fury arose in him. He did not want to change. Which of you plays God, and to what end? the preacher asked. You cannot rely on reason alone to answer that question. Slowly, deliberately, Halleck raised his attention from Leto to the blind man. Jessica kept saying he should achieve the balance of Kyrites. Thou shalt, thou shalt not. She called it a discipline without words and phrases, no rules or arguments. It was the sharpened edge of his own internal truth, all-engrossing. Something in the blind man's voice, his tone, his manner, ignited a fury which burned itself into blinding calmness within Halleck. Answer my question, the preacher said. Halleck felt the words deepen his concentration upon this place, this one moment and its demands. His position in the universe was defined only by his concentration. No doubt remained in him. This was Paul Atreides, not dead but returned. And this non-child, Leto. Halleck looked once more at Leto, really saw him. 
He saw the signs of stress around the eyes, the sense of balance in the stance, the passive mouth with its quirking sense of humor. Leto stood out from his background as though at the focus of a blinding light. He had achieved harmony simply by accepting it. Tell me, Paul, Halleck said, does your mother know? The preacher sighed. To the sisterhood, all achieved harmony simply by accepting it. Tell me, Paul, Halleck said, does your mother know? The preacher sighed. To the sisterhood, all of it, I am dead. Do not try to revive me. Still not looking at him, Halleck asked, But why does she? She does what she must. She makes her own life, thinking she rules many lives. Thus we all play God. But you're alive. Halleck whispered, overcome now by his realization, turning at last to stare at this man, younger than himself, but so aged by the desert that he appeared to carry twice Halleck's years. What is that? Paul demanded. Alive? Halleck peered around them at the watching Fremen, their faces caught between doubt and awe. My mother never had to learn my lesson. It was Paul's voice. To be a god can ultimately become boring and degrading. There'd be reason enough for the invention of free will. A god might wish to escape into sleep and be alive only in the unconscious projections of his dream creatures. But you're alive, Halleck spoke louder now. Paul ignored the excitement in his old companion's voice, asked, Would you really have pitted this lad against his sister in the test, Mashhad? What deadly nonsense! Each would have said, no, kill me, let the other live. Where would such a test lead? What is it then to be alive, Gurney? That was not the test, Halleck protested. He did not like the way the Fremen pressed closer around them, studying Paul, ignoring Leto. But Leto intruded now. Look at the fabric, father. Yes, yes. Paul held his head high as though sniffing the air. It's Faradun, then. How easy it is to follow our thoughts instead of our senses, Leto said. Halleck had been unable to follow this thought and, about to ask, was interrupted by Leto's hand upon his arm. Don't ask, Gurney. You might return to suspecting that I'm abomination. No, let it happen, Gurney. If you try to force it, you'll only destroy yourself. But Halleck felt himself overcome by doubts. Jessica had warned him. They can be very beguiling, these pre-born. They have tricks you've never even dreamed. Halleck shook his head slowly. And Paul? God's below, Paul alive and in league with this question mark he'd fathered. The Fremen around them could no longer be held back. They pressed between Halleck and Paul, between Leto and Paul, shoving the two to the background. The air was showered with hoarse questions. Are you what, Dib? Are you truly Muad'Dib? Is it true what he says? Tell us. You must think of me only as the preacher, Paul said, pushing against them. I cannot be Paul Atreides or Muad'Dib, never again. I'm not Cheney's mate or emperor. Halleck, fearing what might happen if these frustrated questions found no logical answer, was about to act when Leto moved ahead of him. It was there Halleck first saw an element of the terrible change which had been wrought in Leto. A bull voice roared, Stand aside! 
and Leto moved forward, thrusting adult Fremen right and left, knocking them down, clubbing them with his hands, wrenching knives from their hands by grasping the blades. In less than a minute, those Fremen still standing were pressed back against the walls in silent consternation. Leto stood beside his father. When Shai Hulud speaks, you obey, Leto said. And when a few of the Fremen had started to argue, Leto had torn a corner of rock from the passage wall beside the room's exit and crumbled it in his bare hands, smiling all the while. I will tear your sietch down around your faces, he said. The desert demon, someone whispered. And your canats, Leto agreed. I will rip them apart. We have not been here. Do you hear me? Heads shook from side to side in terrified submission. No one here has seen us, Leto said. One whisper from you, and I will return to drive you into the desert without water. Halleck saw hands being raised in the warding gesture, the sign of the worm. We will go now, my father and I, accompanied by our old friend, Leto said. Make our thopter ready. And Leto had guided them to Shulok then, explaining en route that they must move swiftly because Faradon will be here on Arrakis very soon, and as my father has said, then you'll see the real test, Gurney. Looking down from the Shulok butte, Halleck asked himself once more, as he asked every day, What test? What does he mean? But Leto was no longer in Shulok, and Paul refused to answer. Church and state, scientific reason and faith, the individual and his community, even progress and tradition, all of these can be reconciled in the teachings of Muad'Dib. He taught us that there exist no intransigent opposites except in the beliefs of men. Anyone can rip aside the veil of time. You can discover the future in the past or in your own imagination. Doing this, you win back your consciousness in your inner being. You know, then, that the universe is a coherent whole and you are indivisible from it. The Preacher at Arakin after Hark Aladar Ganima sat far back outside the circle of light from the spice lamps and watched this Muir Agavis. She didn't like his round face and agitated eyebrows, his way of moving his feet when he spoke, as though his words were a hidden music to which he danced. He's not here to parley with still, Ganima told herself, seeing this confirmed in every word and movement from this man. She moved farther back away from the council circle. Every Siege had a room such as this one, but the meeting hall of the abandoned Dijedida struck Ganima as a cramped place because it was so low. Sixty people from Stilgar's band, plus the nine who'd come with the Garvis, filled only one end of the hall. Spice oil lamps reflected against low beams which supported the ceiling. The light cast wavering shadows which danced on the walls, and the pungent smoke filled the place with the smell of cinnamon. The meeting had started at dusk after the moisture prayers and evening meal. It had been going on for more than an hour now, and Ganima couldn't fathom the hidden currents in Agave's performance. His words appeared clear enough, but his motions and eye movements didn't agree. Agave's was speaking now, responding to a question from one of Stilgar's lieutenants, a niece of Harra's named Rajia. 
She was a darkly ascetic young woman, whose mouth turned down at the corners, giving her an air of perpetual distrust. Ganima found the expression satisfying, in the circumstances. Certainly, I believe Alia will grant a full and complete pardon to all of you, Agavis said. I'd not be here with this message otherwise. Stilgar intervened as Rajir made to speak once more. I'm not so much worried about our trusting her as I am about whether she trusts you. Stilgar's voice carried growling undertones. He was uncomfortable with this suggestion that he return to his old status. It doesn't matter whether she trusts me, Agavis said. To be candid about it, I don't believe she does. I've been too long searching for you without finding you, but I've always felt she didn't really want you captured. She was... She was the wife of the man I slew, Stilgar said. I grant you that he asked for it. Might just as well have fallen on his own knife. But this new attitude smells of... Agavis danced to his feet, anger plain on his face. She forgives you. How many times must I say it? She had the priests make a great show of asking divine guidance from... You've only raised another issue. It was Irulan, leaning forward past Rajia, blonde head set off against Rajia's darkness. She has convinced you, but she may have other plans. The priesthood has... But there are all of these stories, Irulan said, that you're more than just a military advisor, that you're her... Enough! Agavis was beside himself with rage. His hand hovered near his knife. Warring emotions moved just below the surface of his skin, twisting his features. Believe what you will, but I cannot go on with that woman. She fouls me. She dirties everything she touches. I am used. I am soiled. But I have not lifted my knife against my kin. Now, no more. Ganima, observing this, thought, that, at least, was truth coming out of him. Surprisingly, Stilgar broke into laughter. Ah, cousin, he said, forgive me, but there's truth in anger. Then you agree? I've not said that. He raised a hand as Agavis threatened another outburst. It's not for my sake, Buer, but there are these others, he gestured around him. They are my responsibility. Let us consider for a moment what reparations Alia offers. Reparations? There's no word of reparations. Pardon, but no. Then what does she offer as surety of her word? Siech Tabur and you as Naib, a full autonomy as a neutral. She understands now how... I'll not go back to her entourage or provide her with fighting men, Stilgar warned. Is that understood? Ganima could hear Stilgar beginning to weaken and thought, No, still, no! No need for that, Agavi said. Alia wants only Ganima returned to her and the carrying out of the betrothal promise which she... So now it comes out, Stilgar said, his brows drawing down. Ganima's the price of my pardon. Does she think me... She thinks you sensible, Agavis argued, resuming his seat. Gleefully, Ganima thought, He won't do it. Save your breath. He won't do it. As she thought this, Ganima heard a soft rustling behind and to her left. She started to turn, felt powerful hands grab her. 
A heavy rag reeking of sleep drugs covered her face before she could cry out. As consciousness faded, she felt herself being carried toward a door in the hall's darkest reaches, and she thought, I should have guessed, I should have been prepared. But the hands that held her were adult and strong. She could not squirm away from them. Ganima's last sensory impressions were of cold air, a glimpse of stars, and a hooded face which looked down at her, then asked, she wasn't injured, was she? The answer was lost as the stars wheeled and streaked across her gaze, losing themselves in a blaze of light which was the inner core of her selfdom. Muad'Dib gave us a particular kind of knowledge about prophetic insight, about the behavior which surrounds such insight and its influence upon events which are seen to be online, that is, events which are set to occur in a related system which the prophet reveals and interprets. As has been noted elsewhere, such insight operates as a peculiar trap for the prophet himself. He can become the victim of what he knows, which is a relatively common human failing. The danger is that those who predict real events may overlook the polarizing effect brought about by overindulgence in their own truth. They tend to forget that nothing in a polarized universe can exist without its opposite being present. The Prescient Vision by Hark Aladar Blowing sand hung like fog on the horizon, obscuring the rising sun. The sand was cold in the dune shadows. Leto stood outside the ring of the palmery, looking into the desert. He smelled dust and the aroma of spiny plants, heard the morning sounds of people and animals. The Fremen maintained no canat in this place. They had only a bare minimum of hand planting irrigated by the women who carried water in skin bags. Their wind trap was a fragile thing, easily destroyed by the storm winds but easily rebuilt. Hardship, the rigors of the spice trade and adventure were a way of life here. These Fremen still believed heaven was the sound of running water, but they cherished an ancient concept of freedom which Leto shared. Freedom is a lonely state, he thought. Leto adjusted the folds of the white robe which covered his living still suit. He could feel how the sand trout membrane had changed him, and, as always with this feeling, he was forced to overcome a deep sense of loss. He no longer was completely human. Odd things swam in his blood. Sand trout cilia had penetrated every organ, adjusting, changing. The sand trout itself was changing, adapting. But Leto, knowing this, felt himself torn by the old threads of his lost humanity, his life caught in primal anguish with its ancient continuity shattered. He knew the trap of indulging in such emotion, though. He knew it well. Let the future happen of itself, he thought. The only rule governing creativity is the act of creation itself. It was difficult to take his gaze away from the sands, the dunes, the great emptiness. Here at the edge of the sand lay a few rocks, but they led the imagination outward into the winds, the dust, the sparse and lonely plants and animals, dune merging into dune, desert into desert. Behind him came the sound of a flute playing for the morning prayer, the chant for moisture which now was a subtly altered serenade to the new Shai Hulud. This knowledge in Leto's mind gave the music a sense of eternal loneliness. I could just walk away into that desert, he thought. Everything would change then.
one direction would be as good as another. He had already learned to live a life free of possessions. He had refined the Fremen mystique to a terrible edge. Everything he took with him was necessary, and that was all he took. But he carried nothing except the robe on his back, the Atreides hawk ring hidden in its folds, and the skin which was not his own. It would be easy to walk away from here. Movement high in the sky caught his attention. The splayed gap wingtips identified a vulture. The sight filled his chest with aching. Like the wild Fremen, vultures lived in this land because this was where they were born. They knew nothing better. The desert made them what they were. Another Fremen breed was coming up in the wake of Muad'Dib and Alia, though. They were the reason he could not let himself walk away into the desert as his father had done. Leto recalled Idaho's words from the early days. These Fremen, they're magnificently alive. I've never met a greedy Fremen. There were plenty of greedy Fremen now. A wave of sadness passed over Leto. He was committed to a course which could change all of that, but at a terrible price, and the management of that course became increasingly difficult as they neared the vortex. Kralizek, the typhoon struggle lay ahead, but Kralizek or worse would be the price of a misstep. Voices sounded behind Leto, then the clear piping sound of a child speaking. Here he is, Leto turned. The preacher had come out of the palmary led by a child. Why do I still think of him as the preacher? Leto wondered. The answer lay there on the clean tablet of Leto's mind. Because this is no longer Muad'Dib, no longer Paul Atreides. The desert had made him what he was. The desert and the jackals of Jakarutu with their overdoses of melange and their constant betrayals. The preacher was old before his time, old not despite the spice but because of it. They said you wanted to see me now, the preacher said, speaking as his child guide stopped. Leto looked at the child of the palmary, a person almost as tall as himself, with awe tempered by an avaricious curiosity. The young eyes glinted darkly above the child-sized still-suit mask. Leto waved a hand. Leave us. For a moment there was rebellion in the child's shoulders. Then the awe and native Fremen respect for privacy took over. The child left them. You know Faradon is here on Arrakis? Leto asked. Gurney told me when he flew me down last night. And the preacher thought, how coldly measured his words are. He's like I was in the old days. I face a difficult choice, Leto said. I thought you'd already made all the choices. We know that trap, father. The preacher cleared his throat. The tensions told him how near they were to the shattering crisis. Now later would not be relying on pure vision, but on vision management. You need my help? the preacher asked. Yes, I'm returning to Arakeen, and I wish to go as your guide. To what end? Would you preach once more in Arakeen? Perhaps. There are things I've not said to them. You will not come back to the desert, father. If I go with you? Yes. I'll do whatever you decide. Have you considered? With Faradon there, your mother will be with him. Undoubtedly. Once more, the preacher cleared his throat. 
It was a betrayal of nervousness which Muad'Dib would never have permitted. This flesh had been too long away from the old regimen of self-discipline, his mind too often betrayed into madness by the Jakurutu, and the preacher thought that perhaps it wouldn't be wise to return to Arakin. You don't have to go back there with me, Leto said, but my sister is there, and I must return. You could go with Gurney. And you'd go to Arakin alone? Yes, I must meet Faridun. I will go with you, the preacher sighed, and Leto sensed the touch of the old vision madness in the preacher's manner, wondered, has he been playing the prescience game? No, he'd never go that way again. He knew the trap of a partial commitment. The preacher's every word confirmed that he had handed over the visions to his son, knowing that everything in this universe had been anticipated. It was the old polarities which taunted the preacher now, he had fled from paradox into paradox. We'll be leaving in a few minutes then, Leto said. Will you tell Gurney? Gurney's not going with us. I want Gurney to survive. The preacher opened himself to the tensions then. They were in the air around him, in the ground under his feet, a motile thing which focused onto the non-child who was his son. The blunt scream of his old visions waited in the preacher's throat. This cursed holiness. The sandy juice of his fears could not be avoided. He knew what faced them in Arakeen. They would play a game once more with terrifying and deadly forces which could never bring them peace. The child who refuses to travel in the father's harness, this is the symbol of man's most unique capability. I do not have to be what my father was. I do not have to obey my father's rules or even believe everything he believed. It is my strength as a human that I can make my own choices of what to believe and what not to believe, of what to be and what not to be. Leto Atreides II, The Harkaladar Biography Pilgrim women were dancing to drum and flute in the temple plaza. No coverings on their heads, bangles at their necks, their dresses thin and revealing. Their long black hair was thrown straight out, then straggled across their faces as they whirled. Alia looked down at the scene from her temple eerie, both attracted and repelled. It was mid-morning, the hour when the aroma of spice coffee began to waft across the plaza from the vendors beneath the shaded arches. Soon she would have to go out and greet Faridun present the formal gifts and supervise his first meeting with Ganima. It was all working out according to plan. Gani would kill him and, in the shattering aftermath, only one person would be prepared to pick up the pieces. The puppets danced when the strings were pulled. Stilgar had killed Agaves just as she'd hoped, and Agaves had led the kidnappers to the Dijedida without knowing it, a secret signal transmitter hidden in the new boots she'd given him. Now Stilgar and Irulan waited in the temple dungeons. Perhaps they would die. But there might be other uses for them. There was no harm in waiting. She noted that town Fremen were watching the pilgrim dancers below her, their eyes intense and unwavering. A basic sexual equality had come out of the desert to persist in Fremen town and city, but social differences between male and female already were making themselves felt. That, too, went according to plan. 
divide, and weaken. Alia could sense the subtle change in the way the two Fremen watched those off-planet women and their exotic dance. Let them watch. Let them fill their minds with gaffler. The louvers of Alia's window had been opened and she could feel a sharp increase in the heat, which began about sunrise in this season and would peak in mid-afternoon. The temperature on the stone floor of the plaza would be much higher. It would be uncomfortable for those dancers, but still they whirled and bent, swung their arms and their hair in the frenzy of their dedication. They had dedicated their dance to Alia, the womb of heaven. An aide had come to whisper this to Alia, sneering at the off-world women and their peculiar ways. The aide had explained that the women were from Ix, where remnants of the forbidden science and technology remained. Alia sniffed. Those women were as ignorant, as superstitious and backward as the desert Fremen, just as that sneering aide had said, trying to curry favour by reporting the dedication of the dance, and neither the aide nor the Ixians even knew that Ix was merely a number in a forgotten language. Laughing lightly to herself, Alia thought, let them dance. The dancing wasted energy which might be put to more destructive uses, and the music was pleasant, a thin wailing played against flat timpani from gourd drums and clapped hands. Abruptly the music was drowned beneath a roaring of many voices from the plaza's far side. The dancers missed a step, recovered in a brief confusion, but they had lost their sensuous singleness and even their attention wandered to the far gate of the plaza, where a mob could be seen spreading onto the stones like water rushing through the opened valve of a canat. Alia stared at that oncoming wave. She heard words now, and one above all others. Preacher! Preacher! Then she saw him, striding with the first spread of the wave, one hand on the shoulder of his young guide. The pilgrim dancers gave up their whirling, retired to the terraced steps below Alia. They were joined by their audience, and Alia sensed awe in the watchers. Her own emotion was fear. How dare he! She half turned to summon guards, but second thoughts stopped her. The mob already filled the plaza. They could turn ugly if thwarted in their obvious desire to hear the blind visionary. Alia clenched her fists. The preacher. Why was Paul doing this? To half the population he was a desert madman, and therefore sacred. Others whispered in the bazaars and shops that it must be Muad'Dib. Why else did the Mahdinate let him speak such angry heresy? Alia could see refugees among the mob, remnants from the abandoned sieches, their robes in tatters. That would be a dangerous place down there, a place where mistakes could be made. Mistress? The voice came from behind Alia. She turned, saw Zia standing in the arched doorway to the outer chamber. Armed house guards were close behind her. Yes, Zia? My lady, Faradin is out here requesting audience. Here? In my chambers? Yes, my lady. Is he alone? Two bodyguards and the lady Jessica. Alia put a hand to her throat, remembering her last encounter with her mother. Times had changed, though. New conditions ruled their relationship. How impetuous he is, Alia said. What reason does he give? He has heard about... Zia pointed to the window over the plaza. He says he was told you have the best vantage. 
Alia frowned. Do you believe this, Zia? No, my lady. I think he has heard the rumors. He wants to watch your reaction. My mother put him up to this. Quite possibly, my lady. Zia, my dear, I want you to carry out a specific set of very important orders for me. Come here. Zia approached to within a pace. My lady. Have Faridun, his guards, and my mother admitted. Then prepare to bring Ganima. She used to be accoutred as a Fremen bride in every detail. Complete. With knife, my lady. With knife. My lady, that's... Ganima poses no threat to me. My lady, there's reason to believe she fled with Stilgar, more to protect him than for any other. Sia! My lady, Ganima already has made her plea for Stilgar's life, and Stilgar remains alive. But she's the heir presumptive. Just carry out my orders. Have Ganima prepared. While you're seeing to that, send five attendants from the temple priesthood out into the plaza. They're to invite the preacher up here. Have them wait their opportunity and speak to him, nothing more. They are to use no force. I want them to issue a polite invitation. Absolutely no force. And Zia. My lady. How sullen she sounded. The preacher and Ganima are to be brought before me simultaneously. They are to enter together upon my signal. Do you understand? I know the plan, my lady, but just do it. Together. And Alia nodded dismissal to the Amazon aid. As Zia turned and left, Alia said, On your way out, send in Faridun's party, but see that they're preceded by ten of your most trustworthy people. Zia glanced back but continued leaving the room. It will be done as you command, my lady. Alia turned away to peer out the window. In just a few minutes, the plan would bear its bloody fruit, and Paul would be here when his daughter delivered the coup de grace to his holy pretensions. Alia heard Zia's guard detachment entering. It would be over soon, all over. She looked down with a swelling sense of triumph as the preacher took his stance on the first step. His youthful guide squatted beside him. Alia saw the yellow robes of temple priests waiting on the left, held back by the press of the crowd. They were experienced with crowds, however. They'd find a way to approach their target. The preacher's voice boomed out over the plaza and the mob waited upon his words with rapt attention. Let them listen. Soon his words would be made to mean other things than he intended, and there'd be no preacher around to protest. She heard Faridun's party enter, Jessica's voice. Alia? Without turning, Alia said, Welcome, Prince Faridun, mother. Come and enjoy the show. She glanced back then, saw the big Sadoka Tiekanik, scowling at her guards who were blocking the way. But this isn't hospitable, Alia said. Let them approach. Two of her guards, obviously acting on Zia's orders, came up to her and stood between her and the others. The other guards moved aside. Alia backed to the right side of the window, motioned to it. This is truly the best vantage point. Jessica, wearing her traditional black abba robe, glared at Alia, escorted Faridun to the window, but stood between him and Alia's guards. This is very kind of you, Lady Alia, Faridun said. I've heard so much about this preacher. And there he is in the flesh, Alia said. She saw that Faridun wore the dress grey of a Sadaka commander without decorations. He moved with a lean grace which Alia admired. Perhaps there would be more than idle amusement in this Corino prince. 
The preacher's voice boomed into the room over the amplifier pickups beside the window. Alia felt the tremors of it in her bones, began to listen to his words with growing fascination. I found myself in the desert of Zan, the preacher shouted, in that waste of howling wilderness, and God commanded me to make that place clean, for we were provoked in the desert and grieved in the desert, and we were tempted in that wilderness to forsake our ways. Desert of Zan, Alia thought. That was the name given to the place of the first trial of the Zen-Sunni wanderers from whom the Fremen sprang. But his words! Was he taking credit for the destruction wrought against the Siech strongholds of the loyal tribes? Wild beasts lie upon your lands, the preacher said, his voice booming across the plaza. Doleful creatures fill your houses. You who fled your homes no longer multiply your days upon the sand. Yea. You who have forsaken our ways, you will die in a fouled nest if you continue on this path. But if you heed my warning, the Lord shall lead you through a land of pits into the mountains of God. Yea, Shai Hulud shall lead you. Soft moans arose from the crowd. The preacher paused, swinging his eyeless sockets from side to side at the sound. Then he raised his arms, spreading them wide, called out, O God, my flesh longeth for thy way in a dry and thirsty land. An old woman in front of the preacher, an obvious refugee by the patched and worn look of her garments, held up her hands to him, pleaded, Help us, Muad'Dib, help us. In a sudden, fearful constriction of her breast, Alia asked herself if that old woman really knew the truth. Alia glanced at her mother, but Jessica remained unmoving, dividing her attention between Alia's guards, Faridun, and the view from the window. Faridun stood rooted in fascinated attention. Alia glanced out the window, trying to see her temple priests. They were not in view, and she suspected they had worked their way around below her near the temple doors, seeking a direct route down the steps. The preacher pointed his right hand over the old woman's head, shouted, You are the only help remaining. You were rebellious. You brought the dry wind which does not cleanse, nor does it cool. You bear the burden of our desert, and the whirlwind cometh from that place, from that terrible land. I have been in that wilderness. Water runs upon the sand from shattered canats. Streams cross the ground. Water has fallen from the sky in the belt of dune. Oh, my friends, God has commanded me. Make straight in the desert a highway for our Lord, for I am the voice that cometh to thee from the wilderness. He pointed to the steps beneath his feet, a stiff and quivering finger. This is no lost Jedida, which is no more inhabited forever. Here have we eaten the bread of heaven, and here the noise of strangers drives us from our homes. They breed for us a desolation, a land wherein no man dwelleth nor any man pass thereby. The crowd stirred uncomfortably, refugees and town Fremen peering about, looking at the pilgrims of the Hajj who stood among them. He could start a bloody riot, Alia thought. Well, let him. My priests can grab him in the confusion. She saw the five priests then, a tight knot of yellow robes working down the steps behind the preacher.
The waters which we spread upon the desert have become blood, the preacher said, waving his arms wide. Blood upon our land. Behold our desert which could rejoice and blossom. It has lured the stranger and seduced him in our midst. They come for violence. Their faces are closed up as for the last wind of Kralizek. They gather the captivity of the sand. They suck up the abundance of the sand, the treasure hidden in the depths. Behold them as they go forth to their evil work. It is written, And I stood upon the sand, and I saw a beast rise up out of that sand, and upon the head of that beast was the name of God. Angry mutterings arose from the crowd. Fists were raised, shaken. What is he doing? Faridun whispered. I wish I knew, Alia said. She put a hand to her breast, feeling the fearful excitement of this moment. The crowd would turn upon the pilgrims if he kept this up. But the preacher half-turned, aimed his dead sockets toward the temple, and raised a hand to point at the high windows of Alia's eyrie. One blasphemy remains, he screamed. Blasphemy! And the name of that blasphemy is Alia! Shocked silence gripped the plaza. Malia stood in unmoving consternation. She knew the mob could not see her, but she felt overcome by a sense of exposure, of vulnerability. The echoes of calming words within her skull competed with the pounding of her heart. She could only stare down at that incredible tableau. The preacher remained with a hand pointing at her windows. His words had been too much for the priests, though. They broke the silence with angry shouts, stormed down the steps, thrusting people aside. As they moved, the crowd reacted, breaking like a wave upon the steps, sweeping over the first lines of onlookers, carrying the preacher before them. He stumbled blindly, separated from his young guide, then a yellow-clad arm arose from the press of people, a chris knife was brandished in its hand. She saw the knife strike downward, bury itself in the preacher's chest. The thunderous clang of the temple's giant doors being closed broke Alia from her shock. Guards obviously had closed the doors against the mob, but people already were drawing back, making an open space around a crumpled figure on the steps. An eerie quiet fell over the plaza. Alia saw many bodies, but only this one lay by itself. Then a voice screeched from the mob. Muad'Dib! They've killed Muad'Dib! God's below, Alia quavered. God's below. A little late for that, don't you think? Jessica asked. Alia whirled, noting the sudden startled reaction of Faridun as he saw the rage on her face. That was Paul they killed, Alia screamed. That was your son. When they confirm it, do you know what'll happen? Jessica stood rooted for a long moment, thinking that she had just been told something already known to her. Faradun's hand upon her arm shattered the moment. My lady, he said, and there was such compassion in his voice that Jessica thought she might die of it right there. She looked from the cold, glaring anger on Alia's face to the sympathetic misery on Faradun's features and thought, perhaps I did my job too well. There could be no doubting Alia's words. Jessica remembered every intonation of the preacher's voice, hearing her own tricks in it. The long years of instruction she'd spent there upon a young man meant to be emperor, 
but who now lay a shattered mound of bloody rags upon the temple steps. Guffler blinded me, Jessica thought. Aliyah gestured to one of her aides, called, Bring Ganima now. Jessica forced herself into recognizing these words. Ganima? Why Ganima now? The aide had turned toward the outer door, motioning it for it to be unbarred. But before a word could be uttered, the door bulged. Hinges popped. The bar snapped and the door, a thick plasteel construction meant to withstand terrible energies, toppled into the room. Guards leaped to avoid it, drawing their weapons. Jessica and Faridun's bodyguards closed in around the Corino prince. But the opening revealed only two children. Ganima on the left, clad in her black betrothal robe, and Leto on the right, the grey slickness of a stillsuit beneath a desert-stained white robe. Aliyah stared from the fallen door to the children, found she was trembling uncontrollably. The family here to greet us, Leto said. Grandmother, he nodded to Jessica, shifted his attention to the Carino prince. And this must be Prince Faridun. Welcome to Arrakis, prince. Ganima's eyes appeared empty. She held her right hand on a ceremonial Chris knife at her waist, and she appeared to be trying to escape from Leto's grip on her arm. Leto shook her arm, and her whole body shook with it. Behold me, family, Leto said. I am Ari, the Lion of the Atreides, and here. Again, he shook Ganima's arm with that powerful ease which set her whole body jerking. Here is Aria, the Atreides Lioness. We come to set you onto Setcha Nabu, the Golden Path. Ganima, absorbing the trigger words Setcha Nabu, felt the locked-away consciousness flow into her head. It flowed with a linear nicety, the inner awareness of her mother hovering there behind it, a guardian at a gate. And Ganima knew in that instant that she had conquered the clamorous past. She possessed a gate through which she could peer when she needed that past. The months of self-hypnotic suppression had built for her a safe place from which to manage her own flesh. She started to turn toward Leto with a need to explain this when she became aware of where she stood and with whom. Leto released her arm. Did our plan work? Ganima whispered. Well enough, Leto said. Recovering from her shock, Alia shouted at a clump of guards on her left. Seize them! But Leto bent, took the fallen door with one hand, skidded it across the room into the guards. Two were pinned against the wall, the others fell back in terror. That door weighed half a metric ton, and this child had thrown it. Aliyah, growing aware that the corridor beyond the doorway contained fallen guards, realized that Leto must have dealt with them, that this child had shattered her impregnable door. Jessica, too, had seen the bodies, seen the awesome power in Leto, and had made similar assumptions. But Ganima's words touched a core of Bene Gesserit discipline which forced Jessica to maintain her composure. This grandchild spoke of a plan. What plan? Jessica asked. The Golden Path. Our imperial plan for our imperium, Leto said. He nodded to Faridun. Don't think harshly of me, cousin. I act for you as well. Alia hoped to have Ganima slay you. I'd rather you lived out your life in some degree of happiness. 
Alia screamed at her guards cowering in the passage. I command you to seize them! But the guards refused to enter the room. Wait for me here, sister, Leto said. I have a disagreeable task to perform. He moved across the room toward Alia. She backed away from him into a corner, crouched and drew her knife. The green jewels of its handle flashed in the light from the window. Leto merely continued his advance, hands empty but spread and ready. Alia lunged with the knife. Leto leaped almost to the ceiling, struck with his left foot. It caught Alia's head a glancing blow and sent her sprawling with a bloody mark on her forehead. She lost her grip on the knife and it skidded across the floor. Alia scrambled after the knife but found Leto standing in front of her. Alia hesitated, called up everything she knew of Bene Gesserit training. She came off the floor, body loose and poised. Once more, Leto advanced upon her. Alia fainted to the left, but her right shoulder came up and her right foot shot out in a toe-pointing kick which could disembowel a man if it struck precisely. Leto caught the blow on his arm, grabbed the foot, and picked her up by it, swinging her around his head. The speed with which he swung her sent a flapping, hissing sound through the room as her robe beat against her body. The others ducked away. Alia screamed and screamed, but still she continued to swing around and around and around. Presently, she fell silent. Slowly, Leto reduced the speed of her whirling, dropped her gently to the floor. She lay in a panting bundle. Leto bent over her. I could have thrown you through a wall, he said. Perhaps that would have been best. But we're now at the center of the struggle. You deserve your chance. Alia's eyes darted wildly from side to side. I have conquered those inner lives, Leto said. Look at Gani. She too can, Ganima interrupted. Alia, I can show you. No! The word was wrenched from Alia. Her chest heaved and voices began to pour from her mouth. They were disconnected, cursing, pleading. You see? Why didn't you listen? And then, why are you doing this? What's happening? And another voice. Stop them! Make them stop! Jessica covered her eyes, felt Faridun's hand steady her. Still, Alia raved. I'll kill you! Hideous curses erupted from her. I'll drink your blood! The sounds of many languages began to pour from her, all jumbled and confused. The huddled guards in the outer passage made the sign of the worm, then held clenched fists beside their ears. She was possessed. Leto stood, shaking his head. He stepped to the window and with three swift blows shattered the supposedly unbreakable crystal-reinforced glass from its frame. A sly look came over Alia's face. Jessica heard something like her own voice come from that twisting mouth, a parody of Bene Gesserit control. All of you, stay where you are. Jessica, lowering her hands, found them damp with tears. Alia rolled to her knees, lurched to her feet. Don't you know who I am? she demanded. It was her old voice, the sweet and lilting voice of the youthful Alia who was no more. Why are you all looking at me that way? She turned pleading eyes to Jessica. Mother, make them stop it. Jessica could only shake her head from side to side, consumed by ultimate horror. All of the old Bene Gesserit warnings were true. 
She looked at Leto and Gani standing side by side near Alia. What did those warnings mean for these poor twins? Grandmother, Leto said, and there was pleading in his voice. Must we have a trial of possession? Who are you to speak of trial? Alia asked, and her voice was that of a querulous man, an autocratic and sensual man far gone in self-indulgence. Both Leto and Ganima recognized the voice, the old Baron Harkonnen. Ganima heard the same voice begin to echo in her own head, but the inner gate closed and she sensed her mother standing there. Jessica remained silent. Then the decision is mine, Leto said, and the choice is yours, Alia. Trial of possession, or... He nodded toward the open window. Who are you to give me a choice? Alia demanded, and it was still the voice of the old baron. Demon, Ganima screamed. Let her make her own choice. Mother, Alia pleaded in her little girl tones. Mother, what are they doing? What do you want me to do? Help me. Help yourself, Leto ordered, and for just an instant, he saw the shattered presence of his aunt in her eyes, a glaring hopelessness which peered out at him and was gone. But her body moved, a stick-like thrusting walk. She wavered, stumbled, veered from her path, but returned to it, nearer and nearer the open window. Now the voice of the old baron raged from her lips. Stop! Stop it, I say! I command you! Stop it! Feel this! Alia clutched her head, stumbled closer to the window. She had the sill against her thighs then, but the voice still raved. Don't do this! Stop it and I'll help you! I have a plan! Listen to me! Stop it, I say! Wait! But Alia pulled her hands away from her head, clutched the broken casement. In one jerking motion, she pulled herself over the sill and was gone. Not even a screech came from her as she fell. In the room, they heard the crowd shout, the sodden thump as Alia struck the steps far below. Leto looked at Jessica. We told you to pity her. Jessica turned and buried her face in Faridun's tunic. The assumption that a whole system can be made to work better through an assault on its conscious elements betrays a dangerous ignorance. This has often been the ignorant approach of those who call themselves scientists and technologists. The Butlerian Jihad by Hark al-Ada He runs at night, cousin, Ganima said. He runs. Have you seen him run? No, Faridun said. He waited with Ganima outside the small audience hall of the keep where Leto had called them to attend. Tiekanik stood at one side, uncomfortable with the Lady Jessica, who appeared withdrawn as though her mind lived in another place. It was hardly an hour past the morning meal, but already many things had been set moving, a summons to the guild, messages to Chom and the Lansrat. Faridun found it difficult to understand these Atreides. The Lady Jessica had warned him, but still the reality of them puzzled him. They still talked of the betrothal, although most political reasons for it seemed to have dissolved. Leto would assume the throne, there appeared little doubt of that. His odd living skin would have to be removed, of course, but in time. 
He runs to tire himself, Ganima said. He's Kralizek embodied. No wind ever ran as he runs. He's a blur atop the dunes. I've seen him. He runs and runs. And when he has exhausted himself at last, he returns and rests his head in my lap. Ask our mother within to find a way for me to die, he pleads. Faridun stared at her. In the week since the riot in the plaza, the keep had moved to strange rhythms. Mysterious comings and goings, stories of bitter fighting beyond the shield wall came to him through Tjeknik, whose military advice had been asked. I don't understand you, Faridun said. Find a way for him to die. He asked me to prepare you, Ganima said. Not for the first time she was struck by the curious innocence of this Carino prince. Was that Jessica's doing, or something born in him? For what? He's no longer human, Ganima said. Yesterday, you asked when he was going to remove the living skin. Never. It's part of him now, and he's part of it. Leto estimates he has perhaps four thousand years before metamorphosis destroys him. Faridun tried to swallow in a dry throat. You see why he runs? Ganima asked. But if he'll live so long and be so... Because the memory of being human is so rich in him. Think of all those lives, cousin. No, you can't imagine what that is because you've no experience of it. But I know. I can imagine his pain. He gives more than anyone ever gave before. Our father walked into the desert trying to escape it. Aliyah became abomination in fear of it. Our grandmother has only the blurred infancy of this condition, yet must use every Bene Gesserit while to live with it, which is what Reverend Mother training amounts to anyway. But Leto? He's all alone, never to be duplicated. Faridun felt stunned by her words. Emperor for four thousand years? Jessica knows, Ganima said, looking across at her grandmother. He told her last night. He called himself the first truly long-range planner in human history. What does he plan? The Golden Path. He'll explain it to you later. And he has a role for me in this plan? As my mate, Ganima said. He's taking over the Sisterhood's breeding program. I'm sure my grandmother told you about the Bene Gesserit dream for a male reverend with extraordinary powers. He's... You mean we're just to be... Not just. She took his arm, squeezed it with a warm familiarity. He'll have many very responsible tasks for both of us. When we're not producing children, that is. Well, you're a little young yet, Faridun said, disengaging his arm. Don't ever make that mistake again, she said. There was ice in her tone. Jessica came up to them with Tjekanik. Tjek tells me the fighting has spread off-planet, Jessica said. The central temple on Biarik is under siege. Faridun thought her oddly calm in this statement. He'd reviewed the reports with Tjekanik during the night. A wildfire of rebellion was spreading through the empire. It would be put down, of course, but later would have a sorry empire to restore. Here's Stilgar now, Ganima said. They've been waiting for him. And once more she took Faridun's arm. The old Fremen Naib had entered by the far door, escorted by two former death commando companions from the desert days. All were dressed in formal black robes with white piping and yellow headbands for mourning. 
They approached with steady strides, but Stilgar kept his attention on Jessica. He stopped in front of her, nodded warily. You still worry about the death of Duncan Idaho, Jessica said. She didn't like this caution in her old friend. Reverend Mother, he said. So it's going to be that way, Jessica thought, all formal and according to the Fremen Code, with blood difficult to expunge. She said, By our view, you but played a part which Duncan assigned you. Not the first time a man has given his life for the Atreides. Why do they do it still? You've been ready for it more than once. Why? Is it that you know how much the Atreides give in return? I'm happy you seek no excuse for revenge, he said. But there are matters I must discuss with your grandson. These matters may separate us from you forever. You mean Tabur will not pay him homage? Ganima asked. I mean I reserve my judgment. He looked coldly at Ganima. I don't like what my Fremen have become, he growled. We will go back to the old ways, without you if necessary. For a time, perhaps, Ganima said. But the desert is dying still. What'll you do when there are no more worms, no more desert? I don't believe it. Within one hundred years, Ganima said, there'll be fewer than fifty worms, and those will be sick ones kept in a carefully managed reservation. Their spice will be for the spacing guild only, and the price. She shook her head. I've seen Leto's figures. He's been all over the planet. He knows. Is this another trick to keep the Fremen as your vassals? When were you ever my vassal? Ganima asked. Stilgar scowled. No matter what he said or did, these twins always made it his fault. Last night he told me about this golden path, Stilgar blurted. I don't like it. That's odd, Ganima said, glancing at her grandmother. Most of the Empire will welcome it. Destruction of us all, Stilgar muttered. But everyone longs for the Golden Age, Ganima said. Isn't that so, Grandmother? Everyone, Jessica agreed. They long for the Pharaonic Empire which later will give them, Ganima said. They long for a rich peace with abundant harvests, plentiful trade, a leveling of all except the Golden Ruler. It'll be the death of the Fremen, Stilgar protested. How can you say that? Will we not need soldiers and brave men to remove the occasional dissatisfaction? Why, still, you and Tiek's brave companions will be hard-pressed to do the job. Stilgar looked at the Sardauka officer, and a strange light of understanding passed between them. And later we'll control the spice, Jessica reminded them. He'll control it absolutely, Ganima said. Faridan, listening with a new awareness which Jessica had taught him, heard a set piece, a prepared performance between Ganima and her grandmother. Peace will endure and endure and endure, Ganima said. Memory of war will all but vanish. Later will lead humankind through that garden for at least four thousand years. Tiekanik glanced questioningly at Faridan, cleared his throat. Yes, Tiek? Faridun said. I'd speak privately with you, my prince. Faridun smiled, knowing the question in Tiekanik's military mind, knowing that at least two others present also recognized this question. 
I'll not sell the Sardaga, Faridun said. No need, Ganima said. Do you listen to this child? Chekanik demanded. He was outraged. The old Naib there understood the problems being raised by all this plotting, but nobody else knew a damned thing about the situation. Ganima smiled grimly, said, Tell him, Faridun. Faridun sighed. It was easy to forget the strangeness of this child who was not a child. He could imagine a lifetime married to her, the hidden reservations on every intimacy. It was not a totally pleasant prospect, but he was beginning to recognize its inevitability. Absolute control of dwindling spice supplies. Nothing would move in the universe without the spice. Later, Tiek, Faridun said. But later, I said. For the first time, he used voice on Tiekanik, saw the man blink with surprise and remain silent. A tight smile touched Jessica's mouth. He talks of peace and death in the same breath, Stilgar muttered. Golden age. Ganima said, He'll lead humans through the cult of death into the free air of exuberant life. He speaks of death because that's necessary still. It's a tension by which the living know they're alive. When his empire falls, oh yes, it'll fall. You think this is Kralizek now, but Kralizek is yet to come. And when it comes, humans will have renewed their memory of what it's like to be alive. The memory will persist as long as there's a single human living. We'll go through the crucible once more still, and we'll come out of it. We always arise from our own ashes. Always. Faridun, hearing her words, understood now what she'd meant in telling him about later running. He'll not be human. Stilgar was not yet convinced. No more worms, he growled. Oh, the worms will come back, Ganima assured him. Or we'll be dead within two hundred years, but they'll come back. Oh, Stilgar broke off. Faridun felt his mind awash in revelation. He knew what Ganima would say before she spoke. The guild will barely make it through the lean years, and only then because of its stockpiles and ours, Ganima said. But there'll be abundance after Kralizek. The worms will return after my brother goes into the sand. As with so many other religions, Muad'Dib's golden elixir of life degenerated into external wizardry. Its mystical signs became mere symbols for deeper psychological processes, and those processes, of course, ran wild. What they needed was a living god, and they didn't have one, a situation which Muad'Dib's son has corrected. Saying attributed to Lu Tongpin. Lu, the guest of the cavern. Leto sat on the lion throne to accept the homage of the tribes. Ganima stood beside him one step down. The ceremony in the great hall went on for hours. Tribe after Fremen tribe passed before him through their delegates and their naives. Each group bore gifts fitting for a god of terrifying powers, a god of vengeance who promised them peace. He'd cowed them into submission the previous week, performing for the assembled Aritha of all the tribes. 
the judges had seen him walk through a pit of fire, emerging unscathed to demonstrate that his skin bore no marks by asking them to study him closely. He'd ordered them to strike him with knives, and the impenetrable skin had sealed his face while they struck at him to no avail. Acids ran off him with only the lightest mist of smoke. He'd eaten their poisons and laughed at them. At the end, he'd summoned a worm and stood facing them at its mouth. He'd moved from that to the landing field at Arikin, where he'd brazenly toppled a gilt frigate by lifting one of its landing fins. The Arifa had reported all of this with fearful awe, and now the tribal delegates had come to seal their submission. The vaulted space of the Great Hall with its acoustical dampening systems tended to absorb sharp noises, but a constant rustling of moving feet insinuated itself upon the senses, riding on dust and the flint odours brought in from the open. Jessica, who'd refused to attend, watched from a high spy hole behind the throne. Her attention was caught by Faridun and the realisation that both she and Faridun had been outmaneuvered. Of course, Leto and Ganima had anticipated the sisterhood. The twins could consult within themselves a host of Bene Gesserits greater than all now living in the Empire. She was particularly bitter at the way the sisterhood's mythology had trapped Alia. Fear built on fear. The habits of generations had imprinted the fate of abomination upon her. Alia had known no hope. Of course, she'd succumbed. Her fate made the accomplishment of Leto and Ganima even more difficult to face. Not one way out of the trap, but two. Ganima's victory over the inner lives and her insistence that Alia deserved only pity were the bitterest things of all. Hypnotic suppression under stress linked to the wooing of a benign ancestor had saved Ganima. They might have saved Alia, but without hope, nothing had been attempted until it was too late. Alia's water had been poured upon the sand. Jessica sighed, shifted her attention to Leto on the throne. A giant canopic jar containing the water of Muad'Dib occupied a place of honour at his right elbow. He'd boasted to Jessica that his father within laughed at this gesture even while admiring it. That jar in the boasting had firmed her resolve not to participate in this ritual. As long as she lived, she knew she could never accept Paul speaking through Leto's mouth. She rejoiced that House Atreides had survived, but the things that might have been were beyond bearing. Faridun sat cross-legged beside the jar of Muad'Dib's water. It was the position of the royal scribe, an honour newly conferred and newly accepted. Faridun felt that he was adjusting nicely to these new realities, although Tiekanik still raged and promised dire consequences. Tiekanik and Stilgar had formed a partnership of distrust, which seemed to amuse later. In the hours of the homage ceremony, Faridun had gone from awe to boredom to awe. They were an endless stream of humanity, these peerless fighting men. Their loyalty renewed to the Atreides on the throne could not be questioned. They stood in submissive terror before him, completely daunted by what the Arifa had reported. At last it drew to a close. The final Naib stood before Leto, Stilgar in the rearguard position of honour. Instead of panniers heavy with spice, fire jewels, or any of the other costly gifts which lay in mounds around the throne, Stilgar bore a headband of braided spice fibre 
the Atreides hawk had been worked in gold and green into its design. Ganema recognized it and shot a sidewise glance at Leto. Stilgar placed the headband on the second step below the throne, bowed low. I give you the headband worn by your sister when I took her into the desert to protect her, he said. Leto suppressed a smile. I know you've fallen on hard times, Stilgar, Leto said. Is there something here you would have in return? He gestured at the piles of costly gifts. No, my lord. I accept your gift then, Leto said. He rocked forward, brought out the hem of Ganema's robe, ripped a thin strip from it. In return, I give you this bit of Ganema's robe, the robe she wore when she was stolen from your desert camp, forcing me to save her. Stilgar accepted the cloth in a trembling hand. Do you mock me, my lord? Mock you? By my name, Stilgar, never would I mock you. I have given you a gift without price. I command you to carry it always next to your heart as a reminder that all humans are prone to error and all leaders are human. A thin chuckle escaped Stilgar. What a naib you would have made. What a naib I am. Naib of naibs. Never forget that. As you say, my lord. Stilgar swallowed, remembering the report of his Arifa, and he thought, Once I thought of slaying him, now it's too late. His glance fell on the jar, a graceful, opaque gold capped with green. That is water of my tribe. And mine, later said. I command you to read the inscription upon its side. Read it aloud that all may hear it. Stilgar cast a questioning glance at Ganema, but she returned it with a lift of her chin, a cold response which sent a chill through him. Were these Atreides imps bent on holding him to answer for his impetuosity and his mistakes? Read it, Plato said, pointing. Slowly Stilgar mounted the steps, bent to look at the jar. Presently he read aloud, This water is the ultimate essence a source of outward streaming creativity. Though motionless, this water is the means of all movement. What does it mean, my lord? Stilgar whispered. He felt awed by the words touched within himself in a place he could not understand. The body of Muad'Dib is a dry shell like that abandoned by an insect, Leto said. He mastered the inner world while holding the outer in contempt and this led to catastrophe. He mastered the outer world while excluding the inner world, and this delivered his descendants to the demons. The golden elixir will vanish from Dune, yet Muad'Dib's seed goes on, and his water moves our universe. Stilgar bowed his head. Mystical things always left him in turmoil. The beginning and the end are one, Leto said. You live in air, but do not see it. A phase has closed. Out of that closing grows the beginning of its opposite. Thus, we will have Kralizek. Everything returns later in changed form. You have felt thoughts in your head. Your descendants will feel thoughts in their bellies. Return to Sietz Tabur, Stilgar. Gurney Halleck will join you there as my advisor in your council. Don't you trust me, my lord? 
Stugar's voice was low. Completely, else I'd not send Gurney to you. He'll begin recruiting the new force we'll need soon. I accept your pledge of fealty, Stilgar. You are dismissed. Stilgar bowed low, backed off the steps, turned, and left the hall. The other naibs fell into step behind him according to the Fremen principle that the last shall be first. But some of their queries could be heard on the throne as they departed. What were you talking about up there still? What does that mean, those words on Muad'Dib's water? Leto spoke to Faridun. Did you get all of that, scribe? Yes, my lord. My grandmother tells me she trained you well in the mnemonic processes of the Bene Gesserit. That's good. I don't want you scribbling beside me. As you command, my lord. Come and stand before me, Leto said. Faridun obeyed, more than ever thankful for Jessica's training. When you accepted the fact that Leto no longer was human, no longer could think as humans thought, the course of his golden path became ever more frightening. Leto looked up at Faridun. The guards stood well back out of earshot. Only the counsellors of the inner presence remained on the floor of the great hall, and they stood in subservient groups well beyond the first step. Ganima had moved closer to rest an arm on the back of the throne. You've not yet agreed to give me your sadhaka, Leto said. But you will. I owe you much, but not that, Faridun said. You think they'd not mate well with my Fremen? As well as those new friends, Stilgar and Tjekanik. Yet you refuse. I await your offer. Then I must make the offer, knowing you will never repeat it. I pray my grandmother has done her part well, that you are prepared to understand. What must I understand? There's always a prevailing mystique in any civilization, Leto said. It builds itself as a barrier against change, and that always leaves future generations unprepared for the universe's treachery. All mystiques are the same in building these barriers. The religious mystique, the hero-leader mystique, the messiah mystique, the mystique of science, technology, and the mystique of nature itself. We live in an imperium which such a mystique has shaped, and now that imperium is falling apart because most people don't distinguish between mystique and their universe. You see, the mystique is like demon possession. It tends to take over the consciousness, becoming all things to the observer. I recognize your grandmother's wisdom in these words, Faridun said. Well and good, cousin. She asked me if I were abomination. I answered in the negative. That was my first treachery. You see, Ganima escaped this, but I did not. I was forced to balance the inner lives under the pressure of excessive melange. I had to seek the active cooperation of those aroused lives within me. Doing this, I avoided the most malignant and chose a dominant helper thrust upon me by the inner awareness which was my father. I am not, in truth, my father or this helper. Then again, I am not the second Leto. Explain. You have an admirable directness, Leto said. I'm a community dominated by one who was ancient and surpassingly powerful. He fathered a dynasty which endured for three thousand of our years. His name was Harum, 
and until his line trailed out in the congenital weaknesses and superstitions of a descendant, his subjects lived in rhythmic sublimity. They moved unconsciously with the changes of the seasons. They bred individuals who tended to be short-lived, superstitious, and easily led by a god-king. Taken as a whole, they were a powerful people. Their survival as a species became habit. I don't like the sound of that, Faridun said. Nor do I, really, Leto said. But it's the universe I'll create. Why? It's a lesson I learned on Dune. We kept the presence of death a dominant spectre among the living here. By that presence the dead changed the living. The people of such a society sink down into their bellies, but when the time comes for the opposite, when they arise, they are great and beautiful. That doesn't answer my question, Faridun protested. You don't trust me, cousin, nor does your own grandmother. And with good reason, Leto said, but she acquiesces because she must. Bene Gesserits are pragmatists in the end. I share their view of our universe, you know. You wear the marks of that universe. You retain the habits of rule, cataloguing all around you in terms of their possible threat or value. I agreed to be your scribe. It amused you and flattered your real talent, which is that of historian. You've a definite genius for reading the present in terms of the past. You've anticipated me on several occasions. I don't like your veiled insinuations, Faridun said. Good. You come from infinite ambition to your present lowered estate. Didn't my grandmother warn you about infinity? It attracts us like a floodlight in the night, blinding us to the excesses it can inflict upon the finite. Bene Gesserit aphorisms, Faridun protested. But much more precise, Plato said. The Bene Gesserit believed they could predict the course of evolution, but they overlooked their own changes in the course of that evolution. They assumed they would stand still while their breeding plan evolved. I have no such reflexive blindness. Look carefully at me, Faridun, for I am no longer human. So your sister assures me, Faridun hesitated. Then, abomination? By the sisterhood's definition, perhaps. Harum is cruel and autocratic. I partake of his cruelty. Mark me well. I have the cruelty of the husbandman, and this human universe is my farm. Fremen once kept tame eagles as pets, but I'll keep a tame Faridun. Faridun's face darkened. Beware my claws, cousin. I well know my Sardica would fall in time before your Fremen, but we'd wound you sorely and there are jackals waiting to pick off the weak. I will use you well, that I promise, Plato said. He leaned forward. Did I say I'm no longer human? Believe me, cousin, no children will spring from my loins, for I no longer have loins, and this forces my second treachery. Faridun waited in silence, seeing at last the direction of Leto's argument. I shall go against every Fremen precept, Plato said. They will accept because they can do nothing else. I kept you here under the lure of a betrothal, but there will be no betrothal of you and Ganima. My sister will marry me. But you marry, I say. Ganima must continue the Atreides line. 
There's also the matter of the Bene Gesserit breeding program, which is now my breeding program. I refuse, Faridun said. You refuse to father an Atreides dynasty? What dynasty? You'll occupy the throne for thousands of years and mould your descendants in my image. It will be the most intensive, the most inclusive training program in all of history. We'll be an ecosystem in miniature. You see, whatever system animals choose to survive by must be based on the pattern of interlocking communities, interdependence, working together in the common design which is the system, and this system will produce the most knowledgeable rulers ever seen. You put fancy words on a most distasteful... Who will survive Kralizek? Plato asked. I promise you, Kralizek will come. You're a madman. You will shatter the empire. Of course I will. And I'm not a man. But I'll create a new consciousness in all men. I tell you that below the desert of Dune, there's a secret place with the greatest treasure of all time. I do not lie. When the last worm dies, and the last melange is harvested upon our sands, these deep treasures will spring up throughout our universe. As the power of the spice monopoly fades, and the hidden stockpiles make their mark, new powers will appear throughout our realm. It is time humans learned once more to live in their instincts. Ganima took her arm from the back of the throne, crossed to Faradun's side, took his hand. As my mother was not wife, you will not be husband, Leto said. But perhaps there will be love, and that will be enough. Each day, each moment brings its change, Ganima said. One learns by recognizing the moments. Faridun felt the warmth of Ganima's tiny hand as an insistent presence. He recognized the ebb and flow of Leto's arguments. But not once had voice been used. It was an appeal to the guts, not to the mind. Is this what you offer for my sadhuka? he asked. Much, much more, cousin. I offer your descendants the Imperium. I offer you peace. What will be the outcome of your peace? It's opposite, Leto said, his voice calmly mocking. Faridun shook his head. I find the price for my sadhuka very high. Must I remain scribe, the secret father of your royal line? You must. Will you try to force me into your habit of peace? I will. I'll resist you every day of my life. But that's the function I expect of you, cousin. It's why I chose you. I'll make it official. I will give you a new name. From this moment, you'll be called breaking of the habit, which in our tongue is Hak Alada. Come, cousin, don't be obtuse. My mother taught you well. Give me your sadhaka. Give them, Ganima echoed. He'll have them one way or another. Faridun heard fear for himself in her voice. Love, then? Leto asked not for reason, but for an intuitive leap. Take them, Faridun said. Indeed, Leto said. He lifted himself from the throne, a curiously fluid motion as though he kept his terrible powers under most delicate control. 
Leto stepped down then to Ganima's level, moved her gently until she faced away from him, turned and placed his back against hers. Note this, cousin Hak Aladar. This is the way it will always be with us. We'll stand thus when we are married, back to back, each looking outward from the other to protect the one thing which we have always been. He turned, looked mockingly at Faridun, lowered his voice. Remember that, cousin, when you're face to face with my Ganima. Remember that when you whisper of love and soft things when you are most tempted by the habits of my peace and my contentment, your back will remain exposed. Turning from them, he strode down the steps into the waiting courtiers, picked them up in his wake like satellites, and left the hall. Ganima once more took Faridun's hand, but her gaze looked beyond the far end of the hall long after Leto had left it. One of us had to accept the agony, she said, and he was always the stronger. We hope you've enjoyed this Macmillan Audio production of Children of Dune. Text copyright 1976 by Frank Herbert. Production copyright 2007 by Macmillan Audio. All rights reserved. <laughs>